Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast, hosted and sponsored by GrandTheftWorld.com. It's episode 94. It is August 21st, 2022. We're going to be here for the next six or seven hours, breaking down the past week's news, giving you insights into the primary sources, the contextual information, the history behind some of these events so you can better understand and not not walk around all week with a fragmented idea of what's going on. It takes a little bit of extra time to take that data, put it into formation, but I promise you the result is much more spectacular and substantial than what you're going to get from just watching mainstream media. So hang in there. Tonight, uh, we're going to talk about the continued story of Pfizer and Moderna. Pfizer CEO Albert Borla came down with the COVID, and he's on uh, a new drug even after he had four of his own vaccinations, which he had let the public know earlier in those years of, of COVID that they were going to stop transmission and all these other things. Didn't seem to be true, even with four jabs. So following hey, that Rich, story, is that new? Hold on. Is that new yeah. drug uh, made by Pfizer? I think it is. The Paxlovid, mm. Paxlovid yeah, something Paxlovid. like that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's how something interesting. That, That's yeah, it's something curious. that they use uh, in place because uh, maybe ah. the, the gene therapy they were giving out wasn't so effective. So the other product they produced didn't work. So they're making another product. New that, product. Ah. New product. New and improved. Hopefully. Good. Uh, Good. Fauci tested it out after he got COVID twice a couple months ago. Biden and, tested it out when oh, he Biden. got COVID yeah. twice in July. And uh, now a little bit of rebound a lot, a lot. So the Moderna (laughs) story this week is they've got 30 million vaccines made by Moderna. And we could talk about that. They're going to be thrown away. They can't be used. Now, I got warned. I got locked out of Twitter this past week. Uh, I had made a comment as to the origin of how Moderna came into the mRNA business from DARPA, where they got some of their funding for their gene therapies as they listed in their SEC filings. Twitter gave me a little time out. But but you're going to be able to learn through the stories tonight that are approved uh, that maybe those vaccines didn't find a home for a good reason. Other stories we're going to check. We're going to check out Brian Stelter. Is it Brain Stetler or Brian Stelter? Uh, He got fired this week from CNN. He has been host of reliable sources. And uh, there's a lot of commentary going on because CNN's trying to improve their image. So they're not such a joke anymore. And they need to exile some of the people that brought. CNN into the political commentary and opinion business instead of the news business. Other stories are going to include the worldwide deaths are up for some mysterious reason. In the past two years, there's a lot of people dying and they're not quite sure why. I'm not sure if there's any contextual history of things. A lot of younger people dying. A lot of younger people dying too. It's very concerning. They say the myocarditis is coming from climate change. We're going to check all that out tonight. Rand Paul also had a good uh, commentary this past week on the origins of the past pandemic. The uh, COVID origins are looking more and more like they came from a lab. In fact, what you'll hear in this clip that is recent and published by Forbes is what you could have heard on this show two years ago, but it takes time for that knowledge to trickle down to the public and find its way out through the uh, the mainstream media. Uh, tonight's feature key title story, the Fauci effect. Uh, Tony Fauci is fond of himself in many ways. You'll get to hear him describe it and uh, what he terms the Fauci effect of inspiring all these new people into science uh, that's FDA funded. uh, I'm sorry, where the FDA is funded by the corporations it approves. So it's a good story that's coming up. And also we have the the commentary by Sam Harris. (laughs) The commentary by Sam Harris. Sam Harris said something to the effect of, I, I wouldn't care if Hunter Biden had children's bodies buried in his basement. Uh, I still would have covered it up. And so he made these comments about the election, how it was a right, rightful, like, uh, uh, you know, with integrity, they hushed up 
and covered up stories and censored stories away from the American people in order to achieve a different political outcome than would have happened had they not hidden this key information from Hunter Biden. So we're going to check out that story. But before we can do any of that and unpack all this week's news, it's one of the longest show cards we've had for a show. There's a whole bunch of news that happened this past week. Before we can do all that, we're going to go Luke Radowski of wearechange.org and thebestpoliticalshirts.com. Let's do this, uh, this week's kickoff, and we'll be right back to do the rest of the show. Less government for individual liberty, get the government off our backs, a more sensible foreign policy. Uh, I'm very disappointed that so far in this Congress we have not yet seen any sincere effort to cut any spending. There's something wrong here that could and should be adjusted with decreased spending, not raising taxes, and not further robbing the Social Security Trust Fund. The more we threat, the more we intimidate, the more we want to bomb people, the more we're leading into another fiasco like Vietnam. We trade with Vietnam now. That's a much better way than trying to impose our will on Vietnam by going over there and dropping bombs. So I would say that uh, this just points out again that we have a very, very poor foreign policy in the Middle East. I wish the Congress Shut would address the uncontrolled institutionality of presidents waging war that to me is a lot more serious than uh, monica Lewinsky. let me tell you the corporations are in bed with the government peace and harmony can never be achieved by bombs and intimidation that right there of course is the og ron paul himself that just yesterday celebrated another birthday we wish him many more welcome back beautiful and amazing human beings this is a Gradeski here we are change.org and man oh man do we have some absolutely crazy news to get into today as of course things have increased very severely geopolitically lots of tumultuous news coming out of europe what will this mean how will it affect everyone well we're going to be talking about that plus a lot more in a foreign policy centered video along of course with the latest updates happening here domestically inside of the united states so much to get into that we're just going to jump right into it as of course it's a, it's important to note here that that ron paul has been saying a lot of very important controversial things for many decades now and he was ridiculed he was laughed at and in some instances he was even censored but one thing that you can't say against the man was that rarely ever was he wrong when it came to his warnings about what has happened what is happening and what will happen this is of course the censorship that he has faced many others are facing right now on a more extreme level as of course previously we had censorship on television programmings in many instances even denying the existence of Ron Paul and now we have big tech social media censorship where of course political commentary and speech is fact-checked into oblivion this has kind of reached a crescendo within the last few hours as of course libs of tiktok Steven crowder and another controversial figure andrew tate had of course their speech eliminated from big tech social media platforms the speech highways of the world that now are denying them the ability to express themselves and whether you agree with some of these individuals or don't agree with these individuals i don't i don't care free speech should always be protected no matter what as of course historically when we start limiting the ideas that could be expressed we deal with some of the worst atrocities on the face of the earth and as we recently learned from former new york times reporter alex berenson that it was specifically the white house that was involved in the banning of his online social media account as recently found out through court proceedings which of course will continue as today we're also finding out that alex berenson will be planning on suing the white house for what essentially was the elimination of his speech from the public discourse because the white house was too insecure and didn't like anyone holding them accountable disgusting behavior by of course central top-down controllers that should be absolutely called out 
But when it comes to these latest actions, it looks like Andrew Tate is becoming more of the central focus of this entire discussion, which has sparked a lot of debate. Now, personally, I don't know this man. I haven't watched many of his videos. I heard a lot of negative rumors about him. At first, I kind of thought he was some kind of Islamist preacher out there. And I think it's fair to speculate for him to be censored, for Steven Crowder, libs of TikTok to be censored, and not radical Islamists or, or other groups that espouse and call for violence against others. For those people not to be censored clearly to me highlights that there's a bigger agenda to these censorship efforts that are a lot scarier than the words of individuals like Andrew Tate. Now with this censorship, with this squeegee cleaning of political opinions, dissent and controversial topics, what are we left with? She-Hulk. And if I have to watch She-Hulk and be inundated by just absolutely nefarious brainwashing propaganda and bullcrap, I will literally rip the eyeballs from my human skull because it is absolutely unbearable to be lectured by these crazy, insane individuals and with the way that censorship is going, this is what we're only going to be left with. And as we're finding out from the current events unfolding at CNN with the firing of many of their most prominent broadcasters, that of course people don't like to be lectured to propaganda, being a shill, doesn't pay. As we're also learning from alleged sources that many of the biggest names on CNN are next on the chopping block, including Jake Tapper, Jim Acosta, and many others have their end in sight. As of course, the alleged news network is losing a ton of money. As of course, no one wants to watch their propaganda. In related propaganda news, the CDC just came out and issued another warning with the corporate media regurging their docking points now warning about a polio crisis soon affecting the United States. And just when you thought the fear-mongering and the sensationalism couldn't get any worse by the establishment, here we are today from an establishment government bureaucratic agency that, of course, is best known on spraying DDT on everyone a couple decades ago. But, uh oh I better be careful. I'm criticizing the establishment as I'm walking the fine line online when it comes to speech. Of course, late last night, there was an incident that garnered a lot of political discussion as, of course, we got alleged news reports and videos showing what many people are now calling an alleged assassination attempt on a very prominent Russian figure, Alexander Dugin. This, as a car bomb, was placed in his daughter's vehicle and then later exploded on the road. An attack that killed his daughter, Daria, that was following in her father's footsteps, especially as a political commentator, as a philosopher, who were known for their statist nationalistic policies that they were calling for. Now, very quickly, footage of, of Dugan at, at the car crash, watching a car on fire with, with his daughter in it, started to go viral all over the internet. As, of course, we also heard rumors online that Alexander was supposed to be in that car. He clearly looks in shock in this video. Now, automatically, my knee-jerk reaction to all of this was, of course, to think about France Duke Ferdinand, who, of course, was the presumptive heir to the throne of the Austria-Hungary Empire, whose, of course, assassination literally led to the spark and spread of an entire world war. One global conflict preceded by the next. And to be honest, it's, it's difficult not to make these comparisons, especially with the escalations of such events like this. As of course, Alexander Dugin is known as essentially the Ukrainian war mastermind. He has been compared many times as someone that is, quote, Putin's brain and him and his family.
family, including his daughter that was just assassinated, were very involved in Russian politics to say the least. Now, who's responsible for this attack against the Dugans? Some people say the CIA. Some people, of course, are obviously pointing to sabotage internally from within from Russia. A lot of people pointing the fingers at Ukraine. Some people even speculating that it could have been Putin himself, as of course, political assassinations are, are common in Russia. But as of right now, I think it's fair to speculate that it probably most likely was a Ukrainian sabotage attack, as of course, Dugan and his daughter were big proponents of the war there. And there are a lot of Ukrainian sabotage efforts happening inside of Russia. And whether it's against ammunition, military equipment, food, major factories, infrastructure, there have been a series of attacks happening all throughout Russia that has absolutely been sabotaging their war effort. And it does look like a lot of these sabotage attacks, especially on the railroads, do have an effect on the conflict in Ukraine right now that as of a couple moments ago looked like it was stagnating. Now, there's actually even some people cheering on this assassination, saying that Daria called people subhuman. There's other people correcting them, saying that the actual quote was meant for war criminals. Regardless of what you think about this incident and where you stand, I think it's clear that this is also a signal of major escalations between the West and the East. As of course, the president of Ukraine even warns of a nastier phase of this war when responding to this assassination attempt on Dugan. And geopolitically, I think it's fair to say that with this assassination, that there's going to be, quote, gloves off in this entire encounter between Russia and Ukraine. This is as the Ukrainians are now launching strikes inside of Crimea. According to The Guardian, this is a psychological blow to the Russians. The Russians are bragging about downing Ukrainian drones in their country. And with the conflict winding down within the last few days, I think this is a very important development that is escalating it and signals a very dangerous, precarious situation for everyone involved. Things are getting nastier. Things are going to get a lot crazier. There's still a lot of speculation. There's still a lot of craziness. There's even Dennis Rodman saying that he's going to be going to Russia soon to try to release Brittany Greener. And uh, we'll see what happens. But assassinating the daughter of someone deemed Putin's brain, um, uh, I think it's fair, is, is a dangerous escalation when personally, I think there should be a lot of de-escalation. De I think there should be calls for peace talks. I think there should be incentivized motions and moves made geopolitically, made through foreign policy that could stop this nonsense and stop the utter loss of life on both sides. Politicians sending people to war is absolutely crazy and living like this is essentially a choice and a choice that is becoming more dangerous and riskier for everyone involved here. Sorry, Atlas decided to, to come over here. Things are getting cray-cray, and sadly, they're only going to get crazier from here. That's just my own personal opinion. Uh, uh, <clears throat> fantastic reporting by Luke Radowski. Very troubling development uh, in Russia. Um, the fact that the man, Alexander Dugan, uh, supposedly um, named to be Putin's brain, he was supposed to apparently die in that, uh, in that accident. Um, that's uh, very troubling, and yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of things I actually can't talk about. But there's a lot of rhymes or rhyming of history going on here. It's not a perfect one to one. History isn't perfectly repeating. But if you look at the beginning of World War II, you look at 1930s Germany, you look at Poland, you look at Russia, and you look at uh, the the uh, UK and the United States, but particularly well, in NATO Europe, where Germany and Poland the were the big interdependent right treaties. There. 
NATO makes yeah, it basically the same and the, the same thing as the independent treaties, treaties such, right too. Yeah. Right. And then the the Ukraine Russia is like Germany and Poland. That's sort of like and it rhymes it's not perfect it's, it's not a perfect rep- repetition but it's there's a lot of overlaps a lot of uh themes you can draw from both. That's very troubling. So we'll have to see what what continues to emerge. I still think it's going to continue to be a sort of like a long form proxy war, um, a limited war in the Kissinger model. That's and not surprised to I am surprised to see Ukraine, you know, proxy bomb into really Crimea, but yeah, for the military industrial complex right, that is made up mostly of they've actually popped uh, top five security or top five members of the Security Council. Are also the top five arms dealers in the world. Yeah. Ask him for a friend. I'm just. No, you got it. Got All right. It. So Alexander Dugan, uh, LD, can you look up to see if Jay Dyer has ever done an interview with Alexander Dugan? Because I'm pretty sure I've seen videos from the guy whose daughter got assassinated. And I'm pretty sure other people we know have actually talked and maybe debated with them, right? So Dugan's a Russian nationalist. From what I remember, I didn't agree with a lot of the things, but I'm not from that situation. The name sounds really familiar, which is really bothering. It's very outspoken. And you go ahead, LD. Well, yeah, he has spoken with with, uh, Dugan for sure. Um, That's interesting. Here is a uh, September 8th, 2016, Professor Dugan, Revolutionary Terror. Uh, that's a post on Jay's site, but uh, there's certainly it's out there somewhere. Um, you can look those, look that up. I, maybe multiple times, but I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah. So uh, while I might not agree with everything he says, uh, assassinating your op- opposition, it's not a good thing. It's not a good uh, technique out there. And in over there in Russia, they have political assassinations, and Putin has talked about this. He says here uh, we yeah. have. Pol- he have he he said what we have here that you call political assassinations in America is just people going for a run in the woods that don't come back or something to that effect, right? I mean, so it's yeah. it's branded differently, right? You, they we we don't have political assassinations in the United States. We have people who get mugged or crash their tri- cars into trees or buildings. Yeah, Michael Hastings style. So real quick, it looks yeah. like he he there's six references on Jay's analysis going back to twenty six six six. Excuse me, September 9th, 26th. No, September 8th. Oh, these are go oh, backwards. Okay. It goes back to March 12th, 2016. Was the first one. He had him on, lecture and former advisor to Vladimir Putin. He was gracious enough to speak with me about his in depth. So let's see what this is. We can't get into this, but speak to me. No. Okay. I'm going to go back. So it goes um, this is one of the first ones. The video is not available now, probably behind either a paywall or YouTube. But lecturer and former advisor to Vladimir Putin, he was gracious enough to speak with me in this in-depth philosophical discussion that covers a wide range of topics, including the origins of modern liberalism and the Enlightenment. It just happens to be the problems of atomistic individualism, the anti-metaphysical stance of Anglo-Saxon and Scottish empiricists, which is actually, I agree with that, and how this philosophy was mirrored in the Calvinist reformers and the desacralization of nature and the, wow, that's, these are really interesting. Yeah. Oh boy. I mean, that's the thing about these the people who very intelligent researchers and intellectuals from the East or from Russia or, you know, or from the Middle East as well in Africa, like they can say some things that are absolutely true that we we talk about, obviously, about American interventionism and foreign policy and the CIA. Um, 
they have an acute understanding of those histories. Um, at the same time, they obviously come with a bias towards a nationalistic stance forever they're supporting, whether it's you know African nation, Middle Eastern, or in this case, Russia. But you know, can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There might be some very interesting elements to this man. I mean, obviously, we uh, a friend of ours, um, Matthew Arrett, has sympathies in this direction as well. And even when we appreciate a lot of the research he's done, at least in regards to the Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-American uh, establishment. establishment. Oh, yeah. Anglo-Saxon law. Wasp, All right, so do again. We don't agree with him there. But anyways, good. Yeah, I don't have to agree with them to say uh, appreciate the be, history. They shouldn't be trying to assassinate him or members of his family. What's up with that? Oh, did that's, I have that on there? Sorry, I forget. That's a weird argument. But yeah, so that's. And, and, um, am I correct in assuming that that was a YouTube video that Jay produced that is now banned by YouTube? It's banned, yeah. And he has books here. What is wrong with Europe? Heideggerian and apocalyptic thinking. Wow. And philosophy of politics. And on and the last one here is on Eurasianism, the geopolitics of land and sea in a Russian. Yeah, he's uh, theory of multipolar. Oh, he's right. very much yeah, in the Matthew Eric camp. I know. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's he's the source of the multipolar world theory. Oh, that, so that's that why you. I'm familiar with. Thank you. Right. Right. Uh, so I don't know if it was Ukraine or who who did the hit. I haven't read that much up on it. I'm just stating that violence is never a way to prove you're right logically or reasonably. Like Ron Paul said in the very beginning right. of that exactly video. Yeah, we agree with Ron. All right. So uh, the next clip we want to play is we want to visit uh, Christy Lee's weaken media malfeasance and uh then we'll start getting into the uh the individual articles and the deep dives and the books that i brought for tonight's presentation and uh first let's go to christy lee brian stelter is out at cnn strike three you're out of there <laughs> Guest journalistic lack of integrity and ironically his initials of BS finally caught up with him. Oh my God. I mean, that is a horror movie cover. Seriously, he is scarier looking than it the clown. Adios BS, we'll miss you. Disproving viral tweets is different than debunking a TV ad. Combating meme makers is different than rebutting newspaper columnists. And the memes are pretty powerful sometimes. Bringing you its ignored, sensationalized, misleading, or just plain false, here's your media malfeasance for the week. The FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago continues to dominate the news after A.G. Merrick Garland asked for the search warrant to be unsealed and Trump called his bluff and essentially said, bring it on. Suddenly, the DOJ backpedaled this week and asked the judge to keep the search warrant affidavit sealed. A hearing was held on Thursday with the same judge who authorized the search, ruling that some of the DOJ's affidavit used to obtain the search warrant can be unsealed. Judge Reinhardt, who recused himself from a Trump versus Hillary lawsuit citing impartiality issues, is giving the government a week to show him the proposed redactions, according to NBC. Now, since we still can't see the search warrant affidavit, we still can't assess if the FBI truly had probable cause for the raid. MSM has backed off speculating about possession of nuclear codes, which never made much sense, while alternative media has cried witch hunt and accused the warrant of being overly broad, raising constitutionality concerns. Donald Trump said on Truth Social, Wow, during the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, they stole three of my passports, one of them expired, and several other things. 
Nora O'Donnell was quick to tweet, according to a DOJ official, the FBI is not in possession of former President Trump's passports, then seemed to contradict herself with another tweet. If any items not contained in the warrant were retrieved during the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago, they will be returned. John Solomon of Just the News was able to confirm Trump's passports were taken, among many other things, and that, quote, DOJ has designated a process for separating materials that could be covered by executive privilege or attorney-client privilege and hopes to return such memos to Trump within a couple of weeks. Kevin Brock, who served as FBI Assistant Director for Intelligence under former Director Robert Mueller, said the new revelations raise legitimate questions about over-collection of evidence that could lead to significant legal challenges. Precedent could also bolster legal challenges against the Justice Department. Tom Fitton of Judicial Watch describes an old case concerning audio tapes in Bill Clinton's sock drawer. Taylor Branch had done a book on right. Clinton, you may recall, and he recorded some of his conversations with him for the book, and Clinton kept copies of, I think it was more than one tape, but the tapes included at least his half of the conversation with foreign leaders, members of Congress, and other government officials. So we saw that and we said, hey, what about the Presidential Records Act? Aren't these in the library? Because we have been litigating against the library for probably 15 years at that point. Right. And so we sued the archives and they came back to us and they told us, you know, go pound sand. Senator Rand Paul weighs in. Well, you know, I think the burden is on the FBI to justify this raid. This is extraordinary. This is also the same FBI that used a foreign intelligence warrant to snoop on and spy on the Trump campaign to investigate them for over two years. So I think the burden really is on the FBI. They've been wrong in the past. They've broken the law in using these foreign intelligence warrants. Now they use a domestic warrant, but I do think they need to, re to release the justification for this because this is extraordinary and we should not lose sight of the fact this has never, ever happened before. Since the raid on Trump, the FBI has come under scrutiny for its history of weaponization against dissent. It responds with a threat assessment. The FBI and DHS joint intelligence memo obtained by The Intercept warns of the potential for domestic violent extremists to carry out attacks in reaction to the FBI's recent execution of a court-authorized search warrant in Palm Beach, Florida. Becker News points out the Joint Intelligence Bulletin also references a June 7th National Terrorism Advisory Bulletin warning of domestic extremists who have expressed grievances to the false perception that the U.S. government is not working to maintain security along the U.S.-Mexico border. False assumption, border not secure? What's going on here? Fox News was down there and we witnessed the National Guard locking this gate at the border on private property at a major crossing area in Eagle Pass to deny the illegals to come into or further into the U.S. Then Fox News witnesses the Border Patrol agents come along with a key. They open the gate to illegals that are standing outside of the gate and allowed them to go through for processing all with the Texas National Guard just standing there watching. Mm -hmm. Of course, Greg Abbott, not very happy about this. Former VP Mike Pence also had some strong words for those criticizing the FBI. But more than anything else, the American people need to be reassured in the integrity of our justice system. Reassured in the integrity of our justice system? How do our Olympic gymnasts feel about the integrity of the FBI? MSNBC says the, quote, insurrection plans were published, but the FBI ignored them. Newsweek says Parler warned the FBI 50 times, but took no action. 
New York Times, among those who marched into the Capitol January 6, an FBI informant. 20 federal assets embedded at Capitol on January 6, defense attorney claims, according to the Epoch Times. The Hill, men accused of Whitmer kidnapping plot, say FBI set them up. BuzzFeed, the FBI allegedly used at least 12 informants in the Michigan kidnapping case. But do not question the FBI. Just how many shootings has the FBI been warned about in advance, yet took no action? From CNN, the FBI was warned about the Parkland, Florida shooter five months before the school shooting occurred. OPB, FBI confirms agents knew of alleged Normandale Park shooter months before that shooting occurred. A warning a year in advance didn't stop a shooting at an Indianapolis FedEx last year, according to The Hill. Boston Herald, FBI whiffs again on Colorado mass shooting suspect. USA Today, the biggest terrorism case of the year, collapsed largely thanks to FBI misconduct and deceit in reference to the Pulse nightclub shooting. CBS News, report shows FBI ignored accused Fort Hood shooter Nadal Hassan out of political correctness. Boston Magazine, FBI admits it missed opportunities to stop Boston Marathon bombing. But make sure you don't criticize the FBI. CNN, FBI and California sheriff illegally seized marijuana cash belonging to licensed dispensaries, lawsuit claims. FBI used provocative photos of female office staff to catch sexual predators, according to CNN. The list goes on and on, particularly in the Bureau's obsession with our former president. Politico, ex-FBI lawyer spared prison for altering Trump-Russia probe email. New York Post, text revealed disgraced FBI agent told Lover will stop Trump. Yet the FBI hasn't gotten anywhere on Epstein's sex trafficking clients or done anything about evidence on Hunter Biden's laptop they falsely claimed was Russian disinfo and tried to tuck away. But don't you dare suggest the FBI has become a worthless, politicized, elitist bureau. Speaking of elitist, despite support from Democrats and the media, Liz Cheney loses her primary. The great and original champion of our party, Abraham Lincoln, was defeated in elections for the Senate and the House before he won the most important election of all. Lincoln ultimately prevailed, he saved our union, and he defined our obligation as Americans for all of history. Yes, she compared herself to Abraham Lincoln. Lauren Bobart tweets, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves from the Democrats. He didn't become a slave to the Democrats. And finally, after updating its guidelines on COVID, repeating what many who were censored were advising for the past couple of years, Walensky, citing botched pandemic response, calls for CDC reorganization, according to the New York Times. What I would suggest if they want to reorganize is humility. I think they need to step back and get back into the advice game, not the mandate game. Walensky says, to be frank, we are responsible for some pretty dramatic, pretty public mistakes from testing to data to communications. Thomas Massey tweets, CDC lost credibility by denying natural immunity, claiming shots prevent spread, suppressing possible therapies, ignoring vaccine injured, treating all groups as same risk, flip-flopping on masks, lying to Congress, fabricating studies. But have we even truly begun to see the major fallout? 
Martin Koldorf tweets, now that the CDC has finally admitted that there is natural immunity after COVID infection, all unions should demand the reinstatement with back pay for unvaccinated employees that were fired. In fact, healthcare workers in Illinois who were fired over vaccine mandate have been awarded 10 million in a settlement. But beware, Tony Fauci says he wishes there would have been even more stringent restrictions than what we all experienced. There would have been much, much more stringent uh, restrictions in the sense of very, very heavy encouraging people to wear masks, physical distancing or what have you. Time will tell what Walensky really means by a CDC reorganization. For KLIM.News, I'm Christy Lee. CDC also said they're sorry for getting all those people fired, for losing their homes, for disrupting their children's lives. Oh, no. They didn't say that, but they need to restructure their bullshit organization over there that has helped to create a divide in this country by providing people with ill guidance, guidance that was political, guidance that was top down, guidance that was not coming from on the scene, guidance that suppressed accurate views that were expressed by doctors who were brought before the Senate by senators like Ron Johnson. We might have a clip from Ron Johnson's recent uh, last week uh, talk later tonight. There was a whole lot that went on there, and I think people should keep in the mentality of never forget, never forget that they filled those skate parks with sand for your protection, for your children's protection, for the disruption of life and the uh, amplifying of that fear effect is why they did it. And if I remember correctly, Javier, Javier Becerra heads the HHS. The HHS is the the health and human services health and human right health and human services but it's the the top like i think the uh -huh. cdc if, it, if it's a separate organization uh, i correct myself i'm pretty sure the cdc falls under the hhs and part of extended emergency use um uh saying that there's still a pandemic i know they do this every couple of months del big tree goes into this all the time is to they there was a ruling a couple of months ago i think it came with the supreme court where the cdc was trying to actually not just uh play politics in the sense of suggestions they actually wanted the power to mandate and they had a very specific sort of loophole with the emergency powers that gave them a pseudo ability to do so um that was i think rescinded with the supreme court now it could be bought i remember there's it's i'm trying to piece together a lot of pieces that have been reported on in the past couple of months particularly by del big trees crew but i know there was an issue with that and they lost that that power and now they're sort of you know and in, in the wake of it they're trying to have to sort of reorganize uh, this is all propaganda to me. I mean, if anything, they're reorganizing so there'd be... Well, it's hard to discern because it's like the yeah. fog of current events. Let me Correct. ask this question. What was the relationship of the CDC with DDT? People should look at where the CDC actually started its practice and what it's really for. It might be there, part militarily, because if we ever had a bioweapon outbreak, the CDC is there to convince you to take right. the vaccines. Correct. Del Big Tree has done uh, a whole yeah. segment on the that history. Just like the FDA is nothing but a labeling organization. Right. The FDA NC, sells yeah. labels to corporations. It's not That's there right. to keep your family safe. And it never has, it. probably never will. Exactly. Now let's look exactly. at some of these other things that Christy talked about in that uh, that report. Excellent report, by the way. Um, the oh, affidavit has yet to be unsealed. So we don't really know what ev evidence they claimed to be able to justify the raid. So we're going to, we're going to hold that over here. But real but quick, they said some can be revealed. I have my notes oh, here. It says some. Redacted. Like, that's like, hilarious. You know, they don't want right? to let us know who the FBI informant was. 
How absurd is that? Some like, come on. So they, they're uh, going to hide the informant and they'll, they'll release something. We'll have something next week. So now <laughs> let's take a look at history. The FBI was formed in the mid thirties uh, in re in response to prohibition. There was a group before it. They changed the name, became FBI um, mid thirties. And by 1938, the FBI started working with the criminal underworld, organized crime, you might call them. So they were brought in to fight organized crime. And by 1938, they had something called Operation Underworld, where the FBI started working with the Meyer Lansky organization, Jewish mafia family, importing, that's what Lansky's operation was, illicit drugs, prohibition type stuff, black market type stuff, whatever goes on outside the legal bounds of reality. That's what they were handling. FBI, because of MI6, MI6 was already working with the Sicilian mafia. And they brought the nascent FBI to say, you should work with these mafia groups too. It's part of how intelligence is done. And there's never an official separation. But I think it got started see, with prohibition because the FBI was started in the right. 1920s. So I think they really got their, that's so funny. Right? Yeah. The untouchables, right? Yeah. Yeah. You got right. it. Yeah. So you got uh, JFK assassination, RFK assassination, MLK, Martin Luther King assassination. It was found in the criminal court. The FBI was responsible for the assassination of Martin Luther King. $100 was paid to Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King's widow. And I've met their lawyer who adjudicated that case. His name is William Pepper. So if you don't know about that, you might want to see what happened at the end of the 20th century when a court adjudicated in a civil suit that it was not uh, who was the official shooter, according to the narrative. Oh, and then, okay. I don't remember See, that one. I don't learn wrong names either because it wasn't the guy who did it. That's that's the gist. <clears throat> Organized James Earl was, Ray. James Earl Ray was involved, but he was not the uh, operator nor the uh, operations manager of that event. I think they built a specious argument saying there was some sort of communist infiltration in the MLK camp and the FBI was well, necessitated. That's, that's how they justified fight that yeah. communism, Tony. Yeah. And they fought communist. Yeah. So the CIA <laughs> fights communism outside. <laughs> FBI fights communism on the inside. All right. How, how nice. So man. there was um, uh, the Reason magazine. So what else has the FBI been up to? Right. They uh, ran a bunch of dark or dark web porn sites. Twenty three, I think, was the number. It was a Reason magazine article. You can look yeah, it up. Right. And yeah, they ran right. those dark web porn sites to catch child predators allegedly i don't know what they clean their honey pots but it's speculative because like recently it came out that um agents i forget these might have been cia agents so excuse me here but cia agents were um engaging in pedophilia in order to supposedly catch or you know do their job or that like operation midnight climax go look it up yeah there's that oh man the finders there's a whole bunch of history to that my next point was going to be the fbi knew about epstein's abuse for 30 years well look at the look at the almost every turn was facilitating the cover-up of that and to this day looks harder into trump's underwear drawer than they do into the epstein case and then i ask myself the question are the people who are investigating trump and running this mar-a-lago raid are they running with the people that ran cover for epstein and there might be a lot more than well, that than you want to think well the but judge recusing himself there, and oh, like yeah. just real quick larry nasser yeah. i mean the fbi completely did nothing or those gymnasts that that the <clears throat> that um gym instructor gymnast instructor that abused all those girls 
Mm-hmm. There's so much evidence. It was overwhelming amount of evidence, and the FBI ignored all of it. And this is one individual, supposedly. And there's not a network, supposedly. But well, so if we go with that argument, it's one individual. They ignored just even one individual, not a network. So I can get maybe because they're embedded not, in a network, I'm not but they're not even the going to go after one individual. I'm pointing out specific rotten apples continually oh, no, sure, at the top I agree of the organization, too. giving the organization a bad name. For instance, yeah, it was too many people that to assume everyone's in, right. Before yeah, he was FBI director during 9-11, Mueller, what did he do in the 80s and 90s? And what was his relationship with Whitey Bulger, an FBI informant for most of his career? And when you get into the FBI informants, oh, you're going to run into 9-11 hijackers. You're going to run into Boston Marathon bombers. Yeah. You're going to run into all sorts of things that aren't on the mainstream media uh, ticket if you will. It's not on their menu. But FBI informants in the... Let's not forget about Hoover and COINTELPRO in the 50s. I mean, he... Michigan? Well, yeah, I'm just building up a case because it was an FBI informant that led the Mar-a-Lago raid. No, no, I know. It was an FBI informant that placed the bomb in World Trade Center in 1993. Yeah. There's a lot of FBI informants. I got a whole book called The Terror Factory inside the FBI's manufactured war on terror. Yeah. Iman Salam's not in that book, though, because he only really. He only covers post 9-11 terror uh, post factory, 9/11. Okay. not pre-9-11. Okay. So well, the point what, is in historically, we have we can't forget about Hoover and COINTELPRO. Like that's a legitimate history of infiltrating his own organization using its own organization to infiltrate <laughs> uh, political political groups that are against him or whatever. So it's like there's that history as well. I think that was in the 50s. Let me let me look that up. It's been a while. And what they try to do is they try to steer organizations toward violence because they're the group yeah. that has the monopoly on violence, and then you're going to go play in their pig pen. So it's usually uh, spot the Fed is usually who's who's inciting the violence, who's saying that the violence should be taken, and you walk the other way from that person. Cohen Telpro, go ahead and read yeah. that. So it was a serious. This was from 19. I didn't realize it went on this long. This one from 1956. I think it was initiated by Hoover. Uh, 1956 to 1971 was a series of covert and illegal projects actively conducted by the United States FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation, aimed at surveilling, infiltrating, discrediting, and disrupting domestic American political organizations. Just as I just said, yeah. FBI records show CoIntelPro resources targeted groups and individuals the FBI deemed subversive. Hmm, doesn't that sound familiar with Merrick Garland and the uh, DHS head right now, uh, including feminist organizations, the Communist Party USA, anti-Vietnam war organizers, activists of civil rights movement and black power movement. For example, Martin Luther King, the Nation of Islam and the Black Panther Party, environmentalists and animal rights organizations, the American Indian movement, uh, Chicana and Amer- Mexican-American groups like the Brown Berets and the United Farmer, excuse me, United Farm Workers, Independent independence movements, including Puerto Rican independence groups such as the Young Lords and the Puerto Rican Socialist Party, and a variety of organizations that are part of the broader new left and far right groups such as the Ku Klux Klan and the National States Rights Party. Uh, and ninth, this last thing I'll say here, in 1971 in San Diego, the FBI financed, armed, and controlled an extreme, listen to this, in 1971 in San Diego, the FBI financed, armed, and controlled an extreme right-wing group of former members of the Minutemen anti-communist paramilitary organization, transforming it into a group called the Secret Army Organization that targeted groups, activists, and leaders involving the anti-war movement using both intimidation and violent acts. So this is reference 11, 12, and 13. This is Michael Newton, the FBI Encyclopedia. Triumphs of Democracy by Noam Chomsky and the San Diego coup. Those are the three references for that. All right. I want to issue a correction. I made Mm -hmm. a small 
small mistake in my presentation of those facts. It's 1938 Operation Underworld. 1938, they start working with MI6 in the right. UK. So the FBI exists about 10, the FBI 12 didn't years work for that. with them until 1942 when America gets into the war. Mm. But their big brother, if you will, was already working with the Meyer Lansky, Lucky Luciano, uh, cocaine, opium, yeah. heroin trafficking. You know, Rich, I right. have to ask this now. This is interesting. And that's a predecessor to Operation Gladio. It's the same thing. This is a little bit, obviously, art imitating life, but first Godfather film. Um, there is that scene um, with Marlon Brando where he's not willing to go along with the drug trade, right. right? And there's the expansion of the mafia, particularly the Italian mafia, with the drug trade, and he didn't want to be a part of that. That's and right. obviously, that was now looking at this, I'm thinking, hmm, you know, working with Jewish mafia, Italian mafia, Lucky Luciani of Myolansky as Jewish. Here, um, I'll just read out the uh, very yeah. interesting, just noticing a pattern. That's all. Operation Underworld was the United States government's code name for the operation uh, cooperation of the Italian Jewish uh, organized crime figures from 1942 to 1945. Because right at the end of the war, they stopped that. Right, Tony? Stop that dealing drugs and arms and black markets. But it went on. It was OK during the war. So they'll tell you about it. <laughs> to counter right, yeah. the Axis, that's the German and Japanese, the spies and saboteurs along U.S. northern seaboard posts, uh, ports, avoid wartime labor, labor strikes and limit the theft by black marketeers of mm. vital war supplies and equipment. There you go. Wow. You got to work with the people who are stealing your stuff so they don't steal your stuff. Italian, so anyway, Jewish organized crime. And it wasn't too long before the Zionists got their state. Wow. And it does. And it does run into the, the Godfather series. It just, but when people yeah, look a, at this, yeah. I don't want to make it out like, oh, it's just the FBI doing this. The FBI got trained and groomed by the British. So did the CIA and OSS, right. or OSS, then CIA. We had no American intelligence system that had spycraft or any of these types of things or had dealt with, uh, you know, the black markets. The best we had was Elliot Ness, who could go shoot him with a machine gun. These guys were cutting deals behind the scenes saying, yeah. hey, this prohibition thing made you guys really popular. Let's work together. Joseph Kennedy Sr., was one of the people who was working with those types of groups. That's correct. So when fact, his next, yeah, he got a lot of money his, with the bootleggers. When someone comes along and kills his kids, maybe it wasn't something JFK or RFK did themselves. Maybe it's something sins of the old man there. Yeah. Supposedly there's also connections with the Teamsters, which are an incredibly corrupt a whole bunch. Um, a union organization. Um, Joseph Kennedy, Sinatra, yeah, JFK, buying Which votes, obviously the Teamsters are mafia controlled investigating at that the point mob. too. Right. Yep. So there you go. Oh, by the way, Joseph Kennedy, he died in Operation Aphrodite, which was. What? Uh, oh, yeah. He died in Operation Aphrodite. Joe Kennedy the Jr. The fuck is that? Oper operation Jack is that? Yeah, no, oh, I it's guess where it's they had a remote control plane that blew up with bombs. You got to be yeah. kidding me. No. Operation Aphrodite made use of unmanned, explosive laden, like bin laden, Army, Air Force's Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress under radio control. And he was supposed to parachute out, but it blew up before he could get out. That's all. Nothing to see there. Oh my god! But they had unmanned explosive laden planes. I mean, that's but no the, one would ever think to use planes as weapons, bomber. Tony. So you're not supposed to know facts like that because it might make you question other official narratives <laughs> 50 years later by the same people who killed JFK. Unreal, man. That's right, fucking anyway, unreal. That that's wasn't crazy. in the show card, but we had to go there for a minute just mm -hmm. to. Just to lay it out Expand there. Expand upon the corruption of the FBI. Hey, if you're not going to build historical... new neurons with this podcast, what the fuck's the point? Yeah, facts. You got to ask some questions, find some answers. And if you find out uh, who was 
Mueller's in, informant. You know, they couldn't find Whitey Bulger for a long time. And then Mueller pulls him out of the hat. Like, here he is. <laughs> Mueller was about to get in trouble for not knowing where he was. And all of a sudden, he knew where it was. Because it's, it's, it's magic. And if you had an informant like Whitey Bulger, don't you think you could probably become the head of the FBI, being the intermediary between the FBI and the mob like that? Jeez. It's almost know. as if these organizations are mafia controlled, but almost they act as, as though they're not. You know, they put on well, a nice what's facade. What's the difference between the mafia and the government? The mafia doesn't have a 12-year no indoctrination program to convince you they're not the mafia. The government does. The government merged with Operation Underworld with organized crime. Did it ever divest itself from that? I don't think so. No. It's too useful a tool. Always and above it, the law. Always has to operate above. That's the number one You don't one have thing to put that gang That's out of business. You just put it under its, you know, under the thumb. The yeah. mafia is not printing money, dude. Hey, they got to control those gods. That's, Gold, oil, drugs, and sex. You got to keep those markets under control. That's the money. All right, let's get into, uh, uh, let's see, juicy sections here. Should we get Ukraine and Russia out of the way? I don't know if there's anything to... Let's just skip it. Let's go yeah, to vaccines, lockdowns, yeah. therapeutics, because this is where all the money shots are. Let's go yeah. to this first clip. Moderna CEO, Jimmy Dore is going to cover it for us. Nobody wants to take our vaccines. They got 30 million vaccines. They got to throw them away. Safe and effective for the landfills. Let's go ahead to Jimmy Dore and let's check it out. I'm here with Jackson Hinkle, the most censored man on YouTube. And we're talking about this. <laughs> Clay Travis went viral with this tweet. He was talking about the CEO of Moderna, talking about how he's upset. They have to throw out 30 million of their vaccines. You want to hear it? Here it is. It's sad to say. I'm in the process of throwing 30 million doses into the garbage because nobody wants them. So he's in the process. I'll translate it for you, even though he's speaking English. <laughs> he said he's in the process of throwing away 30 million doses a vaccine because nobody wants them. <laughs> okay, here we go. It just took a little while. People started watching the Jimmy Dore show, I guess. Here we go. It's, it's sad to say. I'm in the process of throwing 30 million doses into the garbage because nobody wants them. Uh, we have a big demand problem. We right now have... I don't know if you heard what he said. We have a big demand problem. Meaning there's no nobody wants their vaccines. Look at how concerned that woman is. She's so good. <laughs> this, yeah, that this, woman's face. This is very bad. <laughs> yeah, we're, you know because I don't know if you know, but that shirt costs the cost that costs fifteen thousand dollars. So that's why she's upset. She's like, "What? I'm gonna have to start buying regular clothes." Here we go. Uh, governments, we try to contact not only Seth, who's doing great work with his team, trying to get demand into the countries. But also we contacted through the... So I don't know if you heard what he said. He said, we're doing a very hard work, not only with Seth, who's doing a great job trying to increase demand in other countries. Seth, just keep that in mind. Seth is trying to create, create demand in other countries. Washington's in, the embassies in Washington, every country, and nobody wants to take them. It's, it's sad to say. I'm in the process of throwing... So let's watch it without me stopping it. It's, it's sad to say. I'm in the process of throwing 30 million doses into the garbage because nobody wants them. Uh, we have a big demand problem. We right now have uh, governments. We try to contact not only Seth, who is doing great work with his team trying to get demand into the countries, but also we contacted through the Washingtons in, the embassies in Washington, every country, and nobody wants to take them. It's, it's so who is Seth that he's talking about? He's talking about this guy, Seth Berkeley. And who is Seth Berkeley? He's the CEO of Gavi. 
What is Gavi? Gavi is the Vaccine Alliance. So you would think that these are good people, right? You go, oh, Vaccine Alliance. What do they do? Well, they help vaccinate half the world's children against deadly and debilitating diseases. They sound like good people. They're going to help half the cut world. But what if you just heard what Jagoff from Moderna said, that guy who's the head of this, his job is trying to gin up demand for this guy's vaccine. So that's what's going on. That's that's you, you think they're all good people. No, they're all part of a cabal. They're all drug dealers trying to gin up demand. Hey, I don't know. Why don't you go distribute Kraken in the inner cities in Los Angeles? See if you guys could start a start some demand for it. So why do you think Moderna had to get rid of 30 million vaccines? Oh, maybe it's because of this. Young men's myocarditis risk five times higher with Moderna than with the Pfizer vax. I, you know, you know, Pfizer's new uh, new advertising campaign is we're five times safer than Moderna. (laughs) (laughs) There it is. But Canadian study finds that. So there it is. Young men's myocarditis risk five times higher with Moderna than versus. You want to hear? Here's the stats. Here's the goddamn stats. Cases of myocarditis or periocarditis were highest in men ages 18 to 24, reaching almost 300 cases per million. Is that a low number to you? If you were one of the 300, it wouldn't be. So after a second dose of Moderna, 300 people had myocarditis or pericarditis as compared to 59.2 cases per million from Pfizer. So you see that? So that's a lot less. So they're a lot, woof. I can't do math, but I think that's three times higher or four times. That's almost four times higher, 400% increase. Again, I'm not a math surgeon, so check me on these numbers. And that's from the JAMA network, which sounds like a great band. But it's not. JAMA stands for the Journal of American Medicine Association or something like that, I think. Something like that. Uh, I'll ask Suri if if anybody cares. Hey, Suri, (laughs) what does JAMA stand for? Okay. I found this on the web. The Journal of of American Medical. I was right. I I will check it out. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Okay. It worked. Uh, okay. Want to know something else? In this group of men, an eight-week interview interval or a longer lowered the second dose risk. So they figured that out after they gave out millions and millions and millions of doses of the vaccine. They then figured out, oh, we should have a longer interval in between. So when I got my vaccine from Moderna, they told me to wait four weeks. So I only waited four weeks. Now they find out you should actually wait eight weeks. Jimmy, you froze there. Did you say you got Moderna? Yes, I got the Moderna. Yeah. Um, and now, there's, thought- now, now they're saying that you should space them out eight weeks. Before they said four weeks. Now they just double it. Oh, apparently. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's all that real world data. I, I, I don't know. I was just going to say, like, it's... Uh, <laughs> we it. It seems like... So Moderna, not as safe as Pfizer. And I would argue 
you probably only know about one tenth of what's going on from those numbers. Yeah. Because from the number of sports stars and people on the well, there's fields, a tie study we didn't cover last week. The rates are alarming uh, with myocarditis from both vaccines. Uh, I see the article saying it's climate change, though, Tony. Which is it? This gene yeah, therapy that people uh, took, or not? So, uh, LD, do you have that tweet that I uh, got you banned for this week? Got you locked out because LD has a Grand Theft World. Uh, Twitter, it's my account, but he runs it and it auto retweets when I retweet. When I tweet something, it retweets it. And I said, I mean, uh, the, the tweet it was, was a band party. Well, it was somebody covering it. Uh, they were quoting Governor DeSantis and he said something about the vaccines. And then I quote tweeted that and said one, two, three things about the vaccine that are true, including that it's a gene therapy because it's in SEC Moderna filings. Like you can read that. Yeah. They're not in the vaccine business. Moderna is not in the vaccine business. They're in a gene therapy business, clearly. And they gave people a gene therapy that is producing myocarditis 400% more often than the Pfizer mRNA gene therapy. And LD's hurry. I'm looking, looking for through. it. But yeah, my, yeah, here it is. There we go. Is this it? So let's go. I think yeah, so. Yeah. No, I had, yeah, I posted a picture of it because I, at, Twitter afterwards because I think it was in the production chat, right? And, and uh, he's well, got it right there. I it. So, I, so it had the DeSantis tweet, and then it's like, you know, gave me some information warning and locked me out of the account. But let's go in. I want to dig into the three things I said because I want to prove that they are factual and actual. I am not misinforming people. And there's a difference between what the algorithm thinks is misinformation and what actual misinformation is. I would argue that the responsible sources that told you it was safe and effective, they're guilty of misinformation, but my tweet is not. Let's examine it and we can all click the links. We can put them in the chat. People, you know, it's all Caleb Duke University real world data. So misinformation, we just didn't have enough data. You know, don't worry. It's It's whatever they deem is or isn't misinformation in the moment. All right. So point one in that tweet was what, LD? Point one, mRNA was licensed to mode RNA by DARPA 2013 reference. Uh, right, you're going to click that press release. You're going to find out it's not on the Moderna webpage and Moderna yeah, webpage anymore. And I'm going to ask you to paste it, please, into the Wayback Machine so the audience can see what used to be there before Moderna hid it from the public, which I argue is crimes against humanity. I'll uh, I'll work on that in the background once we move on from this. Yeah. But yes, okay. Uh, and I then the find second the point was the SEC filing. The second point with mRNA is a gene therapy, not vaccine, according to Mode RNA 2020 SEC filings. References. Right. Well, Moderna is actually is Mode RNA. Yeah, so that's confused. Like that that point is actually I don't know if they got they didn't get you on this, but just uh, on my point, like we went through that filing the sec filing multiple times and there's this equivalence that happens between back so first in the beginning they say it's a gene therapy but then they make this equivalence that the gene therapy is a vaccine will be given to you by a syringe yes essentially and so they they make this false equivalence between it because they don't tell you what type what's the technology behind the vaccine they're just talking about the delivery systems from eggs aren't good enough according to rick from barda in that uh what was that? Uh, it was Michael the Milken, Milken Institute, Institute. in right. so yeah, Gene therapy. What's yeah. and that was SEC filing, and that's as recent as 2020. It's still in the recent Moderna filings. It's not oh, just yeah. 10 years ago, kids. It's in the recent filings. And what was the third point I made? Number three, the ingredients: C peg tromethamine. Yeah, they really don't like that. glycol. Yeah, because that's a legit source. Again, they don't want you pointing out ingredients oh. that are listed. <laughs> 
that might cause some question as to what is the material safety data sheet for that. The PG probably isn't Trauma. anything because there's that's I know used in paint, but there's also variations of it well, chemically that's the, used oftentimes the in the artificial colorings and flavoring. So like there is a consumable version of it that for the most part does not affect people dramatically. So you know you're not consuming paint. There's a it's a different compound or variation right. of that. And it's in this gets into organic the, chemistry. But but the, the trimethamine lipid, is problematic. Yeah, the, the lipid envelope is the polyethylene glycol. Yeah. Well, peg and tag, I think that were the two ingredients that were used across the vaccines. And we covered this two years ago that that mm -hmm. these are not things that safe and effective applies without asking questions and having studies and research. They didn't uh, have because it does travel throughout the body. They told you it doesn't travel out of your arm. And it's the peg that hypothetically was taking it into the the reproductive organs and then dropping it off to mess with your DNA. That was the biggest point. Right. Malone product is that it's a lipid nanoparticle that's a delivery package that's actually traversing the body and on top of that it's staying in the the bloodstream and circulating forever sometimes up to 60 days afterwards like it was supposed to disintegrate quickly but that's the pseudouridine that ryan cole talks about that's making it persist and not break down that's that's part of the g that's part of robert malone's research is like how do you make it persist and that was the problem he they found ways to make it persists long enough in the bloodstream so the mRNA can be converted to DNA and actually have an effect in, in their, your cells. It's really crazy. And I'd like to point out that original tweet, Rich, it's not shareable. You can, in the browser, click the URL and uh, <clears throat> copy and paste that, but let's see, I have it down here. You can only retweet it or quote tweet it and you can't like it. Mm. And I mm. guess, you wow. did you get a... Did yeah, I get... was locked. I mean, I was locked out, but I don't use Twitter that often. Did, so hey, can we, can we, well, can we show the thing in. where it says like where, what you have to do to get unbanned? Cause that's crazy. Um, I didn't have to. I, I have a have screenshot of it somewhere because both my Twitter account and the, the GTW Twitter account got it. Um, yeah, for, bring that up when you get a chance. Was, Cause yeah, that's crazy. They make you like apologize and yeah, take apologize. it down and Talk swear allegiance to the wokeness. <laughs> You acknowledge that you were wrong and that you apologize. They tell like Whitney Webb or Aaron and Melissa, they're like, you got to, you have to delete all your stuff off Patreon. We're not going to do it for you. Yeah. Patreon. You have to delete it off and then we'll maybe think about, you know, it's like, it's a bunch of woke bullshit. Yeah. Woke bullshit. It's psychological humiliation. It's part of the Yuri Bezmanov, you know, ideological subversion, but just on a localized individual scale. Uh, Let's see. There's Humiliate. a lot of stories in this section. Oh, yeah. So, all right, let's go to this Russell Brand clip mm-hmm. here because the next clip I wanted to cover was also Jimmy Dore. So, we don't want too many Jimmy. Yeah. We want to cover these stories. A lot of Russell these Brand. Also, the Je- Jeffrey Jackson report was condensed and good this week. So, we can feature him as well. As well. All right. This one coming from Rusty Rockets. It was all a scam. These are That's his headline. Russell Brand interviews Dr. Bob Gill about the true motives behind the pandemic response. Now, if you're talking about pandemic response, if you wanted to research that topic, go to Event 201, go to the SPARS pandemic, go to Crimson Contagion, go to any number of the exercises that they've had on these types of events, and then come in and look at how did they handle these events. Did they they respond to these events like people who had been trained? how to deal with these events because they had had numerous exercises or war games of these events. No, they really didn't, did they? 
they kind of were like deer in the headlights and they're all panicked, even though they had worked out to the nth degree. We're going to run out of PPE. Should we order some more? No, fuck it. Let's scare the shit out of people, right? Let's give them contradicting information. Let's tell them they need the PPE, but it's not available. And that'll make them even more scared. And then when they have enough PPE, just make everyone wear it all the time, even though they're touching their mask all the time. You're touching your face more with the mask than you are without it. I personally don't want my dirty hands near my pie hole, right? So I'm not, you know, I would rather wash my hands after dealing with something. Not to mention the gas exchange. There's unequal gas exchange. I don't hook up my air intake to my exhaust. That's another thing I'm not (laughs) fond of. There you go. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You You wouldn't do that to your lawn tractor. Why would you do it to yourself? There's always a, a race, like the risk reward. So like when I was cleaning out my old house and getting ready to be sold and there's a bunch of mold in the base and I'm cleaning out, yeah, I'm wearing a mask, you know, that's cool, classic, sure. but yeah. like, I'm not wearing a mask for the a virus that's, no. I forget the, the scale at which it exists, but it I'm still seeing people outside masks, like at the car wash, they're yeah. doing like their own car they got a mask on. I'm like, what kind of world are these people living in? I feel so bad for them, but I don't have time to stop and educate them because it's a deep problem and they didn't get into it because of education. Well, hypochondria okay. existed no, before and will exist after. So. Watching TV repeatedly puts you in a hypnotic state. It's a <laughs> hypnotic hypochondriatic so. state or something. If they like keep that. telling, if they keep showing you Tony Fauci saying two, three masks is better, like you're going to end up doing that because you don't have anything to compare it to. Rich. And then you're going to think rich. the people who don't three mask are danger to you somehow. When in the past, historically, you quarantine the sick, you don't quarantine the healthy. This is the first time in history that they were able to justify everybody. And they convinced all. everyone to and do it. And then they shipped COVID they people to the everyone nursing homes. To do it, man. And it wasn't murder. Yeah. Somehow that's, yeah. That up is down. Down is up. White is black. Black is white. Good is evil. Evil is good. And everything's inverted. All right. So let's go to, uh, or there's, yeah, there, there's a couple. Hey, real quick though, Rich, don't forget if Fauci had his way, he would have done yeah. 12 feet, three masks. You know, endless shots. If only he, he had didn't his lock way, us so. down. He wasn't in favor of lockdowns, but he would have locked us down harder. Locked, said. <laughs> lock me down harder. Lock. Oh, we'll get down. to the Fauci effect soon. Law. I don't. You know, I got nothing against the dude. It's the I got poor the people Psalm who just follow it blindly no, without the... seeing what the game being played over there is, and whether it's him saying you get AIDS from the cereal box, or it's him <laughs> telling you that you got to keep six feet away. Or all this nonsense, you know, they made all the stores and restaurants put up plexiglass right next to the cashier, but you go over to pay and there's no plexiglass. Like there's a bunch of just idiocracy run rampant and he never called it out. Yeah, he supported it. He, he inspired did. it. He loved it. Yeah, yeah. There's a tacit support. At times it was not tacit. He was very open about it. You know, he that man contradicted himself probably more than uh, any other figure in the and past he's the two years. the highest paid non-elected government, government official. There's more example of up is down and black is white. <laughs> right there. Amen. It's idiocracy. Let's go to Russell Brand and let's see what we can learn about uh, how they lied. If they lied. Did they lie? Let's find out. It's official. Private health care companies are scamming us in the US and the UK. As Hassan said, the function of government is to take public money and to put it in private hands. And it don't matter if your health suffers or the whole world's health suffers. This will blow your mind. 
Hello there, you 5.8 million Awakening Wonders. Thank you for joining me on this voyage towards discernment where the light within can be cultivated. If consciousness precedes matter, then the purpose of life is to gain insights. If material precedes consciousness, then the purpose of life is to acquire objects and possessions. Why don't you discuss in the comments below whether you believe in a materialistic or idealistic model for the foundation and formulation of reality. But while we're pondering such large questions and while you're clicking on that note, notification bell to ensure that the algorithm isn't conning us blind while you're subscribing to make sure we stand strong. Let's discuss healthcare. We've just been through a global pandemic where many of you, I know because I read your comments, that's why it's so important that you comment, have been questioning the integrity of the government agencies that regulate health. In the United Kingdom, the country where I'm from, did you notice my accent? We are in the process of handing over our national healthcare systems to American healthcare firms that have been not proven in court to be fraudulent, but highly suspected of being fraudulent due to the nature of the payouts out of court they've been making to avoid court proceedings. We're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about how pharmaceutical companies literally sent pole dancers to doctor's offices to recommend drugs that are not good for their patients. You will not believe the Farago. You will not believe the circus that your healthcare, whether you're from the UK or the United States, you will not believe the lack of ethics behind medicine. This conversation with Dr. Bob Gill, family physician, GP, doctor and practitioner turned activist, has given us insight from the inside of our healthcare system. Whether it's the pandemic and some of the ideas behind it and some of the bad ideas, mandates and lockdowns that it led to, or whether it's the corruption at the heart of our healthcare system that involves big pharma, big medicine and big fraud, you are going to learn a lot. Stay to the end because you are going to be even brighter and even more beautiful by the end of this. Privatisation is innately antithetical to healthcare. It's in, even in the word care is the suggestion that there should be a motivation beyond financial gain and profit. So what we're discussing really is a bill that's recently been passed in UK par Parliament. The new healthcare act in the UK will turn the NHS into an American style managed healthcare. Now I know that some of the uh, companies that are likely to purchase these new balkanised regions will be owned by, am I pronouncing it right, Centene I believe, or one of the organisations organisations that own one of the health insurance firms that are likely to end up running British healthcare. And I know that in America, I believe they're facing like a $1 billion bill for fraud exposure. So these healthcare firms that are going to be charged with running the UK's healthcare system in its increasingly privatised form have... Uh, the, the, the way that they behaved in the United States is less than ideal, am I right in saying, Bob? Well, you're putting it very mildly, Russell. Um... Centene is an American insurer. It is now the biggest provider of primary care in the UK. Wow, uh, already? Already. So it, it's not some threat of future takeover. It's happening right now. Uh, other companies like Health Corporation of America, um, United Health, they have been charged with fraud, but what normally happens is they settle out of court. They never plead guilty. They're never found guilty. It's a cost of doing business. So if you make... 10 billion in profit and you pay a fine of 1 billion, you're 9 billion, you know, to the benefit. So let me just check those facts. 10 minus 9. Right. Yep. That's good. Yeah, that's so, good. So that, that is the system. Paying out and getting caught in fraud and paying out of court is part of that model.
I see. So this is one of the further risks of a for-profit healthcare model. Of course, the narrative that we're continually sold in this country is that the public sector cannot handle it. And a badly run public sector is, of course, appalling. But that denies the possibility that you could have new democratic healthcare systems where nurses, doctors, porters and patients could collaboratively be responsible for the manner of their healthcare, the way that it's administrated and the way that it's controlled. It, could that ever be possible, Doctor? Well, it was possible. That's what we had before Margaret Thatcher came along at the end of the 70s. They set about doing this by stealth, in secrecy. The, the NHS was beautifully efficient. It had an overhead of around 4%. The American system, by overhead I mean administration, paying the CEOs, all the money being leached out of the system. In America, this is 36%. At the same time, we're told that the market can deliver efficiency. That is one of the biggest lies that has been successfully spun to pull the wool over our eyes. But the other important thing about private healthcare is it perverts the relationship between the doctor and the patient. So the doctor might start doing things that generate profit rather than that or in, in the interest of the patient. Doctor, I'm going to say that you've used the words pervert there. Now, what do you mean exactly that it's going to pervert it? Well, do you mean like a pervert? Well, I mean my duty should be no other consideration but what is in the interest of the patient in front of me? I shouldn't be considering, am I getting a kickback from a drug company? Will I get a bonus if I do more expensive operations, for example? How do you reckon that opioid crisis was facilitated? How do you reckon we ended up in a situation where addictive drugs were recommended to vulnerable people? Is it because of this kind of kickback, perverted system? And I'm going to use your word perverted there, Doc. I'm going to use it. Is it, is it, is it as a result of that? Absolutely. You've got a very docile FDA you have a company, Pardue Pharma, which spent money um, brainwashing and entertaining the doctors. They, in fact, they hired uh, pole dancers as drug reps to go and entice these doctors into prescribing OxyContin. This is the level of the corrupting influence of private interests within healthcare. Doctor, are you suggesting that there is something wrong with using pole dancers to uh, sell <laughs> OxyContin to vulnerable people? Well, uh, I would say, yes, absolutely there is, because these, these drugs were given the clean bill of health by the FDA because they, they swallowed the line from Pardue to say these were not addictive. But these are an opiate-like drug. So, you know, they had to do a very heavy brainwashing exercise to convince doctors to ignore their own judgment, ignore their own education, and start prescribing these de deadly drugs. Doc, during the global pandemic that we've just been through, although global pandemic is, of course, a tautology, we experienced unprecedented powers being granted to regulatory bodies, whether they were national or international, such as the WHO or some of their you know, agencies in the United States. Is there anything in the relationships between Big Pharma and these regulatory bodies that should make ordinary citizens concerned? And what's your opinion as a professional physician about the way that lockdowns were mandated and in particular the way that uh, vaccines were recommended and sometimes quite aggressively recommended? What, what are your views on that? Well, in, in the UK and in America, all the focus is on pharmaceutical uh, remedies to handle the pandemic. We ignored non-pharmaceutical remedies like improving people's health, taking basic steps like ventilating schools, for example. So all the solutions, funnily enough, had some profit angle to them. Mm. Um, so that's why both countries did very badly, but very expensively failed in their pandemic response. Uh, 
the way the regulatory bodies work, particularly in the US, is that drug companies fund the FDA. Now, if that doesn't create a conflict of interest, I don't know what does. And if you look at the research on which uh, clinical practice is based, this is sponsored by the drug companies. And they will only release favorable results. They will bury unfavorable results. And very often when new, new drugs are developed, they're compared to placebo rather than the best current treatment. So you're not getting a good comparison. Biased research, conflicts of interest, and a totally captured regulatory body. Well, when giving out-of-court settlements to prevent your reputation being rightly tainted becomes a business model, allegedly, then surely we have to ask questions. How can we be handing more and more power to these healthcare companies, to these unelected globalist bodies like the WHO? Why are we sleepwalking into this disaster? Why are we trusting them? Let me know in the comments below what we can do to unify, to unite, to become solid against these forces. All right, so we found out uh, UK, UK is getting some American companies to help it out with the healthcare plan over there. So it's an international deal, right? It's not just America that's going through this. This is a thing going on around the world. Pharma companies aren't just limited to United States. There's a small market, much bigger trend, markets yeah. out there than the United like States. Like Pfizer had a monopoly on on uh, the vaccine in Israel. Yeah, that was only Pfizer. Yeah. Like they had a whole country as a study case over there. That's right. I don't, I don't agree. There with are that, many countries but, that went with specific contracts. Like for example, um, Japan, they went with their biggest contract was Moderna. Now they had multiple vaccines, but their biggest one was Moderna. And they had a horrible fallout from that because of the contamination issue. Hence, I think they passed a law that you can't discriminate if you're unvaccinated in Japan because of that. So that's it's become a major. Of course, you don't hear about these things. Um, that's not because their epidemiologists have different responses across the world. But to than what we've had. Uh, so there's very different responses, even in regards to vaccine rollout. So to, yeah, to your point, I mean, Pfizer, you're right though, Israel only Pfizer. I don't think they had Janssen. Israel. <laughs> Johnson and Johnson. I don't think they had, um, I don't know, maybe they did, but their main contract was with Pfizer, I thought. LD, the next clip I'm going to go to is the KUSI clip. Uh, there was an unexpected 40% increase in all cause deaths in 2021. I'd like to see if that's a real thing and can we get to the bottom of it? I think it comes from like Good Morning San Diego is where this clip comes from. And uh, let's consider it and weigh it against Increase the other things we've heard cause thus far. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, koozie. Koozie news sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> U.S. life insurance companies have reported an overwhelming and unexplainable increase in all-cause deaths among 18 to 49-year-olds. Along with that, there's also been an increase in certain medical diagnoses, such as miscarriages and Bell's palsy. Here to give us her take on the new data and what she believes could be causing the rise in numbers is emergency medicine and disaster specialist, Dr. Kelly Victory. Dr. Victory, good morning. Great to talk to you as always. Good morning, Jason. Thanks for having me. Okay, we want to make sure that anytime we talk, we want to make sure the information that we have is accurate. So let's start this interview by telling us, I've, I've seen your correspondence here, what is the source of the information that you're about to present? Well, this information became uh, available to me or on my radar last week following a hearing with Senator Ron Johnson, uh, who was looking at sort of what he calls a second opinion on the entire response to the COVID pandemic. The medical data was released by three career military physicians 
who got the information from the military database that collects what we call ICD codes, which are the diagnosis codes. And these physicians had a feeling, they believed based on their own observation that they were seeing a significant uptick in certain conditions. So they actually went back and called the database from the military on certain conditions over a five year period from 2016 through 2020, uh, notably con you or, uh, containing one year, 2020, of the full-blown pandemic. So they looked at 2016, 17, 18, 19, and 20 at the prevalence of certain conditions, including things like heart attack, blood clots to the lung, miscarriages, those sorts of things. And they compared it to the incidence of those same things in the calendar year 2021 and saw an alarming increase in certain things. For example, they saw a 270% increase in myocardial infarction in 2021, a 300% increase in incidence of Bell's palsy and of certain neurologic complaints, uh, a 470% increase in pulmonary embolisms, blood clots to the lungs, and many, many other huge increases that they found alarming. Now, no one is saying with any certainty, Jason, what is causing this, but we certainly would be remiss as scientists if we didn't look at that and say, there is something going on. What happened in 2021 that was so different from the previous five-year average that would cause this massive increase in certain medical conditions? So the, 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 the source of the information is several U.S. life insurance companies that have been reporting this, correct? And these three career physicians that you referred to. Well, they're, yes, they are separate groups of data. Jason, the previous study from the U.S. life insurance companies, many of them were reporting a 40% increase in deaths from all causes in the 18 to 49 year old group. They know that because these are life insurance companies that provide group life insurance policies to employers. So these are working age individuals with a 40% increase in all cause deaths. That was a different report from this bombshell that came out last week from, as I said, three career military physicians who are calling a military database uh, so they are two groups of data that show, uh, again, an alarm that something is going on. And the question is what? What has changed in calendar year 2021 that is causing, number one, an increase in all-cause deaths, as reported by the life insurance companies, and an increase in certain medical conditions, such as heart attacks, blood clots to the lungs, um, uh, congenital malformations of children born that year, female infertility, uh, and those sorts of things. Uh, did these three career military physicians offer any type of speculation? They did not, and they but they did not do this anonymously. Uh, they signed an affidavit on this. Um, I have not seen the raw data. I'm not a military physician. I don't have access to that database, but I don't have any reason to believe at this juncture uh, that the data is in question. These are again based on ICD codes, and it should I should make it clear because it's very easy to make statistics of these sorts um, deceptive. Uh, so when I say that there's a 
300% increase, for example, in cancers is what they found. This wasn't an increase from one case to four cases. In the case of cancer, for example, it was an increase from an average, a five-year average of 38,000 cases per year to almost 120,000 cases in calendar year 2021. And actually, it wasn't even a full year. It was more like 11 months worth of data. Uh, and it was almost up to 120,000 cases of cancer. So the question is, what would cause that? Obviously, there's some conjecture uh, amongst it, people that it could be the COVID vaccines. That has yet to be proven. But again, we would be remiss if we said that we couldn't consider that. Maybe it's climate change. I don't know. But I sure as heck do know that we better be paying attention to it. Because real science, Jason, real science requires us to be intellectually curious. It requires us to ask the uncomfortable question and to look at data, even if that data makes us question previously held convictions. And so if we aren't able to look at this data, if we are silenced and shut down, and I can tell you, I posted a tweet about it yesterday after the data became clear to me that there was something going on. I simply posted as, wow, what's going on here? And the amount of vitriol that that single tweet generated was really quite stunning. The number of people who tweeted back that I should lose my medical license, that I should be kicked off Twitter, that I should be reported to the authorities is really alarming. The idea that people are so fearful of looking at actual data and asking the question, what is going on, is really a, a dangerous place for us. Um, do, you ex uh, do you expect this uh, to information to be presented to the C CDC? I certainly hope so. The CDC and the FDA should be all over this. That's their job. But instead, the idea that they are trying to silence people, the three military physicians who made it who released it have been termed whistleblowers in the past we just would have called them good doctors looking at patterns that's what doctors do that's what scientists are supposed to do look at patterns look at what seems unusual question those things bring them to the surface and do the deep dive analysis we have many many uh questions in in medicine that don't have answers we sure as heck shouldn't have answers that can't be questioned. And if the problem turns out to be these vaccines, and they certainly should be looking at it, that it is certainly one thing of perhaps many that changed in 2021 that could be responsible for some portion, if not all of these increases in various medical conditions. And it deserves to be fully exposed and to be examined very, very carefully. Okay. Dr. Kelly, victory. Appreciate it. Well, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks a, very much for having me, Jason. Have a great weekend. So that's just that's one story. Fascinating. I it's can't fascinating. believe it's sort of making it to the mainstream. We've been covering it for yeah. a long time now. And what she's referencing is what Thomas Renz um, brought to the forefront at the that when Ron Johnson held that COVID committee. Yeah, Renz um, is the lawyer, right? Yeah, he's a lawyer that those three whistleblowers, in fact, the only reason Ron Johnson allowed him to testify is because he had the whistleblower data. And I think she's referencing that the, those data that he had, and he showed the this uh, the massive increase in cancer. Um, 
uh, and the neurological diseases and a whole host of things. And that that's on the military side, um, which is troubling because now on the the civilian side, we have, you know, now obviously we're human beings are social creatures. You lock them down, you have depression, you have drug usage. We know there's a lot of factors, but one can't ever rule out what's happening because, you know, there's so many different reporting systems around the world. There's the yellow card system in, in um, the UK. There's the Europeans have very, each country has a different reporting system for vaccine injury. Obviously we have VAERS and a couple other systems in America. I was looking at one in Europe, mainland Europe, over 40,000 attributed to, uh, uh, the vaccine deaths that is, and that was with the five va- five vaccines they're looking at. Novavax was actually one of them. That's an attenuated viral vector. That's a traditional vaccine, just like uh, the J and J was. Just well, J and J is that's not it's a denovirus, it, so it's a different. Novavax no, is based okay. on like an egg based protein. Old, okay, old, old you're right, style. You're right, you're right, yeah, right. that's I yeah. think the Indian out of India, they were the ones who came up with that. And they've been a bunch of trouble with that one. So it's not just mRNA I'm hearing. Cinevax is similar too, and they've had trouble with that. That's the Chinese one. And there's a Russian one that's also, I think, the same. As is it because it has a cleavage site and spike protein and ACE2 receptors? Well, they've never been able to human make being. a vaccine for a respiratory virus using egg-based protein. So they can't send. So they've never been able to do it. Anyways, the point is what for the five vaccines, Novavax is one of them, as well as obviously Johnson and Johnson, AstraZeneca, BioNTech and Moderna. And that made up the five. And that's 40,000 sort of in mainland Europe, one of the reporting systems there. Yellow card has obviously been reporting very similar numbers. We have about over 30,000, but it basically stopped counting in bears. And that's, you know, that's being underreported by potentially 99%. I mean, that's a that's the Harvard Pilgrim study. It's a little bit exacerbated but or hyperbolized, but still, it's being severely underreported. LD, and, I'm looking to go to the uh, Iceland study. So I highlighted it. It's up on the show card list above where you just were. Reinfection rate higher for the vaccinated. This is the claim of the article. We're going to observe it and see if it fleshes out with the evidence offered. And uh, we can make decisions that are more informed than mainstream media would like you to do. Let's go to a comedian in his garage, Jimmy Dore. Hey, guess what? New study. New study. Breaking. A new Icelandic study shows COVID reinfection rates rise with the number of vaccine doses. What? (laughs) The study shows that for most age groups, those who have received two doses or more are more likely to become reinfected than those who have received no vaccination or one dose. Wow, Wow. says the doctor. She's a doctor. She's a doctor. She's a lawyer. She's a warrior. She's the founder of America's Frontline Doctors. Those are the people who buck the trend and risk their reputation to actually treat people with COVID instead of doing nothing, which is what the establishment was telling them. So here's the study she's referring to. JAMA. Again, sounds like a great band. It's not. That stands for the Journal of American Medicine Association stuff. And it's from JAMA, published in JAMA, not Pajama. The rate of SARS-CoV-2 reinfection during an Omicron wave in Iceland. Okay, and here's all the doctors that participated in it. And what's the interesting part for our show? Here's the part that's interesting for our show. Surprisingly, this is in the results. Surprisingly, two or more doses of vaccines were associated with a slightly higher probability of reinfection compared with one dose or less. A slightly higher probability of infection. This finding should be interpreted with caution. Because of limitations of our study, 
which include the inability to adjust for the complex relationships among prior infection, vaccine eligibility, and underlying conditions. I'm going to read that to you again. Surprisingly, two or more doses of vaccine were associated with a slightly higher probability of reinfection. This is comedy at this point. This week, we saw a quadruple vaccinated Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and the, what was it, the CEO of, of Pfizer, was it? Yes. Who, who both tested positive for COVID and, and Jill Biden, too. And Jill Biden and Joe Biden just getting over a second round after the Paxlovid. Uh, here's some more. I'm going to give you some more info from this article. This is it. I don't know how. It, I just want to make sure because YouTube will take my channel down if I don't give enough context. So I'm going to give you this. It says, importantly, by December 1st, 2021, all persons aged 12 years and older were eligible for two or more vaccine doses free of charge. 71.1% of the Icelandic population had been vaccinated, compared with only 25.5% of our cohort of previously infected persons. So I don't know what this means. I don't know what a cohort is. I don't know what they're doing comparing. I, I'm too dumb to figure that out. Uh, but I'm going to give you Cohort this. I'm going to read it to you because I need to give you context. Our results suggest that reinfection is more common than previously thought, A. And now the key question is whether infection with the Omicron variant will produce better protection against Omicron reinfection compared with other variants. That's what we need to find out. <laughs> but here's the important part. Surprisingly, and there, there it is from here. And there's the paper. There's JAMA. Um, is this a preprint or is this a, uh, so it's not, there's no site. To, I think this might be, this might not be peer reviewed yet. Isn't that when you put it in JAMA so then it gets peer reviewed? So I, I think it's maybe in the process right now of the uh, reviewing by the peers. Uh, anything you'd like to say about this, uh, Jackson? Yeah, I'm curious because you followed all of this much closer than I have. Obviously, no one's ever going to come to you and say that you were right about this stuff. You know, you're not going to have Jenk Huber saying that you're right about all this. But what do you think of? Oh, son of a gun. Jump desk. Within the medical community. <laughs> yes, you did. At some point, Jackson will <laughs> get his internet hooked up. I, I empathize. I'm not hating on it. Man, we all he did. Did. he it does good Starlink. Report. Could be the Starlink. I don't know. Maybe he's in an know. RV. Maybe I, Jimmy's been having a lot of internet trouble on his end, so let's just assume it's his cable company's a bunch of people who don't agree with him. Um, the next clip I wanted to go to is Kim Iverson, uh, pandemic authoritarian. Wait for it, Doctor Leanna Wen is warning people not to act like she did because she was very authoritarian. She was right up there with Chomsky. And a bunch of other people be, being like, uh, let them starve to death. Don't feed them if they don't want to take the experimental injection with a gene therapy that apparently wasn't as safe or effective as every one of their mouthpieces told you over and over and over and over again. So never forget that. It's a real lesson in history the past two years, especially for those of us in the control group. You know, congratulations. If you don't have a vaccine in your body from this COVID pandemic, you've resisted a trillion dollars in advertising. Good for you. Make your own informed decision. Listen to your doctor, all that good stuff. But given that we're seeing more and more news stories about unexpected health consequences, 
what have we all been doing for the past two years? What could be the cause that would have such widespread across many countries excess mortality that they weren't inspecting? I'm begging the question. Begging the yeah, people I mean, that's, for themselves. That's the thing. Like, one obviously cannot rule out at all that an experimental gene therapy that was rolled out and, and mandated. Can't rule um, that out. And you can't, can't rule, rule out. out the, you can't the rule thing. out, though. At the same time, for the skeptic people push back. Yes, been we are social creatures. Could have been the thing came from the lab that well, they also just, worked on. Same group you, people. Well, how about when you lock down people? Depression, well, anxiety, suicide, hopelessness, um, obesity, their health. Tony, lack of a uh, lack of healthy, like getting outside and being around for like we're social creatures. There have been many massive epidemiological studies showing that even people who drink and smoke and engage in the, you know deleterious Do you think fresh effects air their is body. Important, Tony. If they engage with people, they tend to live longer and happier lives. So I'm just noticing there's a lot of variables here, including the vaccine, which is an important variable as well. So I'm about to open a can of whoop ass. Do you think the fresh air is important? <laughs> no, no, we don't need air at all. You know, that's all. Ch- changing of the air, like in your exchange room, of air, you right? know, we like, carbon dioxide and then plants eat that up. No one needs this like exchange, this interconnectedness of the environment. Everyone's no behind masks that. and plastic. And keeping everything locked down and, and shut. I was reviewing a book in the past week that I read mm. a long time ago. It's a big book. You don't ever read all of every one of these books, but I remember reading through this book. This is years ago. And let me put the book cam on here. It's got this guy on the front. Now, this is a good way to start out, right? So you got this man almost in a cross configuration standing above the earth. For Truvian right? man kind of isk. Not can really. You, but, can you yeah. guess? Can you guess what book this is? Is it, are you thinking it's a religious book? Is it a science book? Like what kind of book do you think it is with this cover? Definitely has religious overtones. Okay. That's interesting because it's called The Science of Life by H.G. Wells and Julian Huxley. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Right. That's an interesting piece. But there is a person, there's a part in here now that we're talking about uh, the need for fresh air. Let me see. There is a whole section in here on fresh air cortex at work a lot of stuff on the mind human maybe behavior, he gets it in his time machine you know self-conduct those future worlds probably, don't have fresh air he has to go back sort of like matrix style right scorch the atmosphere see. is it right here fresh air oh here it is it <laughs> is what is stuffy air let me pull my mic over because i, I want to make sure is I'm this clearly, a metaphor dude i'm gonna I'm joseph campbell style it's a All metaphor right, so, so uh co-author of this book Julian Huxley, he came up with the transhumanism idea. We'll talk about that later. But he and H.G. Wells and uh, whoever else was a third author author on this that had to do all the editing, uh, they had a lot of interesting things to say, like the air of a stuffy room. If you were looking at the importance of fresh air and sunlight, and this is a thousand pages into this book. Now, before I can get to that page and show you what's on it, let's go back to the beginning. Okay. This book was printed in... Let's see, that's not the page. 1929. And the contents, I mean, it's actually a very good book to come up on, come up to speed on uh, history and ecology and these sort of things. The and harmony the general, and direction of the body machine. What? Oh, okay. Contents. Okay. Yeah. So the controlling system. The body is a machine. Sensation in the senses. Huxley and Wells are telling you the body is a machine. And then you can have harmony and direction in the body machine. There's chemical messengers, there's controlling systems, there's a nervous system. Okay, it's all pretty cool. And then you can get into the chief patterns of life, how, classifications of life, evidence from plant and animal structure, uh, the incon- inc- 
incontrovertible fact of evolution is what they call it in this book, right? Mm -hmm. These are guys that are like second generation eugenicists and evolutionary uh, type thinkers. The chief theories of evolution, can life arise spontaneously? Uh, what chromosomes are for, genes and their effects, mapping chromosomes. Remember, this is 1929. There's no digital anything yet. They don't know about the human genome DNA until like the 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, what determines sex? For Again, this is Julian Huxley, who ran UNESCO for the United Nations Education, and H.G. Wells, who was mentored by T.H. Huxley. What determines sex, reversal of sex, intersexes, variation of species with mutations um just to give you an idea what's in this book before we get to the fresh air part <laughs> the vindication natural of selection. darwinism natural yeah, selection yeah. yeah yeah look at this what, is there a purpose to evolution isolation as a species make yeah yeah by page six, 639 i'll remember that page but we have to go back to there's a couple <laughs> more pages of this so book five the history and adventures of life the scale of the universe the origin of life goes over here covering dinosaurs the modern era I mean, they, they, a lot of it's pretty he, innocuous since yeah, far sure. as the space data, you know, right, right. Like, so it, it'd be good to be familiar with these concepts in this book, uh, life in the sea, the various habitats, the science of ecology, which was a very oh, see, new that's, thing. That's a problem. Okay, so that's where we're the Arthur Tansley and, and here's where I'm getting to my point. Sorry. In the thousands, pages Field. 1000s, this is where we're going to read about fresh air. It's oh, life under control in. is I the see. topic. They right couldn't there. help themselves. They just section couldn't help. Six. They just could have left section six and every section after life that under out. control. And then they're going to mean the ecological outlook as part of having all of life under control. Then they talk about immunity, which has been, which has been debunked substantially ecology oh, theory. Oh, sure. Arthur when I, I played, yeah, Arthur, Arthur Tansley. Tansley. Yeah. Okay. So the use and abuse of vegetational systems, fresh air and sunlight, town air and country air, the air of a stuffy room, sunlight, as a tonic oh what didn't they they didn't want you going outside and getting fresh air and sunlight during it it's interesting how science has changed the control, control of, of epi epi yeah. epidemic diseases instinctive and intelligent behavior objective and subjective now mm. we're getting away from the uh the pandemic stuff what is the self that we can oh stop stop there's stop. no Port free will there's no free will in this book by the way and the book ends with life under control the present phase of human association so page 1476, like, oh, this is how at that time they were planning to control life, just like they've done 100 years later. You can see it now. And uh, so let's go to that page. Well, you 1, can see the behaviorism if you go back to the other side. But... And they had a whole like section that. on Pavlov, but Pavlov hadn't. All right. So uh, it talks a lot about carbon dioxide. Is that a problem these days? We've got to get one of these numbers to zero. Is that one of the things that they're talking about? Well, that's interesting because H.G. Wells says carbon dioxide is a problem too, but I think he's saying it in a different way. He says over here, um, with carbon dioxide, it is perfectly safe to bet that no significant change has occurred. Normally, point so a stuffy room. So he's saying carbon dioxide is not the reason that the air is stuffy in a room. Uh, normally 0.03% in the air is carbon dioxide in badly ventilated meeting places in schoolrooms. It may raise to uh, rise to 0.5% or in rare cases, 1%. But so accurately does our respiratory machinery respond to these changes that they barely affect the composition of the blood. 
So this Hence thing, why to, people can wear masks for the most part and not just pass. Sensitive and, people, yes, but most people don't. It, it debunks, it undermines the Bill Gates case that carbon dioxide is uh, a bad thing for human beings because we need it to the, grow plants. That Bill we Gates, eat. the Paul Ehrlich, you know, Obama's czar, climate czar, the whole going back to the 60s 1968 and the whole club of rome initiative and limits to growth in 1970 or 71 right. it's the same so sort they of contradict nonsense themselves. and then so the hockey stick oxygen. model in the late 90s that's where they came with the carbon dioxide and human beings bad 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 you know so neither carbon neither oxygen nor carbon dioxide can be made responsible for the stuffing stuffiness in the sitting room right and then mm -hmm. it talks about how the body exhales things through the skin and all sorts of other things and i thought skin's this a living funny, organ here's a funny graphic from the book before we move on the evolution of clothes, <laughs> tennis champions in 1908 versus 1928. I'm like, there, it's the same picture. I felt like I was in the office meme, like they're the same photo. Not the skirt shortened, I guess. And it's a little bit more shirt. It's head, probably a little bit more fluid. Band. It's more yeah, like it's a hard. flapper from the 20s style. Yeah. Right? Easier to move around. Tonic and some Because the person on the stuff. left, that's not athletic. You would not be able to make athletic moves and that's where we get anyway. up. But at least the person on the right could. Sunlight try. Vitamin D. Tonic. Vitamin Look at D. That. This is 1929. Yeah. And uh, this is what they were teaching people back then. The science of life. But wait, there's more. I wanted to also show you not just this book, because this book's interesting. Science of life. And it's, you know, it's a good. Yeah, it is actually interesting. Yeah. A lot of this stuff's not that outdated. Like if, mm -hmm. like if you're not going, if you want to go to college and learn like uh, biology or chemistry or any of these types of things, Read a book like this first, then yeah. then you have a baseline for what people knew in 1929. Then you just have to cover what's been learned. Well, since then, then they call it 101. So now you got your you know your first introductory 101 classes out of the way, so you can move into the right. You know, and the more specialized. Julian Huxley courses. was still a eugenicist and a whole bunch of other things. And H.G. Wells was a world federalist, a globalist. <clears throat> yeah, I'm Thomas show that Huxley. To you now Steve. in some because everyone talks about like. Um, Wells' 1939 book, New World Order, The New Machiavellis, The Open Conspiracy, The Shape of Things to Come. He wrote a whole bunch of books. War in the Air. Before they had airplanes in World War I, he wrote a book in 1908, The War in the Air, that kind of predicted that type of uh, machinations. I got two of his books here that I also had when I got this other book off the shelf. This is uh, The Outline of History by H.G. Wells. And it's a two-volume set. So this is the volume that has the whole thing in it. And it's like a 1,000 pages. So everything's in small print. Let me show you what that looks like. <clears throat> Being a plain history of life and mankind. So it kind of complements the other book because the other book's about science and life and uh, ecology. And this one's about human history and uh, these sort of things. So where was the page that I had marked? Over here, and you get chapter uh, 39 which is at page 1000, uh, the, the great war, the ideas of nationalism. There was no Balfour declaration in this one. And I thought that was interesting. Um, there's no mention of Rhodes. There's no mention of Rockefeller or Rothschild. And I know all these people were known to the author of this book at this time, but most importantly, he writes about the next stage in history. So it's not just defending the ideas of the empire at that time. Uh, the unification of men's wills, in political matters, how a, a federal world government may come about, uh, some fundamental characteristics of the modern world state, and what this world might be uh, if it were under one law and justice. Well, that's an interesting idea, right? It's, it's almost like this guy who wrote a book called New World Order was talking about something like a new world order, but 
that would be conspiratorial theory thousand to points talk of about light. stuff like that. Uh, don't forget, thousand someone points made of light comp- comes from H.G. Wells. And mm-hmm. then it was I referenced. That's, a, that's why that reference in um, Daddy H. W. Bush. Bush. Yeah, yeah, Daddy Bush, Herbert Walker. Um, 91, I think it was. 89 or 91 speech. Anyway. And, but um, someone in the comments mentioned Fabian Society as well. Um, oh, which sure. Is true. Yeah, yeah H.G. Wells. Socialist major, fa- socialist major Fabian. Um, the, okay, so uh, the best I don't reference know about the Mason that, because they said Mason too. I don't is, know about that one. Well, uh, well, let's leave the Mason one aside because yeah. I know Rhodes and Kipling that were, gets a little and bit I messy. don't know where the source for Wells's Freemasonic mm-hmm. antics mm-hmm. were. But the best source on Wells regarding the Fabian Society is two books where Rhodes expresses it. I'm not sorry, not Rhodes. H.G. Wells expresses it in his own words. The two books are called Experiment in Autobiography, Volume 1, Volume 2, by Herbert George Wells. And in there, he details how he worked with the Fabian Socialists and he sat in on the Cecil Rhodes Roundtable group. And it's a very, there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff in his experiment on autobiography. Oh, interesting. There is a, there it is right there on screen. This is fat. I didn't even know there's a Wikipedia. I love the internet sometimes. So experiment autobiography is an autobiographical work by H.G. Wells originally published in two volumes. He began to write it in 1932 and completed it in the summer of 1934. Experiment autobiography is divided into eight chapters, last two of which are more than a hundred pages long, which are divided in toto into, or excuse me, into 56 sections. Some sections are narrative while others go on to describe philosophical, political, so forth. Issues. All right, if we have time later, for those who stick Dive around to the end of the show, bit. I have those books in the other library room down here. I can go fetch them at some point and we can get into them, but I don't want to stray too far off the, uh, the path that we're laying out. I just want to say that. Hey, don't for, let's not forget ta- who were big Huxley. movers in the past precipitated down ideas that are still raining today on us. And people don't see it because they don't understand the contextual history of the eugenicists and the transhumanists who HG Wells and you and, and Julian Huxley, they're in that group. They're the ones who originated. And well, uh, Galton was Darwin's cousin. Yeah. T.H. Huxley was mentored H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells mentors the Huxley boys. And then Julian creates UNESCO. So you I can think, see an, an, well, a very strange lineage or continuity. George Orwell's in there because he gets mentored mm-hmm. by Aldous Huxley. So yep. there's a H.G. Yeah, Wells, open conspiracy influences the Huxley boys. Julian creates UNESCO. And this is Sen and I had a long dissertation back and forth many months ago about this, trying to like work out a timeline of like yeah, and by who's the Huxleys, involved. That's third generation. So yeah. Yeah. That's it's right. T-H- so like H.G. Wells, so H.G. Wells is mentored by their father, who then mentors the boys, essentially. No, he, uh, Leonard Huxley was Aldous and Julian's dad. TH was oh, I'm the, sorry, I the, grandfather. the grandfather. You're right. You're right. You're right. I'm right. sorry. I keep so that's what I'm saying. It's three generations yeah. down right. that they've carried on those ideas. You don't. Mm-hmm. And if you look at, did they stop? No, they didn't stop. They, after World War II, when eugenics got a bad name, they rebranded it as molecular biology, as uh, DNA genetics. And it was called they the... moved forward and they have everyone's support, including Tony Fauci and everyone in the 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 medical establishment, CDC, the FDA, Gavi, all those groups are precipitants of that progenitor transhumanistic eugenics group that used to sterilize people in America. 
Yeah, it's the new scientism that came in in the late 19th century. Look up the X Club for people who aren't familiar. That's really history blueprint. Yeah, I'll bring it up on the wiki as well because it's it's this is such a key component. And I got this from Will Durant. This is not a conspirator. Like, not getting this from some random. (laughs) Yeah, dining club. I got it on screen right here. Thomas Henry Huxley was a member. It's the Coefficients Club. Is that a different club? But the X Club. X dining club. Let's see. If I can get it, I'll switch it to browser. I have it up here. Attachment. Let's see. But, uh, Turn the browser back on. Oh, I got it. We got it. Yeah, it. it's coming. There it is. X Club is a dining club of nine men who supported the theories of natural selection. That's uh, evolution and the ac- and academic liberalism in late 19th century England. Thomas Henry Huxley was the initiator. He called the first meeting on 3 November 1864. The club met in London once a month, except in July, August, and September. I think Robert Spencer people, was in there, I think. Yeah, they probably uh, had George to make Bush. a trip to Bohemian Grove or something. Uh, its, benger, uh, its members were Busk, let's see, anyone, Thomas Henry Huxley, Herbert Spencer. Yeah, so people of the time in that social milieu. The nine men who would compose the X Club already knew each other. Uh, Don Tyndall, he's an important figure. Obviously, Herbert Spencer is a very important figure, but he's a socialist and empiricist. He's an interesting individual. Um, yeah, so these these provided the the science the the scientific um, basis, at least theoretical basis of the the new emerging scientism. And it's important because, like, they're not as Patrick Wood has pointed out. It's they're intimately connected with the idea of social engineering. Now, social um, uh, social studies was that was coined by or um, founded by Jeremy Bentham, right? Late 18th century, and he worked for the East India Company. But it was about social studies about social engineering, and so you can see sort of like a, a an ominous continuity from the late 18th up to the 19th century of taking it from pure theory into now instantiating into like biological processes really terrifying because you're taking out from pure abstraction just pure concepts and theory and putting it into the natural world and once you're able to do that you're able to seemingly effectuate change and 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 control people and systems and that's where you get uh, much of the early 20th century and behaviorism well flat flat earth is a that's young earth creation that's a new thing that's like 19th century 100 years downstream from their actions. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because around the time that the X Club was existing was this Zetetic movement or this idea oh, yeah, they, that they kind of coincided, didn't yeah, they? Yeah. There was a very the polarizing, extreme, extreme, like because there's the Young Earth Creationism movement that was pushing back against this gradual progress from um, simple life forms into more complex life forms and so forth and so on. So. That's yeah. People think that the flat Earth thing is old. It's not, by the way, people. That's a that's a new theory. It's a new incarnation. New incarnation. Yeah. Theory and research from the late 1800s around the same time as the X Club. It would be interesting to have that guy (laughs) at one of the X Club dining club meetings, right? Well, both are irrational. Zetetic, Zetetic basically means that you only take your initial perception as being reality. You don't question your your perceptions. You don't try to do experimentation. It's just whatever you see is real. And that's so it. So what, what about optical illusions? Uh they you know, that's real. That's how they it's whatever you see is real. It's it's the it's it's what they call it, you the, look the at technical, it for a while and the then you technic- figure it out. Do you, the te- do you get to keep the new thing or do you have to <laughs> hang on to the old thing? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I I, I totally agree. I mean te- the technical term is called my camera. 
naive realism naive realism which is uh yeah you, you take your initial reality, perceptions but you as haven't being, expected it yet yeah you're just taking your initial perceptions as being sacrosanct truth of what the actual reality is and not dealing with the facts that our perceptions obviously are mediated by our sensations and we have to sort of like deal with the contradictions that sometimes exist within there and and weed them out and that takes a lot of analysis and a lot of work yeah because there's contradictions on both sides mm-hmm. and there's a That's big, the point. big gap that has been artificially created and maintained that could be healed with learning and education and conversations but it seems like they want to keep those two groups from actually like being friends you know oh yeah well if they you keep make it me divided. a sales pitch and you say you have a better model than the globe i'm gonna look at that model i have I like the one I got. It works better for me. It's all in one because flat earth doesn't have one model. It has 10, right? Globe earth. I got one model. I understand how to get through my daily rigors and I'm all good. So I don't need to upgrade. Thank you for calling. <laughs> have my, a nice favorite, day. my favorite about the flat earth shit is how obnoxious and absurd it all is. Um, it's obviously one of the many epistemological well, cartoons, but it's the greatest conspiracy of all time because everyone has to be in on it. Yeah. But my favorite, the funniest thing when I get, when I just need to chuckle, like you have to watch some of the conferences because like there's no consensus on the, the shape of the earth. So some will say it's a disc, maybe with the firmament and the disc people will be more religious inspired, but some will be like, no, it's a diamond. Some will be like, it's a square. It's like, oh my God. None of them, by the way, uh, retort to science. Is it as, like when atheists and, and evidence. Christians disagree with Christians? Like atheists disagree with atheists, Sam Harris, Ayn Rand. Or Christians disagree. Yeah, they would Christians, totally disagree. Interestingly enough, Ayn Rand and Sam Harris, because Sam Harris is a positive positivist atheist, and Ayn Rand is not a positivist atheist. She's an objectivist atheist, and her atheism is at least logical. I may disagree with it, but it's reason you can reasonably argue for it. Whereas Sam Harris, we'll get to him later. Though. Whereas T. H. We'll get to him later. Invented agnosticism or agnosticism, which said I don't no have knowledge data to make a decision or- yet. Doesn't that mean against knowledge or no knowledge? A is the negation of gnosis or knowledge. We can talk about that after. <laughs> we can talk about that. After I'm talking about it. It's a little point. bit of a, a little bit of an you know that's etymology. Right. We're gonna have to get into the etymology. Yeah. All right. So um, I wanted to go that. to Kim yeah, Leanna Wen. Yes, yeah. please. Let's do it. Leanna Wen. Well, Dr. Lena Wen has drastically changed her tune. If you remember who she is, she was frequently on CNN. Uh, She called for the harshest measures during the pandemic, vaccine mandates, uh, banning travelers who are unvaccinated, masking children, lockdowns. She was one of the most, I would say, authoritarian, outspoken advocates for extreme measures during the pandemic. She has drastically, drastically changed her tune. Um, This is her latest tweet. Though CDC has aligned COVID guidance to meet where most Americans are, there are some who promote continued restrictions. Are they consistent themselves, always masking indoors, foregoing indoor events and dining? If not, hypocrisy fuels further distrust in public health. Uh, Okay, so now she's calling other people hypocrites, which is interesting. She was one of the biggest advocates who that really ended up forcing people into becoming hypocrites because the the mandates and the restrictions that she advocated for were so extreme. No normal human could live under those conditions. And so, of course, there was hypocrisy amongst our government officials. I'm not excusing it at all. Uh, My point is they shouldn't have been calling for those restrictions in the first place. They should have had a little bit of wisdom and maybe some um, foresight 
insight into realizing that they themselves wouldn't even be able to live under those. But she goes on. It gets it gets even better. Look at this. Everyone should choose the level of precaution appropriate to their family situation without judgment. I am concerned about those who advocate for broad restrictions for all publicly, but don't live those values in their personal lives. That hurts trust in public health. So what she's doing is she's at least couching it. She's saying, I am concerned about people who call for these broad measures, but then they themselves don't actually adhere to these measures. So maybe she's thinking she herself adhered to the measures, so it was okay for her to call for these extremely authoritarian mandates. Let me remind you of all of the crazy things, or at least some, I can't even say this, this is definitely not all. Let me remind you of some of the crazy things that Dr. Lena Wen said during the course of the pandemic. Here's this. I think we really need to make it clear that there are privileges associated with being an American, that if you wish to have these privileges, you need to get vaccinated. Travel and having the right to travel in our state, it's not a constitutional right as far as I'm as far as I know to um, to to, to, uh, to board a plane. And if you want to stay unvaccinated, that's your choice. But if you want to travel, you better go get that vaccine. If we can tell those individuals who otherwise would not get vaccinated, if we say to them, the moment of freedom for you is when you get vaccinated, when you reach the two week mark, these are people who otherwise might not be vaccinated. So let's give them that incentive. We need to start looking at the choice to remain unvaccinated the same as we look at driving while intoxicated. That you have the option to not get vaccinated if you want, but then you can't go out in public. Because when you go out in public, you have the potential of infecting other people with a potentially deadly disease. Just like you can choose to drink in private if you want. But if you get behind the wheel of a car and can endanger other people, there is an obligation by society to prevent you from doing that. So I, I think the what President Biden did today is exactly right to say that the vaccinated should not have to pay the price for the so-called choices of the unvaccinated anymore. Although to your point, Chris, I definitely um, wished that he had also announced some type of proof of vaccination because at this point we have this flimsy piece of paper that's so easy to counterfeit and I, I mean we don't allow this to board an airplane right you don't go to the TSA right. checkpoint and say I am who I say I am here's a piece of paper right. where I wrote my name I don't understand this personal choice that some people are making I mean what kind of choice is it to infect other people including other people's children and so I think parents should know that they need to do their best to protect their children by getting vaccinated themselves, as Dr. Walensky very well said. And I think we also have to keep in mind that indoor masking remains important for our young children. If they're not yet able to be vaccinated, they should still be wearing masks indoors, including in the classroom. We know that the vaccines protect you very well from getting infected, but they don't protect you 100%. Risk is additive. And so if you are around people, all of whom are vaccinated, there's no risk to you. But if you're around a lot of people who are unvaccinated, vaccinated and there is a lot of community spread in that area and very likely those people who are unvaccinated and unmasked are also engaging in high risk activities themselves then your risk increases for contracting COVID-19 and again possibly of being a carrier to others and so I think if you are living in an area with low rates of vaccination high community transmission especially of the Delta variant I would make sure to be wearing a mask indoors in crowded spaces. You recently wrote in a Washington Post piece uh, making the case that President Biden is right to fight Omicron with travel restrictions, but you say that more must be done. 
what more should be done? Should a vaccine requirement for domestic travel be something that the White House considers? Yes. There is a lot that's already uh, in the Biden winter strategy, but I think the right components are there, but not to the degree that they can be. So Omicron may have, or it looks like it does have additional mutations that could render the vaccines less effective. But all signs point to the vaccine still being somewhat effective. And the other thing, too, is getting a booster increases your antibody response, including against new variants that are developing. And so our best protection now against the variant would be to get the booster dose for those who haven't already, though we also can not forget about the other measures that have been in place as well, including indoor masking, which I believe that states and local jurisdictions and businesses that have let go of indoor mask mandates, they should bring it back as well as an additional step to protect against Omicron. We need to reset our expectations. Oh, this is where it gets good. So this is where she starts making some changes in her viewpoints, right? She starts, so you you heard everything. She's calling for all these mandates and calling for restrictions on unvaccinated. And now she's starting to change her tune. Here in the U.S., we need to recognize that we will be living with COVID-19 for the foreseeable future. But that doesn't mean that we need to be in a state of emergency around COVID-19. There is a way for us to live with it so that it doesn't have to be driving every single one of our decisions about school and work and travel and social activities. There actually is a harm that we should be discussing of children continuing to mask. That doesn't mean that masking doesn't have its place for children when there are very high rates of hospitalization. If we get a new variant in the future that children are particularly susceptible to, we may want to bring masks back. But we should also be intellectually honest and say that masking has had a cost, especially for the youngest learners, uh, people with English as a second language, children with learning disabilities. There has been a cost to them. So the risk benefit calculation has really changed. Yeah, the risk benefit calculation has changed. She says now in hindsight, after we get all of this data, many of us saying from the beginning, it was common sense that this would have this sort of impact. It was common sense that people would not be able to live under these restrictions for longer than two weeks. The two weeks that they promised that turned into two years. Dr. Lena Wen was one of those people that was advocating for restrictions against the unvaccinated, for children to be masked, and for all of us to lock down. And now she has changed her tune. And I'm not, you know, hey, listen, more people that change their tune, the better. We need more people to change their tune. So I at least will applaud her for changing and now getting on board with uh, with reality and with science, quite frankly. But just, you know, a reminder on this tweet when she says everyone should choose the level of precaution appropriate to their family situation without judgment, something that she did not do. I am concerned about those who advocate for broad restrictions for all publicly, but don't live those values in their personal lives. That hurts trust in public health. The trust, Dr. Lena Wen, is already gone. And unfortunately, you helped to create that division between those of us who just did follow public health advice, thinking that the scientists were behind it, that the doctors were behind it, and that they truly had our best interests in mind. We believed a lot of that. We had a lot of faith in that. And it was unfortunately you, Dr. Lena Wen, who helped erode that trust. Now, she does address this. Someone asked her, I worry about your hypocrisy, calling for science and health-based restrictions, especially for the immunocompromised, and then unable to be unvaccinated children until your family got COVID, and then you decided you were done, and those still vulnerable didn't matter to you. Now, this person, of course, is speaking from a position of, you know, now you're being a hypocrite. I'm, you know, we're still vulnerable, and oh, you're fine, and so now you're saying it's okay. So that person's coming from that. 
angle, which is not the angle I would have taken, right? But she did respond to it, and that's what I really want to show you. Here's her response. Actually, my turning point was around December 2021 with the arrival of Omicron and the recognition that COVID is going to be here with us. I spoke about this multiple times, including recently at Aspen Ideas. So she's saying, no, it wasn't because I got the virus and now I'm fine. I don't believe that, by the way. I do think that part of her turning point was getting the virus herself. And I think that's happened for a lot of people. I think fear really drove this pandemic. People were operating from a base of fear and fear is never a good place to be making decisions from. Pretty much every single atrocious thing that's ever happened in the world stemmed from fear. Somebody was afraid of another group of people or something happening and they then took action. And a lot of times that action turned to be very authoritarian, uh, very at times violent in, in situations of like war or trying to eradicate groups of people that you're afraid of. You know, fear is never a good place to make decisions from. And I do believe that a lot of people were extremely afraid of the virus, even when they had no logical scientific reason to be younger, healthy people, thin. They did not have high rates of they weren't obese. They weren't diabetic. They weren't uh, they weren't hypertensive. They, they didn't have asthma. They didn't have some sort of lung disease. And yet they were still extremely afraid. But it was only when they got covid and they saw that it was like a cold, you know, for many, it was kind of in between a cold and a flu worse than a cold, not as bad as the flu. And when they got through it, they thought, oh, okay, well, uh, you know, I guess there was really, I've, I've been there, done that. It's, I, I'm not that afraid anymore. It's like jumping into a swimming pool, I guess, for the first time. And I do think that that helped mitigate the fear for a lot of people. And then they started saying, okay, live and let live. But it just took them, them they themselves getting the virus. So I actually agree with the guy criticizing her that it was probably had to do more with her getting the virus and her children getting the virus and her saying that they survived just fine. Um, so now she's changed her tune. Again, happy she's happy she is. We need more people out there, especially on outlets like CNN. She was brainwashing people for a year and a half, telling them uh, for two years, you know, stay inside, fear the unvaccinated, those terrible, despicable, selfish people. And now she's giving them a different message. And maybe those people, many of us have them in our family. Maybe many of us lost friends and family members during the pandemic. And maybe those people will have some sense talked into them now that the people they revered are now changing their tune they won't have an excuse but to change theirs as well. Uh, before we move on here, uh, or before we end it here, I do want to show you Alex, uh, I mean, Albert uh, Borla, the CEO of Pfizer. He has tested positive for COVID. He says, I would like to let you know that I have tested positive for COVID-19. I'm thankful to have received four doses of the Pfizer vaccine, and I'm feeling well while experiencing very mild symptoms. I'm isolated and have started a course of Paxlovid. So he's taken four doses of Pfizer's vaccine, and he still feels that he needs to take Paxlovid. That right there shows you when they say, once you get the vaccine, you are safe. And first they said you won't spread it. Now, Pfizer never really actually said that specifically, but that was the common thinking in the mainstream media and amongst most people, right? They thought, well, if you got the vaccine, then you won't spread it. So everybody needs to get it. And then it morphed into, well, okay, it doesn't stop transmission, but if you get it, you won't get sick and you won't miss days from work. And so that is really important. And then, of course, they saw that even the vaccinated were missing days from work, felt miserable. They felt sick like they had the flu. And then it morphed into this, well, you won't die. Well, if that's the case, if you truly believe that, 
which now you're, you know, you're striking out here. So if you really believe that, then you wouldn't really feel the need to take the Paxlovid round. But the fact that now Anthony Fauci, Joe Biden, Albert Burla, these guys are all taking Paxlovid means they don't actually trust the vaccine. Bottom line, they have already eroded trust. Talk about eroding public trust in, the, in public health officials. The fact that these guys are saying two doses to stop the spread. You know, two weeks to stop the spread, two doses to stop the spread, three doses to stop the spread, four doses so you don't die, four doses plus Paxlovid, and maybe another one just to because you ended up with the rebound case. That has eroded the 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 trust that the public once had in in health officials and in the scientific community. That right there was the thing when they asserted without questioning that that was the way it was. And if you questioned, you were an anti-science, anti-vaxxer, crazy looney tune. They owe us all an apology. But of course, you know, are we going to get it? I don't know. At least they're starting to change their tune and they're and they're starting to expose their own their own just. Yeah, I'm just so frustrated by this whole thing, but they're exposing their own hypocrisy or their own just their own fears. And then they called others who were afraid anti-vaxxers. Now, uh, Albert Burla goes on to say, uh, okay, he goes on to say here, we have come so far in our efforts to battle this disease that I am confident I will have a speedy recovery. I am incredibly grateful for the tireless efforts of my Pfizer colleagues who worked to make vaccines and treatments available for me and people around the world. And Paxlovid is not approved, but is authorized for emergency use by the FDA to treat mild to moderate COVID-19 and high-risk patients 12 plus weighing at least 40 kilograms with possible with positive results of SARS-CoV-2 viral testing, see safety info. Right, except it wasn't yeah, uh, in the testing, and Albert <laughs> Borla knows this, Paxlovid is his product. They only tested it on unvaccinated, no high-risk individuals, not vaccinated, and that is maybe Let's one of the reasons why we're seeing such high, high rebound cases. And maybe Albert Borla will be another rebound case of mm. Paxlovid. So you have to take four doses of this vaccine five doses coming up in the fall uh, and a, a round of Paxlovid and potentially another round of Paxlovid to defeat a virus that most, the vast majority of people survive. Now I get it, Albert Burla, Fauci, Biden, they're all in a high risk age group. Uh, Fauci and Biden for sure in a very high risk age group. So I actually don't really, I don't blame people for trying anything and everything. Uh, so I'm not saying to them, you know, risk it, you know, you, you although, they were the ones that pushed it on everybody and even called for mandating and even called to ruin people's lives. They lost their jobs. Kids are not being educated. Uh, you know, so you, you, you do kind of want to say to them, if you had all this trust in this to the point where you were, you were willing to ruin everybody else's life, then maybe you should just put your eggs, all of your eggs in that basket. And you, you need to just roll with it and see what happens. And because that's that's the claim you made. You know, I mean. But I, I really don't blame people for wanting, for wanting to take anything and everything to help them survive, especially if they are in these high-risk age in these high-risk groups, which includes higher ages and having certain illnesses. Now, most a lot of people are sitting there thinking that they're immunocompromised or they're high-risk, and they're really not, because unfortunately, another way our public health officials have failed us is that they have not fully educated the public on what is truly a high-risk category for COVID-19. They have failed on that front. And now you've got reasonably healthy young people 
who maybe they've got a little thing here or there. You know, everybody's got a medical illness of some kind or a medical ailment of some kind. And uh, and they're thinking, well, I'm high risk now. And that is not necessarily true in many cases. In most cases, in fact, it's not true. Most people survive COVID just fine. Um, so there you have it. I guess the, the tune is changing. The tide is changing. And hopefully more of these people will wake up from the days that they were in, from the fear that caused them to be in it. And hopefully they will start uh, recognizing the error of their ways in the past and start changing their tune. But we shouldn't really fully let them get away with it because otherwise they'll just march forward and they'll do it again to us in the future. They need to be held accountable to some degree so that they're not the prominent voices the next time around. That needs to happen. Thanks, guys, so much for joining me. Thanks for watching The Kim Iverson Show. You can like, share, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And join me in my Locals community. That link is down below. I'll be doing a live stream today, a casual live stream. I take your questions and answers. Was that an outstanding report by Kim Iverson? She's doing well on her own. She's got better lighting microphone and background than she had over there at the hill and she's doing harder hitting stories oh it's I think way she better feels more unfettered like there's not people looking over her shoulder to be like you're going to make us look bad by saying the truth <clears throat> there's a lot in that report so first off i want to point out if you're a listener of this show and you've been a listener for the past couple of years you remember when we covered the pfizer quarterly report and we showed you their slideshow where they said they're going to make it up to six doses because they're like hey we're making money what if we had people get more doses and that was in February 2020, I think, probably yeah. that we uh, did that show. The other part is I wasn't even part of that. But yeah, I remember. I remember she's that. saying about like they haven't issued. They haven't apologized yet because they did this stuff. I'm not looking for an apology from any of those people. Walensky or Lena Wen or Fauci. I'm not looking or hoping or expecting an apology anytime soon at all. Not looking for it. Not expecting it. Because what I realize is. Those folks and the media cohort that repeated and parroted their lines over and over and over and over, and over they have lied thousands of times to the public in the past couple of years, uniformly. You, FBI, like all those intelligence directors saying it didn't come from the lab, they're the same people that said Russia, 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 Russia. And they're the same people raiding Mar-a-Lago against the guy who would have been elected had they not suppressed Hunter Biden's laptop. And we will get to Sam Harris later. But right now, I'm ranting on thousands of of thousands of lies that they told the public. But it's real quick, Rich. Were these side. inconsequential lies? Let me let me just get it yeah, out. Yeah, no, you're good. You're good. These were not inconsequential lies. They were at the time of the biggest fear and panic in human being lives all around 208 countries at once. They denied people the death time with their loved ones. You want to see your grandma pass the hospital? Sorry, you can't come in. COVID protocol, and then you're not vaccinated. Sorry, you can't come in. You want to have access to your child who just got hurt? Sorry, hospital won't let you in. You want to be there for the birth of your, your son or daughter? Sorry, hospital won't, won't let you in. Because they got all these protocols from the people who are unquestionable religious figures who, if you talk about them on social media, you will be terminated. You will be demonetized. You'll be deplatformed. You will be persona non grata. They will run a thousand stories against you. And we'll see, we'll see an example of that later tonight. The hit pieces they run on people in a sequential order uh, right after they resist. It's a form of retaliation. I think more people should figure that out. You know, and Lena Wen, she was saying, let's retaliate against these unvaccinated people for not stepping in line with the marketing campaign and for thinking for themselves or having concern over the management of their own immune system for the rest of their lives, knowing that these companies are not going to be responsible for what they fuck they put in your body through those syringes.
So it's a brilliant a display of parhesia. Um, you're they in broke the trust. There. Yeah, they broke trust. So there's the only, and I didn't mean to cut you. Wanted to cut you off there. Wanted to bring in one thing because everything you said is absolutely true. But there's there's one thing I want to highlight that's really important. You did bring this up, is that it's not just that they're lying, but they're actually shutting down free speech. And I mean, this was, I know it began in 2016 with the election. It mm. ramped up with Russiagate, but this is unprecedented. With 2020 and the beginning of the pandemic in March with the lockdowns, to, to see sort of a blanket. It's the most criminal time in history to do it. Yeah, it really is. That I, obviously I've been, I've been alive. And to, to take down uniformly free speech, uh, dissenting opinions, the Great Barrington Declaration of actual science, of actual epidemiology. I mean, it's well, just, you saw we haven't the, seen we quite that. We saw the where they said, write the a hit piece on these guys. Sure. Yeah. No, you're you don't right. have to yeah, do that. That was Fauci and his crew. Exactly. So they had to tear down speech. They had to take down free. And that that's to me is the key. Like, it's one thing just to lie endlessly. But it's another thing not allow people to call out the lies. That's me. They're very desperate at that point, in my opinion. Of course, you can look at Event 201 and you have major media moguls. You have, you know, the hotel industry for some reason. You have intelligence and uh, organizations and you have um, obviously the vaccine uh, alliance and the vaccine uh, manufacturers. It's weird. Like it's like, and they're talking about making sure they control the access to global information. They they have to control the narrative. Now they it's what the world they Economic struggled Forum with said that last be- week. Klaus says they yeah. got to use AI to crack down on free speech because they can't get human beings to do it. Now and we're going to appeal to AI. Who was the guy, the Fabian socialist, that said you need to justify? You should go before council to justify your existence. Shawl uh, or something? No, uh, Russell. Uh, was it Russell himself? No, it wasn't I don't Russell. think it was, it was Russell. Uh, it was, it was a very the Irish guy. The Fabian Socialist. Yeah. I'll find oh, him. It's not Bernard Shaw, is it? Bernard Shaw. There you go. It is Bernard Shaw. Okay. Yeah, George Bernard George Shaw. George Bernard Shaw, right? But now instead of going in front of a committee of he humans, they want you to go in front of a committee of AI sentient. He was big into AI. sterilization. You should mm. read some of George Bernard Shaw's thoughts oh, that on dude's you. crazy. Because yeah. that's who he's talking about, the audience of this podcast. Uh, you here's know, the, a, here's that a little, type of person. Yeah, Dublin, Ireland, Portobello, George Bernard Shaw, uh, 1856, 19th, almost 100 years. Known for his insistence simply as Bernard Shaw was an Irish playwright, critic, and polemicist and political activist. And so he wrote a number of plays, and he was a Fabian, born in Dublin. Let's see, following a political awakening, he joined the gradual, Gradualist Fabian Society and became its most prominent pamphleteer. Shaw had been writing plays for years before his public success, Arms and the Man, in 1894. And it gets into more stuff there. But So social reconstruction, eugenics. Oh, wait here. Shaw's expressed views were often contentious. He promoted eugenics and alphabet reform. Don't know what that is. And opposed, that's interesting, he opposed vaccination and organized religion. Um, See? So. Interesting cat. You should check him out. Not going to be taught to you on the evening news. Yeah, that's for sure. All right. So clips that we're going to go to next. I'm going to say, LD, let's play the one right below the Lena Wen clip. Let's see, uh, hit that Paul Joseph Watson story for two minutes and then go to Dell Bigtree in the Walensky, uh, the CDC news. Now, I'm going to say this. I'm going to preface this. This Paul Joseph Watson clip, I have not seen it, but I've seen the faces of some people who saw it while oh, they were watching it. Yeah. And I would advise we have to oh. put it in the time capsule. It needs to go in this week. It's going to go in. I'm telling you, it's going in right now. We're going to play yeah. this clip. Do not look at the screen if you are squeamish. If you're or sensitive. Images get stuck in your head. These sort of things. Like, I have read 
War is a Racket by Smedley Butler. In the back of that book, there's a whole bunch of disfigured people from World War One, half their face missing, these sort of things. If you have never looked at pictures from war or a battlefield, this medical picture that they're going to show you with this phenomenon with the monkeypox that's going around, you are not in danger. This is not your situation. It's not going to happen to you, but it is a news story that's out there indicative of that uh, public phenomenon that's developing right now. So we're going to go those. T- it's a quick story. It's, it's a brutal story, but it's two minutes. And then we'll go to Del Bigtree and um, we'll learn about the CDC's Walensky, who was unquestionable on social media. But now all of a sudden, all that advice was wrong and they got to reform the CDC. So we'll check those two things out. And again, uh, just close your eyes when Paul's talking and listen to the words. Maybe peek. They're calling it one of the most shocking monkeypox cases so far. 40-year-old German man's nose is literally rotting. After the man visited a doctor, he was initially told the spot on his nose was just sunburn. Yeah, that ain't it, chief. This is what his nose looks like now. Factor 50 wouldn't have done much to stop that, would it? The medical journal Infection reports that the man's nose started to turn black. He then developed pus-filled sores all over his body, which were particularly severe around his penis and mouth. The named man was then tested for monkeypox and given antivirals to combat the virus. While at the hospital, he was also tested for various sexually transmitted illnesses for the first time he told doctors, which revealed he also had undiagnosed syphilis and HIV. Lovely stuff. His syphilis had gone so long undetected that it spread to multiple organs. Meanwhile, tests confirmed that his HIV infection had developed into AIDS. Turns out the HIV had completely shut down his body's immune response, causing his nose to undergo necrosis, the death of body tissue. Given that 98% of monkeypox cases are amongst gay men, and the early major monkeypox outbreaks were traced back to a gay sauna in Spain, and a fetish festival in Belgium, did he at any point consider stopping having sex with gay men? Doesn't look like it. Earlier this week, we learned of the first ever dog to be infected with monkeypox. The dog caught the virus after, quote, sharing a bed with a gay couple in Paris and subsequently being found suffering from a, quote, anal ulceration. Just sharing a bed, eh? Okay, Jesus at first the Christ. WHO said summer festivals should be limited to stop the spread of monkeypox, but then immediately clarified this didn't apply to gay pride festivals, which should go full steam ahead. But hey, while we were all under de facto house arrest at the height of COVID, prevented from attending family funerals, prevented from traveling, working, Walking our dogs, hundreds of thousands of BLM protesters were given the green light to congregate in huge numbers in major cities. So don't expect to see many gay pride marches being cancelled in the near future. A lot of you are totally dedicated to the high wire. You watch no other news on the planet. But if you did happen to turn on your television sets this morning, there is only one story everyone is talking about. And so are we. It's this. This morning, a sweeping reorganization of the CDC is underway after the agency's director offered a stunning rebuke of its COVID response. The CDC is planning a major overhaul of how that agency operates. Big shakeup at the CDC, or at least that's what they say is going to happen here. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, quote, for 75 years, CDC and public health have been preparing for COVID-19. And in our big moment, our performance did not reliably meet expectations. My goal is a new public health action oriented culture at CDC that emphasizes accountability, collaboration, communication, 
and timeliness. Dr. Rochelle Walensky is now calling for fundamental change to restore the public's trust. We learned some hard lessons over the last three years, and as part of that, it's my responsibility, it's the agency's responsibility to learn from those lessons and do better. It wasn't that they acted uh, too sparingly. The problem was that they acted too quickly and not based on science. Well, it's a shocking story, not shocking to us here at The High Wire, because this is what we were telling you all along. The CDC is a disaster. They've got it dead wrong, and they've had it dead wrong the whole time. But really, when we look at this story, I suppose we could say, oh, great, they're finally admitting it. But they're admitting it for one reason. They don't want an investigation. They want to investigate themselves. This is essentially like buying a house that was just built and finding out that the doors don't open, that they get stuck in the jam, the windows are leaking water, the roof is blowing off, and every time there's rain, your walls are filling with water, and you've got mold everywhere, and now the same people that built that house said, wait a minute, we're going to fix it. I mean, what kind of shakeup is going to be when it's being driven by, you know, Rochelle Walensky, Tony Fauci, all of these other people that have created the very problem we find ourselves in the middle of. I mean, this is a joke. It's been a joke from the beginning, except that millions of people have died because of the mistakes made by these people. And I'm right there with Rand Paul. Don't think this is going to be a shakeup where all of a sudden they'll do what's right, which is actually listening to all the other scientists around the world, like the Jay Bhattacharyas and the uh, Peter McCullough's and Dr. Robert Malone's, who have had this right from the beginning. You want to shake it up? How about bringing in every doctor that called this exactly right from the very beginning instead of all the doctors? that got it wrong inside the CDC, the FDA, and the WHO. That's the only way we shake this up. That's the only way we make sure that we don't have our lives destroyed again by these same group of idiots. Rand Paul is right. They are not going to ultimately say, oh, you know, we made a mistake. We should have been more open to science from around the world and more open to looking, you know, to different universities for their opinions instead of our own. Instead, I assure you that this shakeup is going to try and figure out how they lock us down better. Mark my words out of this. What they'll say, the big mistake was they didn't act soon enough. They didn't act hard enough. They didn't bring in essentially martial law to make sure that nobody could move or breathe. That is not going to be the answer. And it'll go in direct defiance to what really all of this is on the back of, which is the new CDC guidelines that just came out last week. This is what they're now recommending to all of us. Those exposed to the virus are no longer required to quarantine. Can you believe this? If you're around people that are sick, don't worry about it. Go back to work, go back to school, forget about quarantining at home. Unvaccinated people now have the same guidance as vaccinated people. Oh, wow. Finally, they're admitting, I suppose, that being unvaccinated and having caught the virus is the same as having had the vaccine. Although it's not. The unvaccinated have much better immunity. Students can stay in class after being exposed to the virus. So we're not really worried about schools. We're not worried about teachers, any of that. Go back to business as usual. Forget that there's a virus out there. And it's no longer recommended to screen those without symptoms. We're giving up on the entire fear-driven basis of the asymptomatic carrier being the greatest threat to the world. You know, this is, I suppose, comes with some sort of bittersweet feeling for me. In one hand, we have been right from the very beginning. This is exactly what we said on the highway from the beginning. It's what, you know, the great Barrington Declaration declared that you will not be able to stop this virus, that locking
this down will cause far more harm. And by the way, don't be under some impression that the reason they're relaxing all of the COVID guidelines is because COVID has gone away. Because if you go to the CDC website and it pops up on my Facebook all the time, no, I want to see the graph that talks about how many, how much, and there we go. Here's the infection rate in this country. 80.2% of counties in the United States of America are still at a medium to high transmission level. So they didn't wipe it out. They didn't get rid of this virus. They didn't end this pandemic. They're doing what I was telling you from the beginning, which is essentially just saying you're just going to have to learn to live with it. And to understand these guidelines and how they got it wrong, let's go to the new health czar for the United States of America. Listen to this genius. CDC guidance uh, sort of relaxes a lot of the restrictions we've had, uh, tells us that there's a really new way of thinking about who is going to get infected. We used to spend a lot of time talking about six feet of distance, 15 uh, minutes of being together. You know, we realize that's actually not the right way to think about this. That's not the, the kind of the most accurate way to think about this. Absolutely unbelievable. Here's where we're at, folks. It's where we're always at. It's not like they were going on the science that existed. They changed science as we know it. From the dawn of man, we knew that natural infection was how all viruses stop. That ultimately people, especially with an illness that had a very low death rate, you're going to have to let the healthy people catch it so that we could eradicate the disease through what was called natural health, uh, natural immunity. Well, we have destroyed that with the vaccination program. Now the vaccinator catches this virus over and over and over again. I think they're on booster four, five, six, whatever it is, it's not working. But this is the issue. And though we have been attacked in the news mercilessly, I can't tell you what it's like to have to watch the CDC saying we made a mistake after all they've been trying to do is censor us. All that they did was shut down all of the great doctors and the conversations around the world. All they did was deny us the life-saving treatments that were available, that were being used by doctors and having massive success. They didn't support them, they took those tools out of their hands. It's an absolute disaster. It's a debacle. It's a disgrace. And perhaps it's all about politics, which is all that this show is about today. But I'll tell you what, when I look at the new guidelines, I want to send them to the New York Times, the Washington Post and Media Matters, all those articles that were written about me and say, you know what? Sure sounds like they're saying it's time to catch this cold, which is what I said in the beginning. It's a common cold for 99.74% of us, the non-pharmaceutical dependent people. So here's what we do. Let's go outside. Let's take off our mask. We're not on drugs and we don't need to be on drugs. Let's catch this cold. Boy, I can't tell you how much heat I caught for saying that. It's the quote that will follow me the rest of my life, and now I'm happy about it because that's the new CDC guidelines. Stop standing six feet apart. Stop worrying about how many people in the room. If you've been around infected people, don't worry about it. Go back to work. Go back to school. You know why? Because there's no stopping this. You can't hide from a virus. Creating a war on a virus is much like creating a war on terror. Right, Tony? It creates never end, so it create, puts uh, selective pressure on mutant escapes. You have never ending infection, just like you have never ending terrorism. Once you declare a war on terrorism, just like when Nixon declared a war on drugs, you have a never ending drug yeah, war. When's it end? Hmm. When's it end? When's yeah. it end? What does success look like in that war? That's what people should ask. Because for them, like uh, on the war on carbon, you got to get one of these things to yeah. zero, right? The war yeah. on COVID, they were just trying to like, lock everyone down, enforce social distancing, make businesses 
like put up all this plastic everywhere. There was an it's, economic war, and then they now they're cl- pivoting to climate change. That's and, what's and the companies and the people that were at Event Two Hundred One, the groups represented at that table, did they suffer or prosper under the pandemic? And is that different than mo- what happened to most people? I've heard projections that the greatest wealth transfer in history since the time of the pharaohs has just occurred over the past two years. This is why this podcast is called Grand Theft World. It's not Grand Theft Auto, kids. They're not stealing cars. They're stealing your whole fucking planet. They're stealing your future. And if you don't get your heads out of your asses, you can you can hope older people like, you know, the older generations, they're retired. They're they're all set. They're just hoping Social Security doesn't break. They hope that their air conditioning stays on. They're hoping food keeps going to their grocery stores and they hope people burn their shit down. But they're not coming to the truth field. They're not coming out here to make videos, to try to show you what happened, that they're not telling you in mainstream media so you can have comparison and contrast because that's what the human brain needs to make decisions, to make judgments, to make choices, to have free will and to experience free dumb. Okay? Right now, we live in a country where dumb is free because public school system will, will teach you all that, right? When I talk about the school system as indoctrination, here's what I don't mean. Reading, writing, arithmetic, that's not indoctrination. Those are the basic skills of life. The indoctrination comes in the social studies, the absence of teaching civics and civic responsibility and self-reliance or the extracurriculars that would make you a, a mobile uh, human being. Or even who, history class because it's been so decontextualized. Who can meet like their needs yeah. without uh, you know, throwing violence on other people? Right. But we right. live in a world where the five countries on the Security Council are pretty much the five biggest drug dealers in the world. Drug dealers and arms dealers. Drug dealers, dealers and arms dealers. And, and ironically, probably Human also traffickers child too. traffickers. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So that's what that's Gold, how the world really oil, works. And I missed that in sex, my civics course. The gods. I, yeah. Yeah. I didn't get that New World Order flavor of H.G. Wells. And these people have a plan and they're doing it to America first and then spreads out through uh, foreign policy to everywhere else in the world. That's, that's going on. That's real history. I don't like conspiracy theories. I don't enjoy such things. You know what else I don't like? I like these things a lot less than I like conspiracy theories. So I don't like conspiracy theories, but there's some things I like less than not liking conspiracy theories. Things like Jeffrey Epstein and the cover-up that's been going on to things like uh, Jimmy Savile that went on across the pond because our British cousins are the ones who lead this whole sex trafficking, Epstein whole thing. It starts over there. It's not an American problem. Okay. It starts over there. Oh, it's been a problem since ancient Buckingham times. Palace. They were going to out him in 2016. Amy yeah. Robard, the reporter for NBC, is off on on tape after the cameras she thought were turned off, and she's saying we could have had this whole story. Yeah, we had it. We had Buckingham it, but they Palace. shut it down. Yeah, right, right. What is that? That's a Clinton cover up thing, from on but... high. That sounds like a conspiracy. So I don't like conspiracy theories, but I also don't like ignoring reality. I don't like ignoring the evidence that exists that no one wants to talk about, and it's not flat earthy type stuff. These are real declassified documents that paint a very different Real picture of what's going on. evidence, yeah. Right. Once you understand it, Operation Northwoods, 1963, Joint Chiefs of Staff, Lyman Lemnitzer, authored this paper. You can look it up. You can download it. It was first disclosed by James Bamford in Body of Secrets 2001. It's a real document where the Joint Chiefs of Staff planned to fake a hijacking and murder real people in order to blame Cuba. And when you look at that and you say 9-11, these hijackers, that's that's interesting. But they also had a Joint Chiefs of Staff plan on file that looks just like what they might have done. Not to mention the PNAC documents. Operation a Aphrodite, before. a plane laden with explosives, remote controlled, was 1943 technology. But we have to, real quick, you're, this is actually Hijackers really interesting. Hijackers are unpredictable and unreliable. 
if we're honest though, they're they're going on a precedent that's already been set. So in other words, that 1963 Joint Chiefs of Staff document showing that they want to do the Bay of Pigs failed. And so now they need to find a way to uh, a casus belly in order to go to war with Cuba. Well, let's let's go back. What happened to Lusitania? The sinking of the Lusitania. Wait, that was supposedly a civilian ship, but it had some arms and munitions or something. And it was in, it was purposely put into a German U-boat territory and sort of like given all this information that accidentally leaked to the Germans to be like, oh, it's carrying some secret documents or armaments. But only like, after Colonel House and Lord Grey had had a meeting with his majesty to agree that if the Lusitania was sunk by German forces, that America would enter the war at some point after that. What on a coincidence. The British side. What a coincidence. Some of coincidences. And then, and then wait, wait. So there's a precedent there, but then there's FDR. You're supposed and to forget about British that, intelligence not think about Pearl Harbor. Those two oh, things not might less. be connected. So they already were able to do it. So the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they're like, wait, we already did it. Why can't we just continue to do it? That's the way I look at it, at least. Yeah, it's been going on a long time. All right. Yeah. Now let's uh, keep with the uh, the flow of this section. LD, I'm going to go to the clip where uh, Dr. Fauci's a fraud. This is Kennedy. And I think it's the same Kennedy that used to be an MTV VJ like 30 years ago. Not sure. I think really? it's the same one. I'm pretty sure she used to oh, be a VJ. Interesting. Back I didn't in the know day. That. Unless there's two women hosts named Kennedy. I just think that this is probably what she did after MTV. Hmm. So let's check it out. Anthony Fauci. Yeah, that man, he's a megalomaniacal fraud whose analysis policies and conclusions harmed children. Everything he instructed us to do was self-serving or flat-out wrong. And research from Johns Hopkins shows lockdowns barely saved lives by 0.2%. Tiny Tony was in Seattle receiving an award from the Hutch and dropped this narcissistic nugget about something he calls the Fauci effects. It's called the Fauci effect. People go to medical school now. People are interested in science not because of me, because people, most people don't know me. It's what I symbolize. People, the craving for consistency, for integrity, for truth. Oh, yes, St. Anthony single-handedly saved modern medicine by being the inspiration for a new generation of Meredith Grays. My sweet keister, med school applications are up because people didn't want to go to med school when nothing was being done in person. The same reason people quit their jobs and deferred to college. He shut down the known world out of an abundance of caution. And now that people are reverting to previous plans, he wants a medal. You know what the real Fauci effect is? He lied about everything, including gain-of-function research. The virus came God knows where from, but he did everything to cover his ass, so we'll never know. When actual science takes stock in the pandemic from the shady origins to the tragic fallout of depressed children being robbed of normal childhoods, they will see if there is an honest examination that everything he told us was wrong. When asked by California health officials whether they should shut down the state, he said, you really have no choice. But there is a choice. People can always be given the risks and they should always be allowed to choose freedom. And they have. If, God forbid, this ever happened again, people will move to places like Florida with open schools and functioning economies versus places like California and New York that gave in to teachers union terror and deprived kids of their right to learn and exist. Kids were propagandized to believe they were the problem. They were causing the virus when it was really the highest paid government employee who used his influence and power in a ghastly failed experiment to engineer a solution that was worse than the virus itself. 
Dr. Fauci does not deserve medals or accolades. His work and hubris demand an investigation and consequences. So we are never terrorized by a self-important blowhard and a white coat ever again. And that's the memo. Now, given his record, Fauci is no fan of freedom. At the same talk, he complained about opposition to forced masking. Watch. You tell people they need to mask in an indoor congregate setting. That is looked upon by a lot of people, not everybody, as, as an encroachment on your freedom. Um, it, that, we've never had that before. I mean, so, I mean, it, it, it's, it's almost inexplicable. So what is the medical term for pompous, arrogant narcissism? Uh, the party panel is back. Jason Meister, Richard Fowler, Olivia Rondo. It's really hard for me to sit with a straight face and listen to him, Jason, uh, because, you know, my kids, New York City public schools, uh, the, the horrible mayor who was in office during the pandemic, Bill de Blasio, listened to Anthony Fauci whose CDC was working in concert with teachers unions to keep schools closed again for the entire year. So it's really hard for me to listen to what a great job he's done and how horrible people are who are skeptical of one person having that much power. Yeah, Kennedy, I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, look, I have elementary age children as well that were masked for seven, eight hours a day. Dr. Fauci has done more harm to undermine public trust in medical and scientific institutions than any other unelected government bureaucrat, okay, an official, health official. He lied about the masks. He lied about the vaccines. He lied about funding gain-of-function research. He lied about the threat. He lied about uh, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. He lied about everything. So naturally, he, he says he symbolizes truth and science. It's, 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 it's a disgrace. But it's interesting, Richard, because he puts himself at the center of everything. We're no longer talking about the virus. We're just talking about him because he just wants to talk about himself. Uh, that is not helpful because we're not talking about China. We're not talking about accountability and origins. And, you know, he's using his technocracy to try and distract us from that. But that is still the most important thing. So this doesn't happen again. Well, we're also not talking about the fragility of our healthcare system. Right now, as we sit here and we have this conversation, we have a shortage of nurses. We have a shortage of respiratory therapists. We also have a shortage of doctors going into the field, and this should concern all Americans. Not according and to Fauci. No, not uh, according. We, uh, he listen, says I, I, that, I, that med medical school applications are on the rise because of him and him alone. Uh, but, Kennedy, That's I'm not talking said. about Fauci. I'm talking about my own reporting, where I've sat down with folks going into the field. And what you find mm -hmm. is there's a lot of inherent barriers to folks going into the field. Number one, it costs a half a million dollars to be a doctor in the United States. And it costs sixty or $70,000 to become a registered nurse in the United States on average. And so what we've got to do as a country is say our health care workers matter because they're key to our existence. And what this pandemic should have taught us yeah. is just how fragile our system are, our system is rather, and the fact that we need more nurses, we need more respiratory therapists, and mm -hmm. we should be investing in them. Well, maybe we've got too many government regulations that is keeping all of this so incredibly expensive, Olivia, because, you know, these institutions, there is no accountability there, so they, they have no reason to keep costs low. So they can go ahead and stick it to doctors who will make millions more over their lifetime than people who get ordinary or no degrees. Absolutely. Big pharmaceutical companies and institutions absolutely collude with the government so they can price gouge as much as they want. That's not a secret to anybody. Also, I have to pose the question, is part of the reason there may 
be a shortage of nurses and doctors, be because there was a crazy vaccine mandate that fired like thousands, literally thousands of emergency personnel, medical workers, doctors, nurses. I mean, we really do have to reel back some of these government regulations. I think that uh, ruling back some of the bureaucracy could be a great way on the, you know, paying for college front and the actually getting and maintaining your job front when it comes to the shortage of medical doctors and nurses and all that. Yes. Uh, you I mean, bring Kennedy. Up, okay, hold on. I, I just want to respond to her and then I'll let you respond, Richard. She brings up such a good point. You fired doctors and nurses. You told them if they weren't vaccinated, even though they had been exposed to the virus over and over again, that they no longer had jobs. You did the same thing with pilots. So they retired. You know, we have a shortage of pilots and nurses. So flights don't take off on time and it takes hours to see someone when you go to the emergency room. Go ahead and respond, Richard, please. Uh, I mean, I, listen, Thank I hear you. that. And I think that's forward. a very. That is just uh, an intro. To the next clip i'm going to go to the uh clip right before intermission ld even though we're not going to intermission after this clip um there's more to be learned because what they were talking about kennedy was talking about fauci doing all this stuff but it also kind of all that fauci you know the fauci effect what does it do it misdirects from the origin of the virus in the first place part of the fauci effect is like the lockdowns and the masks and the pushing of the vaccines and all this sort of stuff but Fauci effect is also running cover for, hey, don't look behind me. Peter Daszak and NIAID contracts are over there at Wuhan lab playing with monkeypox and playing with coronavirus respiratory chimeric structures that they made artificially in lab that attach to a human ACE2 receptor and have um, furin cleavage sites and uh, receptor binding areas that are different than zoonautical origins. Right. So there's that aspect. So let's go to this Rand Paul clip. And then uh, LD, as soon as that clip goes, because I think it's like six minutes, let's go to the Jackson report and then we'll keep rolling through this section. The things that tips us off that they may have been trying was in 2018, they asked for money from DARPA. And in that money, they wanted to insert the furin cleavage site, which makes it highly infectious in humans. And they so if they had the idea of that, they're asking for money. They must have thought, wow, we can do this and this is going to be a great experiment. Even our government finally at that point decided not to fund that. But what they're asking for, and this is why I think there was a holy cow moment when all of a sudden these scientists see the sequence of, of COVID-19, they're going, oh my goodness, didn't they ask us in 2018 to put that furin cleavage site in? And lo and behold, it's there. So what I'd like to ask, and I'm going to finish with this, and then we'll have another round if some people would like to ask some other questions is, um, Dr. Quay, could you sort of lay out in as simple a fashion as possible two or three items about the virus that makes you think it came from, and, and not only anybody knows with 100% whether this came from a lab or whether it came from animals, but there is some compelling evidence that suggests it could have come from the lab. And, you know, even if it was a 10% chance it came from a lab, it's another reason for us to be concerned about uh, having oversight on this kind of research. But can you give me two or three things that this virus has that make you think it's lab versus uh, some of the evidence for MERS and SARS that was that it came from animals? Yeah, there are three regions, the receptor binding domain, the furin cleavage site, and this protein eighth from the left called ORF8. With respect to the re with receptor binding domain, if you look at what happened with SARS-1, we have the virus sequence when it first was in civet cats in the markets, jumped into a few humans. We have the virus sequence then. It started infecting more. And then we have the virus sequence when it became, when it 
human-to-human passage could occur and an epidemic occurred. And so you can see the progression of mutations as the virus adapted from being in civet cats and then being in humans. The first jump into humans, it had only 15% of the mutations it needed to support an epidemic. Okay, let's flip to SARS-CoV-2. When you look at, at, at the virus uh, that first entered the human population, out of, the, out of all of the uh, changes in the receptor binding domain, there are 200 possible chain, 200 amino acids, 4,000 possible changes. There were only 17 mutations that could make it a better virus. Its receptor binding uh, 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 optimization was 99.5 percent, and in fact, one of the 17 ended up being the Delta variant. So that kind of optimization juxtaposed by the fact that there were no patients in Wuhan, 36,000 bloodback specimens tested for antibodies uh, in 2019, not a single patient was infected. Let's go back to SARS-1. 20% of all people in the markets were infected while the virus was practicing to set up an epidemic, 1% of the general population. So we would have expected 360 in the general population in Wuhan, we had zero. Furin cleavage site has obviously never occurred in this related viruses, cervical viruses that split from their, their cousins, the MERS viruses, around the time of William crossing the channel, 10,060. That was when the cervical viruses came. So there's never been a furin cleavage site, and the genetic sequence of it uses a code that's never been used, the CGG, CGG dimer, as it's called, which is, has never been used before. Finally, ORF8, this protein that goes into the bloodstream and suppresses interferon response, so you're asymptomatic, and suppresses AHC uh, antigen presentation, so you can't make good antibodies. This was the, the subject of two master's theses at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I have found no Western scientists that worked on this, uh, this location in the genome before 2019. Um, and the protein is not present in MERS. It has a 5% homology in SARS-1, between SARS-1 and SARS-2. There's a protein there, but it's only 5% homologous, but this master's thesis, the first one, optimized its function in suppressing interferon, symptoms of, of fever and chills, and suppressed its antigen presentation. The second one was making synthetic biology tools so you could move it around inside genomes. So to reiterate, um, there's been no animals found that have COVID-19. When they did find that animals had the first SARS and MERS, they found it out within months. When they tested the animals in question, 90% of the animals had the SARS virus. So we haven't found any animals yet with COVID-19. And then most viruses that come from animals first aren't very infectious at first, and they infect a few humans. So you don't have a pandemic that does this. It smolders and then does this. During the smoldering phase, you find background antibodies that people have had it, even if they don't know they had it. So when they tested the background of people who were working with the animals that had COVID, um, they found 20% of them had antibodies to having had SARS. SARS-1, yes, correct. But then if we test the people in the marketplace, uh, we're not finding that. If we look at the people in the Wuhan marketplace, uh, we're not finding significant numbers that were positive and finding almost nobody positive from the previous year that had been ill. No, it's zero out of 36,000. Thank you. Uh, why don't we do a second round, and why don't we start, we'll go the same order. Senator Johnson. Dr. Quay, how did we find out about the Nipah virus? Uh, so, um, in December uh, 2019, five patients at a Wuhan hospital had their specimens sent, bronchial lavage, where they stick a, a throat and get it lost, to the one Institute of Virology for sequencing. 
The process is to amplify with a PCR process. You make a lot of copies of what's in the specimen, and you usually inadvertently make copies of what's going on in the laboratory. So um, the one instant virology probably regrets, but they put a 55 million letter database of the background information up in the gene bank, which is the NIH's uh, database there, of everything going on. We found 20 strange things in these patient specimens, honeysuckle genes, uh, horse viruses. 19 of the things we found were in publications from the laboratory over the previous two years. So this clearly was a signal of what was going on in the lab around there. The one thing they didn't publish on was this uh, cloning vectors of the Nipah virus. So it's in the patient specimens because it was in the laboratory at the time, not in the patients, but it, it, it and they have never published on that. Uh, okay, one, <clears throat> excuse me, give me one second and pull up this Jackson report and cue it up. So, waiting music, waiting music, elevator music in your head. <laughs> that was good. That's interesting follow-up research. I had not seen that clip. Um, with the RVD and the furin cleavage, which we've gone over. We talked about CGG, CGG, which codes for yeah. arginine, which makes it infectious um, uh, to humans. I mean, so, I mean, that's arginine being amino acid. So, and the CGG, CGG was the least likely way it would encode for the pro or the protein, excuse me, protein. Right. It was arginine, totally amino optimized. Acid, that's the point. Nature doesn't optimize that efficiently. That's why humans created labs. And the That's fact it. they found like what horse pox, which is something in 2018, the Senate committee, I've shown that many times. Um, uh, Maddie and I talked about it a couple of weeks ago too. I forget, but she quoted it. And it was really interesting because they were talking about the ability to manipulate things like, you know, small pox. Like, we're going to need that ivermectin back, fellas. By the way, I just, I, I finally got that segment up that, that slipped through, through the cracks at Porkfest. And uh, I got that segment up on Rockfin and Odyssey. If anybody was looking for it so it's available on both those channels now and this is queued up ready to go here's the high wire the jackson report it's amazing to me jeffrey how these people like rochelle walensky and Tony Fauci can just parade in front of the camera, basically grovel, you know, and say, oh, our bad, leave it to us. We're going to fix our own problem. Let us do our own investigations in here. We totally messed up, but that's on us. I mean, the way they do it without any sort of sense of actual morality or ethics or understanding or admitting what actually went wrong, which was sort of hiding the truth from the public. Right. And for people just tuning in right now, you would have known this if you're watching the high wire over the last two years, that the science, as we were taught to believe, has failed in spectacular ways and continues to fail uh, with absolutely devastating consequences, as we've reported over the last two years. But the question really is, is this isolated within the walls of the CDC? Is it just a couple my bads on some, some scientists right. in the CDC? One of the bedrocks of what we do here at the High Wire is to question scientific consensus. We don't just look at scientists or settled science and say, that's great. You can use that now as, you know, wield that as an authoritarian hammer and command us on what to do with our lives. We right. investigate the science. And now looking side to side with our viewers, we're all on the same level here, even new viewers. We can look at this as uh, through a whole new lens, yeah. something we've been reporting on for many, many years. And this is questioning the science. So 
in, in July 2021, about a year ago, this was reported in the BMJ. It was a uh, it was a commentary. It was by Richard Smith. He was a former uh, head editor at the BMJ. And he wrote this. This is the title. Time to assume that health research is fraudulent until proven otherwise. And he says in there, we have we have now reached a point where those doing systemic reviews must start by assuming that a study is fraudulent until they can have some evidence to the contrary. I mean, this is like a, a submission statement of what we do here. But this isn't something that just was a phenomenon of the COVID response and all of the bad science that was that was really held up there by these institutions yeah. like the CDC. This has been going on for for years, if not decades. This is a, a article, a commentary by Richard Smith. I'm sorry, Richard Horton. He is the editor in chief of The Lancet. And in 2015, he wrote this titled What is Medicine's Five Sigma? And in there, he writes the case against science is straightforward. Much of the scientific uh, literature, perhaps half, may simply be untrue. We aid and abet the worst behaviors. Our acquiescence to the impact factor fuels an unhealthy competition to win a place in a few select uh, a select few journals. The apparent endemicity of bad research behavior is alarming. In their quest for telling a compelling story, scientists too often sculpt data to fit their preferred theory of the world. And boy, was that really a, a prophecy, really, to what we saw here with, with COVID? And it's now amazing. We bring us just, just, you know, this is what I've been saying. This is the scientific method. The scientific method is supposed to be to challenge any theory, to challenge any new product. And by the way, that's also the job of the fourth estate or the fourth branch of government as defined by our founding fathers. The media, the news should never be afraid to ask the obvious questions, even if it may be uncomfortable for government or institutions or corporations. That is our job. Yet we have been assaulted. Everyone that has come forward saying, ah, hold on a second. That's science. There is other science refuting exactly what was just said there. If you did not go along with the CDC, they literally tried to create a ministry of truth to shut you down. And now it's the very CDC that we're supposed to just bow down to and answer to without ever questioning is now questioning itself, is now supposedly going to reorganize itself. So where do we go from here? Do Have we learned the lesson that science lies, that when you say to some of the biggest corporations being Pfizer and Moderna and Sanofi Aventis and, and you know, all of these AstraZeneca's, these, these companies that make billions and billions of dollars, when you say to them, rush a product to us and we will get it to our population as fast as possible and you stand to make tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars within the next year or two, do you think under those circumstances there's just a possibility that they may lie and sweep some of the problems under the rug? I mean, come on now. This is what the Lancet and the British Medical Journal have been screaming about. And they're the two of the top journals where all of this garbage is being published that our CDC and our FDA are pointing to. And who's getting ridiculed? Those of us who have never been buying it from the beginning. And this is a big concept. It's an idea whose time has come. The scientific is, uh, consensus is kind of unraveling for yeah. a more open debate. And people may think just watching this right now, viewers, people tuning in, how am I supposed to face this? This is a big, huge idea. Well, you can start like this. When you see headlines that look like this, this is from last year. Pfizer says... COVID-19 vaccine shows 100% efficacy in adolescence. There's your first question. Right. When Pfizer says, and 100% efficacy, those should send alarm bells and say, wait a minute, I remember this segment about the science, I maybe should question this. And even the FDA, listen to this. This was a press release uh, on the back of that when they authorized their Pfizer shot, their COVID-19 Pfizer shot for emergency use in adolescence. 
And part of the data they use, the efficacy data to show this thing is really effective at that time, they say this, the immune response, that's basically just the antibodies generated, just an immune response. We, we generated some antibodies to the vaccine in 190 participants, 12 through 15 years of age, was compared to the immune response, some other antibodies of 170 participants, 16 through 25 years of age. So they compared them. They just said, this looks like that. Therefore, let's put it in tens of millions of people, kids. In wow. this analysis, the immune response of adolescents was not inferior to, at least as good as, the antibody immune response of the older participants. And so, for people that are joining us just brand new here, this is something I know when we hear antibodies, we think, oh, it means we're immune. It truly does not. There's all sorts of different antibodies. There's neutralizing antibodies. There's binding antibodies. But in this, there's never been proof that antibodies deliver full protection or what level of protection. So when they're saying you're getting the same amount of antibodies as this other group that was in a trial that we cut short and never ran long enough to see anything of actual value, they're just doing comparison or what they call immunobridging, right? This immune bridging thing was, well, it looked like the same antibodies as the other group and we lied and told the world it was effective for them. So let's lie and tell the world it's effective for the children. Comparing one crappy group to the next is how our science is being done. And when we reported that at the time, the adult vaccinations, their efficacy was waning, waning, waning. And people are saying, right, you're gonna give this to kids. Isn't the same thing gonna happen? No, no. 100% says Pfizer. Well, let's check it on Pfizer's shot. How is it doing in adolescence now? Here's the headline. Study, Pfizer COVID vaccine efficacy wanes 27 days after dose two in teens. Wow. And there you have it. And this is the study here. This was published this month in The Lancet. If anybody wants to actually look at the data, they looked at kids uh, for in Brazil and Scotland from 27 days after the second dose, they found waning. It was reduced in Brazil to 5.9% by 98 days or more. That was wow. during the Omicron period. So, you know, boosters, boosters, and well, what boosters. Are you gonna do? If it's every 27 days, we're going to do a booster every single month. Is this the world you all want to live in? This is good science. Let's just keep boosting you and boosting you. Forget what that's doing to your immune system and all the reports we've done on immune exhaustion and all of the other problems that come from being vaccinated that often. And let me tell you, no one's immune to this effect. Even Pfizer's own CEO, Albert Borla, has become a victim of his shots uh, lack of success, lack of e efficacy. He took to Twitter. Uh, this was in April 2021. He was a really happy guy then. He said, excited to share that updated analysis from our phase three study with BioNTech also showed that our COVID-19 vaccine was 100% effective in preventing COVID-19 cases in South Africa. 100%, he says, with, with happiness. Let's check on him uh, August 15th. $30 billion dollars in sales later, this is what he has yeah. to say. Okay. Really big pockets for him. So this yeah. is what he had to say. He took to Twitter. I would like to let you know that I have tested positive for COVID-19. I'm thankful to have received four doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, and I'm feeling well while experiencing very mild symptoms. I am isolating and have started a course of Paxlovid, another oh, I love that. product. <laughs> a, a, a drug, by the way, that is only if you're at severe risk of having a bad outcome. So obviously the guy that got four of these shots is not actually con convinced that it's going to reduce his symptoms enough. He's on a drug that's going to suffer bounce backs and all sorts of other problems. You know, these guys really would do themselves a favor if they would just, and they probably are. I'll bet you behind closed doors, he's taking hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and azithromycin. If he's not, he's an absolute moron.
Right. And so where are we going from here? Let's pull out the crystal ball. And the UK has become the first country to approve a Omicron variant booster. So up until right. now, we have been using the original strain to be fighting all these variants. So the UK approved Omicron specific booster shots. They're coming to the US soon. And this is the headlines here in the United States. Uh, Biden administration plans to offer updated booster shots in September. Now, the UK is the Wuhan strain and the BA uh, point one subvariant. That's the okay. original, the earliest Omicron strain. Right. The FDA is pushing the the uh, Moderna and the vaccine makers to put in BA four and BA five. That's the current variant. But you right. know, if they're not out by fall, these variants seem to move fairly quickly. So that's going to be a question too. But what do we do know about the vaccines? Um, you know, it, it, we do know they produce these antibodies. They, people keep saying they produce antibodies. What does that actually translate to in the real world? Is there any correlation of protection between producing these antibodies and, let's say, um, severe disease, hospitalization, all this stuff that they're being they're, they're selling us on the vaccine? Well, let's listen to uh, this is the Pfizer's vice president of viral vaccine research and development. And questioned by this man, Dr. Offer Levy. He's a director of Precision Vaccines Program at Boston Children's Hospital. He's also a professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. This was a recent VERPAC committee, and he had some questions for Pfizer's vice president. Take a listen. All right. Obviously, in a difficult situation, try quickly, and it's hard to generate sufficient information to know exactly what the right path is. So, regarding your murine data, uh, you showed the of neutralizing uh, antibodies against BA4 and 5, were you able to challenge the mice to show that you had protected the mice against clinical disease? Uh, do you have an opinion as to what your correlative protection is in humans? And thirdly, have you made use of any human in vitro models to assess your vaccines? Thank you. So to answer, thank you, Dr. Levy, for the question. To answer the first um, no, we have not challenged the mice. Uh, these data just became available uh, this morning, so we wanted to share either the late breaking of all of the totality of evidence that we have on variant-modified vaccines. Uh, so these are the, to show the breadth of neutralization, um, whether you're talking about a BA1-modified or a BA4-modified vaccine compared to prototype. And then can you repeat the, the second question? I mean, obviously you have a lot of data now. What is your correlative protection is. Everybody's measuring antibodies. They're probably relevant, but as we know... That's a long question. We need a quick answer. <laughs> yes. I would say there is no established correlate of protection. Wow. I mean, this and this is it. What is this? Is this what we're going to be rehashing inside the CDC and the FDA? Maybe it's not such a good idea to be making recommendations based on zero correlates of protection. No proof the product actually works. Oh, and by the way, let's make sure we rush the one question that is being asked that actually makes some sense uh, to the future health of millions and millions of people. Right. So we don't know that. Big question, even at Pfizer's yeah. higher ups at top brass. But what do we do know about these vaccines, especially in these age groups, these younger kids? We do know that they can cause heart inflammation, myocarditis, pericarditis. And a bombshell study just came out from Thailand. This was the, this was the title, if anybody wants to look it up, Cardiovascular Effects of the BNT162B2. That's Pfizer's mRNA COVID-19 vaccine in adolescence. They took 301 kids from two schools in Bangkok, and this is what they found. 301 kids, remember that. 
This prospective cohort study enrolled students from two schools aged 13 to 18 years who received the second dose of the BNT162B2 mRNA COVID-19 vaccine. Data including demographics, symptoms, vital signs, ECG, echocardiography, and cardiac enzymes were collected at baseline, day three, day seven, day 14, optional using case record form. So there, there's up to eight times they the touch points for these kids where they're me measuring all of these things. So it's very thorough study. And what did they find? They said the most common cardiovascular effects were tachycardia, 7.64%, shortness of breath, 6.64%, palpitation, 4.32%, chest pain, again, 4.32%, and hypertension, 3.99%, seven participants, 2.33% exhibited at least one elevated cardiac biomarker or positive lab assessments. Cardiovascular effects were found in 29.24% of patients ranging from tachycardia, palpitation, and myocarditis. And they said myocarditis was confirmed in one patient after vaccination. And that patient had almost 40 times the elevated, uh, elevated troponin levels. Those are diagnostic markers within the body to, to look for heart damage that people this is, look for. I mean, this is, we've obviously been reporting on myocarditis from the beginning many times and, you know, but these numbers are just in a whole other world, so much higher. This is what the CDC knew about when we were reporting, when they approved it for children. We've shown this graph before very quickly. Back when we were looking at it, they admitted that uh, when they gave the vaccine, that those uh, that had raised risk in 12 to 15 year olds, they expected in the males for there to be one to five possible cases. Instead, there was 117 cases after vaccination of uh, myo uh, or periocarditis. Uh, zero to three cases were expected 16 to 17 year olds 121 but we're talking about out of 300 kids now 20 what was it 28 percent are having some effect on their heart i mean that is catastrophic we're talking we're moving now into one in four or one in five Right, and and here's a here's a different way to look at this. There's a graph uh, that was made from those numbers, and just looking at this here, we have tachycardia, nearly eight uh, percent, shortness, SOB, shortness of breath, palpitation, chest pain, hypertension. I mean, uh, hypertension in kids. Come on, wow. abnormal labs. That's the troponin levels, and so it, this this has caught the eyes of people that it should. Namely, Dr. Anish Koka. He is a cardiologist, um, respected cardiologist, specializes in managing complex cardiovascular disease. He has a clinic, his own clinic in Philadelphia. And he took the Substack and he wrote a really, really thorough article about this. And I'd like to look through it right here Vaccine Myocarditis Update from Thailand. And, you know, the, the the CDC has found, you know, like you said, those short numbers, those small numbers per yeah. million. And he writes this because of the heavy reliance in the United States on passive reporting, which entails clinicians, patients voluntarily reporting myocarditis cases. This number, the CDC's number, is likely an undercount. Multiple data sets from around the globe from countries with much smaller budgets than our CDC have suggested higher rates than what the CDC reports. And here is just a quick graph that was put together. And these on the in the red, those are all a lot of the studies from around the world looking at myocarditis cases per million. And right in the middle there, you get 6.1, 4.8, that's CDC Bears, boys 16 through 17, uh, wow. boys 12 through 15. So they're not finding too much, but the other countries in, in sim those similar age groups are finding much, much higher 200, rates. 300 cases per million. And, I mean, just beyond exponentially, you know, uh, uh, higher. And, and right. clearly, and, you know, only in America are we seeing science that's showing numbers that low. Everywhere else in the world looking much worse. 
and looking at the data, one could really say the more carefully you look for myocarditis after vaccination, the more you're going to find. And mm -hmm. that's what they did in this in this case in Thailand. So uh, Dr. Coca writes this. I can assure you and the mostly ER doctor contingent on Twitter that brays about, quote, mile mild myocarditis, that there are no cardiologists who want to see their child have a cardiac troponin that is two times normal or 40 times normal after administration of some therapeutic. Again, those are the numbers that were found in the Thailand study. Right. And so looking at this and knowing this, this is why some of these headlines start to make sense. For instance, this one out of Florida, Florida recommends healthy kids don't get COVID-19 vaccine. This is Joseph Latipo. He's the surgeon general there. And He's this was brilliant. this was his recommendation yeah. for the really young kids when they when they put this EUA through. And then when the in two, in 2021, these were the Nordic countries. They really balked at these vaccines, especially the second dose in adolescence. This was the headline out of the BMJ. Uh, Sweden, Norway, Finland suspend use of Moderna vaccine in young people as a precaution. That's the myocarditis. But let's look at that passive reporting system, that VAERS reporting system we talked so much about here and that is uh you know that's partially run by the cdc yeah. their myocarditis cases they're just picking a sliver here they're just capturing a sliver and that sliver is fifty-one thousand three hundred and thirty-seven myo and periocarditis cases and that's what we're looking at here but now to put that in a different perspective let's look at the graph you take all of the vaccines since 2010 that's the entire childhood schedule and you look at that and you compare myo and pericarditis and all those vaccines and what happens 2021, this thing blows through the roof when wow. they start injecting these kids and everybody else with these mRNA vaccines. 2022 is obviously not over yet, and we're rising fast. And this is what they're finding. You can see this is, I mean, a safety signal is an understatement here. Yeah, clearly. And, I mean, 3,000 times where you're normally at. Does someone want to actually, you know, put a pause button out and say, hold on a second, this doesn't look so good? Uh, or, I mean, right. they're literally ignoring that. And, Unbelievable. And, 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 now, this is the state of science in the United States, and this is why we may be in some real trouble until these changes. I mean, great for the CDC to, to say we, we, you know, we've covered them for so long. They've never really admitted things. They double down, they double down. So they stop for a second and they're at least admitting some problems. But boy, do we have an uphill battle to really reshape the right. scientific culture within the United States and open this debate and, and, and change this architecture so it's no longer wielded as a, an authoritarian power structure, but as something that gives us, informs us about the world around us and within us for our own benefit independently. It's just, it's just, fan, it just it's, it, I, I keep thinking it's the fox guarding the hen house, but now the fox wants to rearrange the hen house. Um, right. We're not gonna let it happen. Jeffrey, incredible reporting. You've been on this. Uh, bringing more and more details. That Thailand, Thailand study is absolutely devastating. So thank you for bringing it with us. We have a huge show coming up, as you know, so I'm going to get to it. Uh, great reporting, Jeffrey. We'll see you next right. week. Thank you, Dell. See you soon. All right. <clears throat> that was a heavy-duty report. It's not unusual wow. for the, I mean, uh, the high wire to do stuff like that, but there's a, there's a lot to, uh, to unpack. So uh, all the claims, if you compare what they're telling people this week in the news and you rewind it two years and you see what they're telling people back when they had to make life-changing, life-altering, life-ending decisions in some cases, they're very, it's a stark contrast. But if you were watching the news every day since then, it would seem like not a whole lot has changed. And that's why you got to take that piece and that piece, put them together and see, oh, they're lying to people on a number of levels 
So I call it a silent blood blood die. Silent blood die. It's ominous title, but it, mm-hmm. it befits the situation. So yes, they're wrong to be lying. But liars are going to lie, right? So shouldn't we have some sort of intellectual self-defense, some sort of distributed code that questions? Just like Dell said, it's a big surprise now that the the British medical journal BMJ is going to now treat everything as it's false, and then they have to prove it to be true. Oh, isn't that what journalism Mm. was supposed to be and research and these sort of things? Science? Sort of the Richard Feynman. Let's do some tests. Let's try to endlessly disprove what we want to prove. Which is sort I mean, of a twist on the the uh, scientific method, but it works. I mean, yeah, just you want to rigorously try to the thing you've proved. You want to try to destroy it. You want to try to prove the thing you've proven or the thing you've done research on. You want to try to as many angles as you can game theory it. Try to disprove it sure. endlessly, and that's sure. like if you can take that stance, if you can essentially become your most intense critic to what you want to believe, and it upholds. You're you're able to. It becomes unassailable. Uh, then you can. But scientists are people. Reasonable. Oh, yeah, with biases. Scientists and... are not often entrepreneurs. So, therefore, they yeah. are often employees who are trying to please their bosses and continue to get their paychecks because without the paycheck, they don't know how to survive in the outside world. So, they're more likely to amend science or occlude certain science oh, to yeah. occult it. Yep. To meet the no. objectives of, of pay. And when you're, There's... you know, when people are treating like the CDC, FDA, WHO, all the doctors and Gavi, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. You're leaving out all the economics of they're a half million dollars in debt. They need to pay it back. And if they lose it. their license or speak right. out against this stuff, they're going to be persona non grata. So they're compromised in yeah. some cases, so, not in all cases. Uh, you know, I'm just saying a general rule. I'm not calling out specifics, but we could give you specific. Oh, examples. no, it's a general rule. I mean, if we could, this if is... we had like endless time, we could go over endless number or a, a ton of different specific examples. And, you know, that's why I do the town hall so we can get into more of those details if people are interested. But I will say there are four three or four general fallacies here, especially on the scientific realm. I sort of mentioned them earlier. There's neglected aspects. There is confirmation bias. And there's sometimes excerpt lifting as well as that sort of build. All these three fallacies build at what we call straw man. And that's how scientists can make them seem make themselves seem logical and reasonable in their analysis when in fact it's really sort of unfortunately um, a facade of their own ego that they're essentially utilizing these fallacies in a sophistic way in order to back up to your point, either being compromised in, uh, intellectually or financially uh, or, or compromised intellectually or compromised financially or both, which many of them are like Fauci or like, you know, Francis Collins, who was his boss or Javier Becerra or all these individuals that make up our health or, or Rochelle Lewinsky. Before that, I think it was Janet Woodcock, who I, I think if I remember correctly, was connected to the opiate crisis I could be getting that. That could be a confabulation with another FDA head or CDC head. So that's, you know, it's a revolving door. But yeah, the fact that these, one of the big concerns I have is science isn't separated from the ego. So these fallacies really are associated with human ego biases, right? I'm talking really about, your when you neglect an aspect or an excerpt lift, you're, you're affirming your bias. And that helps to build an argument that's a straw man because you're leaving out data that's pertinent. That's Can why I we have to do shows out? like this. Like we right. have to fill in the foreshadow some straw man arguments sure. that we're going to cover later with the Sam Harris story. And the way I'm going <laughs> to yeah, foreshadow that's... that is Sam Harris is a evolutionary believing atheist, right? So mm-hmm. T.H. Huxley. Zen Buddhist as well, apparently. T.H. Huxley was an evolutionary. He was Darwin's bulldog. Yep. Uh, evolutionary believing 
agnostic, close to atheist, right? T.H. Huxley, I have the books in the other room. It's a I whole series of books on atheist, the relationship though. between science and Christianity. So it's a whole set of books hmm. written on the relationship of Who science and Christianity. T.H. Huxley. Really? It's a whole library. I'll get them after this, but I got oh, too wow. much to show you right now. Yeah, so yeah no, that's cool. I, I had no I, idea. I dangled those H.G. Wells uh, experiment on autobiography books. But while I was in there, found a couple other H.G. Wells books. So I wanted to show you real quick. Here's a novel. Uh, called the new Machiavelli. Oh, yeah, I remember right. this. Yeah. Now in here is a real quick reference to Freemasonry and eugenics and such, but it's not that interesting, right? But then I saw this book, H.G. Wells, The New World Order. Now, what do you mean, New World Order? Well, let's take a look. I mean, this is a 1939 book. I get this printing is 1940. This is the second edition. This is the 1940. Here's the copyright page, 1939. Here are the contents. The end of an age, and then you go down class war, socialism unavoidable, federation, a new type of revolution. Interesting. Declaration of the rights of man, foreshadowing of the United Nations, the world order in being. And uh, I have a couple selected pages just to show you out of this book. Now, this book, when I got it, it was already marked up. But somebody really intelligent who wrote in pencil <laughs> went through and made a whole bunch of useful notes. Uh, let's see. This is talking about Marxism. Uh, that's not what I'm looking for. Where's the next tab here? Let's go. Maybe this one. Federation. This is a criticism of Clarence Streit's Union Now. Now, Clarence Streit is a Rhodes Scholar. Union Now is the Rhodes plan to bring America back in the empire. H.G. Uh, Wells is a fan of it, but he has some critiques on how to make it more realistic and other things that uh, Strite had left out. So uh, this is still so Federation comes and he critiques Strite's ideas. Again, a Rhodes scholar promoting Rhodes's plan. Uh, and as we're going to see in autobiography book from H.G. Wells, he was in on those meetings. There's a foreshadowing of the European Union because yeah. it talks about Count Clergy. Right, who even devised the flag for the union. So that's not the part I want to get to, though. Let's get to this part, which is more relevant. The new type of revolution. So they're going to use the religions and they're going to take over education. The distribution of this essential conception one may call propaganda, but in reality, it's education, right? You might call it propaganda because it's going toward their goals but they're calling it education and yeah what well, and there's and there's one of those classic gato like oh they redefine terms and everyone becomes confused the, on page 89 of the new world order the means of bringing about the new world order is, is this revolution this new incomplete revolution we contemplate can be defined in very few words it is a outright World socialism, scientifically planned and directed, plus Jesus. a sustained insistence upon law, law based on a fuller, more jealously conceived restatement of personal rights of man, plus whoa, see, whoa, whoa, what? the complete, hold on, the completest freedom of speech, criticism and publication, and, and this, <laughs> that's sedulous. Wow. And the sedulous expansion of the educational organization to be meet the, to the ever growing demands of the new world order. Did he really say sedulous expansion of the educational organization? Really? Well, the propaganda he promised oh, on the page before. My 
God. Right? Man. So when people are like, they don't have a plan. They There's don't a reason why we don't get into the crazy epistemological cartoons. Look at right. what these people say. Like, come on, this man. This is out of the Read a book. Horses this is 1939 talk here. Uh, the world order in being. And what's this? Yeah, the, the personal rights of man. It seems like they're reconcept prescribing oh, they, they what like those American, rights are. They, they don't, don't like the ground up version look, of the Huxley's natural Brave law New world. He's writing about over here. But uh, Magna Carta challenge. Let's see. What was the last reference I wanted to bring you before I went to the real deal? Holy field over here. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here's a decla- declaration of rights over here, but you don't need to see that because it's not freedom. Uh, and if and when the world order establishes himself, establishes itself, they will be superseded like eggshells and fetal membranes. There is no reason for denouncing those who devised and worked on those methods and institutions as scoundrels and villains, right? They're just helping to bring about world government and, and freedom for everybody. Um, our attempt to forecast the coming world order is framed then as an immense and increasing spectacle of constructive activity. Is that constructive activity? Is that like they're building something, Tony? It would seem so. Almost He's like a beehive. Almost right. like a, yeah. the hive mind sort of sense, which is actually very big in Masonic circles, the concept of the hive. Mm-hmm. We can anticipate... Industry. Uh, it's associated with industry. So We can anticipate a rapid transfiguration of the face of the earth as its population is distributed and redistributed <clears throat> in accordance with the shifting requirements of economic production. Anyway, they're wow. not trying to control the world through uh, education and statecraft. This book, I'm sure it's... They want a scientifically perfected, perfected right. society. Can one a doubt social- the scientific world will break? Dun, dun, dun. Can we flip the page? This is the end of the book here. It's the last page. Suck. Uh, let's see. Okay. So they're talking about the new form Maybe of revolution and they had to use the religions in the schools. And now he's coming to the conclusion. Can one doubt that the scientific world will break out when the revolution is achieved and the development of man's power over nature? Remember the, the culmination of, of Francis Bacon. That's the, the culmination of, of what Francis Bacon envisioned in his, he wrote a right. the, the, the utopia too. Um, the right, new Atlantis the or something. Sorry. The develop of development of man's power over nature and over his own, nature and over this still unexplored planet will undergo a continual acceleration as the years pass no man can guess beforehand what doors will open and uh nor upon what wonderlands so new atlantis i'm sorry control of all life on earth okay so now that you have hg wells in context now let's check out the fabian socialist uh roads roundtable type aspect the george bernard shaw foreshadowing Mm. earlier okay so experiment and autobiography discoveries and conclusions of a very ordinary brain hg wells there we go now let's see is this volume one volume two i shall oh this is volume two sorry let's go to volume one this is the more exciting one they're both exciting in their own ways there's herbert george wells this is his experiment in writing about himself, volume one, 1934. If we go to, we want to get it's past quite school exactly. boy. We want to get past early adolescence, right? He was struggling growing up. Then he got access to a library, started reading books. Good for him. It's the part about a planned world that I kind of take an issue with, right? <laughs> Anticipations in the New Republic. 
Oh, is America is not the, is it? Are we the new republic? Or are they going to create a new republic? Like a what was the Carnegie Federation? book? Wasn't there a Carnegie book called like the yeah, something? Yeah, yeah, it's called uh, something Republic or something. Democracy. Ah, uh, about a new republic though. About new republic. Yeah, yeah. Here's the Fabian Society letters. Here's the planning of uh, this is the the roundtable group with the Daily Mail because the people that were running all the media in Europe in Britain were working on the roundtable group, the world state. The world revolution, world education, all the things that we just wow. read in this other book, right? And this What's book is the written, uh, when was this? This is 1934. Hmm. New World Order is not written until 1939. I wonder what so they have he to wrote say. This aspect uh, beforehand. Yeah, I'm curious to see what their reflection would be on the League of Nations because he has a world state in League of Nations. That's curious. 693. We'll have to check that out sometime. But that's. Uh, I'm just curious to see what they think about what happens with. Well, so you know, the fallout here. of not being able to I got instantiate 693. That. There's a lot in here uh where he talks about world government, but 693 is this page. World state and league of nations hmm. starts there. But you can go back to uh let's see. In 1914, he published a story, a futuristic story, The World Set Free, in which I described the collapse of social order through the use of atomic bombs in a war that began prophetically and obviously enough with a German invasion of France by way of Belgium. Now, for those of you playing at home, the United States dropped the first atomic bombs 10 years after he wrote this book. And that's page 666, by the way. I'm not looking into that too much, none. I'm just noting, in case you wanted to look it up in volume, this is volume two. That's page 666. Uh, let's see. He's referring to the new, <laughs> new Machiavelli. Yeah. Where's the one? There's some uh, roundtable references. The Fabian Society. While in the Fabian Society, I was raising the question of scientific administrative areas in 1903. I was also writing a story based on the exactly same idea, The Food of the Gods, which is an interesting book. Also, uh, name of a Terrence McKenna book. If I that's, that's, that was one of the first books I read by Terrence. That was yeah. the first book read by Terrence McKenna. Interesting. Who are the gods? Voynich manuscript. See. The Voynich manuscript on the uh, the evolutionary oh, impact of psychedelics. The idea of a, here, the idea Sorry. of a planned world. Let's zoom in for the folks at home who want to watch the screen. <clears throat> Chapter the ninth: The idea of a planned world. In this newly built spade house, I began a book, Anticipations, which can be considered as the keystone to the main arch of my work. So that's the grand arch, chief keystone that holds the arch together. The arch, it's also a Freemasonic reference. So it's interesting what he's saying, right? Yeah. And there's, there's a, what, in St. Louis, isn't there the famous arch, which is, has. Yeah, St. Louis arch. That's, yeah. Yeah. It's Mason. yeah I mean, that's Masonic reference. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I'm, uh, let's see. Yeah. And yet he's talking about shape of things that come 1933. That's a great book. Cause it basically shows, uh, a world war that destroys all technology and people were back to throwing sticks and stones. Uh, it's 1933. It's a 1938 movie called things to come. Uh, and then halfway through the movie, super tech transhumanist type, of they, they're still in control and there's a huge tech gap comes in as a world state. So he'd been writing about this. That still is going on today yeah, in art it's like and Elysium. video games. Yeah, Fallout he, series is really that. Yeah. He's talking about the expression in a worldwide open conspiracy to rescue human society from the net of tradition in which it's entangled and to reconstruct it upon planetary lines. Planetary, like a whole worldwide phenomenon or revolution. Right? 
Uh, let's see. Steven Crane. I was looking for that other. There was another reference I wanted to get out of here. But I will find it during the next clip. I got a lot of notes in this book. We got roundtable references. Um, yeah, I'll find it during the next clip because there was also. Oh. I'm just looking at the chat here. Kind of. So I was already this. trying to get the world if state recognized yeah, okay. as a war objective in 1916. So he's working for British intelligence. I'm just pointing out that this idea of uh, a world state was a constant theme in H.G. Wells's work. And the people who like were in his milieu, in the Fabian socialist uh, group of the wolf in sheep's clothing, they were working to that end. They're eugenicists and transhumanists, and that's still the social climate uh, that we are swimming in today. So kind of, this is curious, talking in line with um, what we were just discussing now. Um, Manny just sent a blog. I kind of want to just get this on the record real quick. When is this here? Auguste Comte's uh, Religion of Humanity by John Stuart Mill. I was unaware of this. John Stuart Mill worked for the East India Company That's as well. correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, John Stuart Mill. Uh, Auguste Comte in Positivism, uh, a, bo- a book-length appraisal of Comte's philosophy, including his theory of knowledge, his religion of humanity. So it's interestingly enough, and Maddie, correct me if I'm wrong here, but one of those quotes, the po- I'm going to quote this. I think it comes from this positivist blogs archives but this is directly from john stuart mill i guess um yeah john stuart Dude. mills august compton positivism so quote the positivist society of the future will be run by experts and functionaries who will appoint their successors oh, rather than search a democratic vote the social core will be the family under the spiritual guidance of the father's mother Humanity will be feminine the new priesthood will offer a balance of power in the political stage since priests will not only be reduced to the proletariat salary but also barred from all political offices so that they share the position of the lowest class and do their work in purest altruism. That's a little bit Plato or public isn't there? That's interesting. Let me see. I, I just can... found a part. There that... it is. So for people who want to see it, that's where I got the quote. Here. John Before Stewart. I get these books off screen, let me just cover this real quick. All right. This is Thank page... you, Maddie, by the way. Maddie is the one who found that. So we were just talking about uh H.G. Wells' experiment in autobiography, how he was commenting on Clarence Strite uh, and his Union Now uh, merger with America with Britain. That was Union Now, it was 1940s. It's um, Anglo-American unity, the English-speaking people, right? Rhodes, I'm mm-hmm. um, sorry, uh, Wells says in his books that he doesn't consider himself British. He considers himself one of the English-speaking peoples because that was part of the whole Commonwealth idea of making Great Britain merge with the Americans. The Americans wouldn't, as of World War I, accept being partners with the British, and they worked very hard over the next 20 years in the World War II era to make that happen to the point where we got in after Pearl Harbor. Now, I just happened to see a guy's name in this H.G. Wells experiment on autobiography book. <clears throat> John Sensel Masterman, who was the MI6 director when uh, they're running spies to get Pearl Harbor bombed <clears throat> and get America in here. So was I just he found this part where in, he's, Well, was he well, part of the FDR cabinet? Was he one of the spies that was directly? Oh, Masterman ran MI6. So, so he, he ran, ran the entire MI6. Okay. Okay. So yeah, yeah. He, he was the director. But he wasn't, he didn't have the actual, he wasn't one of the agents inside. No, but he ran the agents. Tricycle. He ran the agents. Oh, you know, I'm not denying that. Yeah. I yeah, just yeah. want to make so, sure I understand the organizational Garbo, hierarchy. Garbo was another one. And then he admitted, he's like, uh, 
British spies had infiltrated the Nazis and the Japanese and the Japanese were working with the Nazis and they wanted to attack America in a big way. And they wanted to attack Pearl Harbor. And these questionnaires came back through their spies. So the British knew that the Japanese wanted to attack Pearl Harbor and the British sent those reports to America, to Edgar Hoover. And they presented them in a way to be like, ah, we we're showing you this, but we don't really think this is a thing and nothing to see here. They downplayed it. So they, they had told the Americans and disclosed it, but they never fully explained the relevance and sub substance of what they were sharing. And Masterman says in his own memoirs that they did that because the relationship with the Americans was too young and nascent. And we had just mended over those wounds and they weren't going to open it up to say we were running spies so deep that we were just going to get you into the war, whether you liked it or not. And didn't we put an embargo? So like we, we didn't ship uh, oil to Japan. I forget if the British also instigated that little. So like they set up, they fomented the situation that would, um, sort of catalyze the the Japanese to attack Pearl Harbor. Not right, only so by the memo of, yeah, anyways. Again. In H.G. Wells's Experiment on Autobiography, Volume 2, page 759, in the idea of a planned world, he mentions Cecil Rhodes. Mm, and then wow. in the next pages, he starts to go so uh, Kipling and Rhodes yeah, right, and right, Milner right. And the Sidney Webb and Bertrand Russell now we're in the and Fabians, all the Fabian yeah. socialists right here. Page 760. It's amazing how they instantly mesh the with the Fabians, group. right? He came, uh, so he, he's, he's in all these philosophical groups yeah. of eugenics and world power and bringing America back into the empire. And he's sitting in, in the meetings and he's writing about it in his book. And he's telling you who's there. And what they what they had planned for elongating the, the British Empire with the English speaking community idea. See, English speaking community. Let me highlight that for you. English speaking community and all these key participants. Uh, continued. Through the 20th century, not just in Fabian socialism, uh, but in the propaganda that led in, to getting America into World War One and World War Two are all those same group kind of clived and set Nazi supporting factions of uh, British empire. Yep. Yep. When I first heard about these eugenics experiments, that's what he means. And maybe that's where Stead went awry at the beginnings of, I mean, before world war one um, and sort of split with, yeah, well, with he, the group, he, or was it that's after why world he died one, in the Titanic. World, Titanic. Thinks. Yeah. And, the, and that's why, he, there's a monument to William T. Stead in Central Park. But these two books right here, Experiment and Autobiography, H.G. Wells, Volume 1, Volume 2. When I first heard about all this information from these books, I was incredulous. I didn't believe it. I was like, that can't be going on. So I went out and got these books. Back in the day, they were a lot harder to get than they probably are now. You got better search and finding resources out there. The point is, for people to say there's no group of people that are not that are trying to control the world or set up a world state or a planned government or a planned future for everybody else uh, the evidence contradicts those claims so you can't say conspiracy theory i gotta say go read the books they're worse than what we can have time to show you during the podcast even being seven hours long it's like get the book read some sentences or like 
get Barry Goldwater's memoirs, read chapters yeah. 32 and 33. You don't have to read the whole book. I mean, he's got an interesting life and all, you know, all these guys do. <clears throat> James H. Billington, in Fire is, in the Minds of Men. Right. The forensic parts where there's pieces of evidence and objective reality that paint a much truer and more detailed picture than anything in these cartoonish narratives that they're handing out in school or mainstream media because they can't afford to tell you the truth. They simply can't afford to do it. No, nope, that's exactly right. Oh, oh, I wanted to make one quick comment. So someone, um, uh, Harpe Noctum, um, was a, a GTW member. He made a point, and we can't go into this too deep, but like, what's the connection with secret society? So I put, uh, was it Kesselix? But no, um, the one critiquing crisis. Because I was talking about the secret society oh, roles. And that's such, that was always an you know shout out to kevin cole for making us aware of that book because that was such an important book for me to understand the secret society connection before the british empire sort of weaponized freemasonry in the 19th century it's good to understand like the end of the enlightenment and like what what the ideals were in fact i think i still have it up here All right, so for, yeah for so Carpe here i'll put it on knock here. them seize the night uh let's see I'll show them real quick. Yeah, it was William. Nice, yeah. It was Casper Lavater. Like Carpe who, Diem, but Casper Lavater was the Illuminatist who in, was instrumental in moving Prussian education into America. And that is in this book, The Leipzig Connection. Uh, where's the book? Can I get it in the frame? Was that through his agent, Pestalozzi? Leipzig, right. Yeah. Well, I'll just read it to you. Yeah, just so you read get it. this yeah, book, yeah. Basics in Education 1, The Leipzig Connection by Paolo Leone. And you put your glasses on go to the back of the book so i can't read it without the glasses anymore it's a fascinating book volitional control taking control vunt was uh, oh, the chief progenitor yeah. of, of prussian education they're looking at uh first uh, wave of behaviorism, behaviorism so there's like three waves of compulsive everything eugenics 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 and if i find lavater it's right right here on this page from Vunt's work, it was only a. Oops, sorry, I got too many books on the table and can't get this in the screen here. Let's try it here. From Vunt's work, it was only a short step to the later redefinition of the meaning of education. Originally, education meant the drawing out of a person's innate talents and abilities by imparting the knowledge of languages, scientific reasoning, history, literature, rhetoric, etc. The channels through which those abilities would flourish and serve. To the experimental psychologist, however, education became the process of exposing the student to meaningful experiences so as to ensure the desired reactions. And then that goes on and on, but I think the Paolo Leone reference is there a pestalozzi reference i thought there is yeah a, it's pestalozzi. Was, it, was, yeah. it was casper lavater who trained Cas pestalozzi yeah that's what i thought yeah the pestalozzi, and then pestalozzi the went yeah. to st louis which is why they got that arch there here it is right here special yeah there you go yeah perfect on perfect. screen page 94 special mention should also be made of the concept of educational reform per se and its leading exponents people who were promoting it in europe and the u.s especially Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi, this disciple of Rousseau and of the Swiss mystic radical and physiognomist, 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 Johann Caspar Lavater, having, as Swiss leader of the Illuminati, first devised a workable system of public instruction for downtrodden children. Oh, now there's a footnote there. Swiss footnote too, five. Let's go to footnote five. Educational Reformers, 1891. That's a book published by E.L. Kellogg. Now, go back real quick, just real quick, just um, 
two right there. Yeah. Yeah. Pass the um, leader, Swiss leader of the Illuminati. So but there's right. always a big question is like, what is the influence then of the Illuminati? Like how did they really infiltrate On public Freemasonry? education? Because that's that's essentially like that's what this book goes into in detail. And Rich has more. He's going to show you. And I didn't even have that as well. This, this page is not even marked with a colored tab in this book. That's how not important I thought it, was. <laughs> it turns out I should probably just put an index card there so I can find it next time. All right. So that was one answer to that question. Where's the next one? The next one. Terry Melanson's Perfectibilis is a classic. I mean, if, you gotta, a, if you're going to yeah. get into what is the Illuminati, then you can check out any number of books. This would be one. That's a good one. This, I, I appreciate his. This would be another one. Illuminati one, Manifesto, yeah. World Revolution. And this is this is really solid book. Uh, you want to see some real Illuminati stuff? <clears throat> Philo's reply oh to questions God. concerning his association with the Illuminati. This is a book written by this guy, Baron Von Kanegi. So you can check that out. That's for that's sure. What Illuminati. was the letter that George Washington referenced that he was aware of the Illuminati influence? I'll tell you in a second. Uh, okay. Critique and crisis. This that's is the, the one, one that's my about. favorite. Yeah, that's and my this favorite. This is the one talking about more Prussian education. Yeah, and essentially Illuminati. what it goes, what it gets into. I'll just give a brief, brief description. It says here, like Tocqueville, Kostelek views Enlightenment intellectuals as un, uprooted, unrealistic group of onlookers who sowed the seed to the modern political tensions that first flowered in the French Revolution. He argues that it was the split that developed between the state and society during the Enlightenment that fostered the emergence of this intellectual elite divorced from the realities of politics uh, says it all and he gets into coffee houses and masonic lodges now the illuminati is a had a presence did infiltrate certain freemasonic lodges especially in france um around the time of the jacobin revolution and uh we're spreading this sort of revolutionary faith and the sort of like condorcet rights of man encyclopedists this universalization of uh society um by secularizing it and removing it from religious and monarchical tyranny supposedly that's the ostensible reasons all right so the answer to your question george washington's illuminati letters are correspondence with reverend george washington snyder they call him gw snyder but i'm pretty sure his name is george washington snyder can we find it Someone fact check me. Yeah, out. I'll, I'll do that right now. So, uh, George Washington's Illuminati Letters, Library of Congress, October 24th, 1798. <clears throat> yeah, George letter. Washington Snyder. This is another one from 1798. And here's 22 August, 1798. So, so let's go to August. I have it here. Right? August is, August is the first. So this is the founders.archives.gov. This is an official source of the National Archives that just sees documents out of Trump's house, right? This is too yeah. legit to quit. From George Washington to uh, to George Washington from G.W. Snyder, 22 August, 1798. And I think they call him G.W. Snyder because it's confusing when there's yeah, two George, George Washington George, yeah, yeah. in the store. All right. So, uh, so if you scroll works. down a little bit, it so says- So he just writes. Yeah. He's, like, he's like, I'm in Maryland. What's up, dude? Uh, <laughs> sir- <laughs> You will, I hope, not think it a presumption in a stranger whose name perhaps never reached your ears to address himself to you, the commanding general of the great of this great nation. I am a German uh, born and um, I am German born and liberally educated in the city of Heidelberg in the Palatinate of the Rhine. I came to this country. So he says, yada, yada, yada. And down here, 
Where's the right there, right there, right there, right there. Right. Yeah, it was some time since the a book fell into my hands. Entitled all... "Proofs of a Conspiracy" by John Robeson. John right. Robeson. Oh, I forgot about Okay, so that. John Robeson wrote this book in like oh seven, my god, seventeen ninety seven or no, seventeen ninety six. Right around this time, "Proofs of a Conspiracy" comes out in Britain. Now, John Robeson is a Scottish chemist. I think mm-hmm. he was maybe a physicist. Yeah, and he I'm writes this sure. book, yeah, "Proofs of a Conspiracy." It's a whole bunch of Illuminati, Freemason, secret society type stuff. Right. So uh, in that book, which gives full account of a society of Freemasons that distinguishes itself by the name of Illuminati, whose plan it is to overturn all government and religion, even natural, and whose endeavor uh, to who endeavor to eradicate every idea of a supreme being and distinguish man from beast by his shape only not by his soul or thought or capacity to think, right? Uh, A thought suggested itself to me that in some of the lodges of the United States might have caught the infection. Oh, interesting. It's like a virus that he's describing. It actually is like a virus. It And might cooperate with the Illuminati or the Jacobin Club in France. They're the ones who did the French Revolution. Yeah. Bloody, bloody French. He's like, I'm sending it to you, which I no doubt will give you satisfaction if you just read this, right? So then George Washington writes back October 24th. This is classic. This is and classic, yeah. there's also October tw- uh, there's a sept. Let's see. That's William Russell. These are the William Russell letters. This one's October 27th. There's another one. Let me just go back to Snyder here. October no, there 24th. Is, he did respond. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Because oh, yeah, yeah. he talks about the pernicious principles that yes. he's aware of. So this is uh, libraryofcongress.gov. Again, this is not a conspiracy resource. And if I can get it to load, here's all the different links. But I've done research on this. Uh, letters uh, to, here it is. It popped up. There. You can see it in his own handwriting. For Christ's sake. For people who are like, that's conspiracy theory, bro. Like, uh, Library of Congress, dude. Here you go. Boom. Now, uh, let's see. To Reverend G.W. Snyder, sir, my apologies. Let me see if I can get to this one from here. That's a one to William Russell, though. I'm looking for looking for the other one. Where's the response? Let's try this link. Another Library of Congress link. George Washington. Again, that's not the end result link. All right, so I'll look that up. There's Thomas Jefferson's letters on the Illuminati. You can check that out, too. All right, so... Uh, yeah. Oh, deletion notice. Look, can't have that on script anymore. The writings of Thomas Jefferson, it's banned. He's canceled. So I'll go back. So during the next clip, I'll find the uh, the response where Washington says, I'm aware of the Illuminati and its pernicious principles, but I, I'm not part of that. Shut him no. up. Shut him up. That's exactly. We got a lot of money invested in this. It's real. So I was also Sorry, thinking back. I was answering that. No, I was also thinking back to the the monkeypox story with the dog and how did the dog get it? Oh, dude, that fucked me up, man. Bestiality? Are you serious? Like, first of all, the facts of Senna sent me this. Let me just. They shagged this. the dog, dude. Oh, dude. Jesus Christ, man! I mean, excuse my language. I'm so, I apologize to Christians. I mean, to take the this just in. There, Scooby but, you know. has filed against Shaggy. So this. <laughs> Ruh-roh. 
So here, so uh, Senna sent me this. Screaming New Yorker who can't find their vaccine documents who has a young kid at home who simply wants to know if they might be at risk of an epidemic emergence. Here's a guy that's facing a polio outbreak in 2022. So in other words, Senna sends me this sort of tongue-in-cheek comment as well, which is like, oh, monkeypox is failing. Yeah, it's failing because it's targeting the wrong group. You know, that's that's supposed to be a protected group, a virtue signaled group, right? Gay men or gay, gay individuals men or women, um, which certainly they have the right to live their lifestyle. But let's be honest, like for those individuals, be aware that it they spreads have, within those communities. And so and they that seems to be localized in those a close contact thing. It was a sexual transmission. It was a like sexually it was, transmitted. Right. Yeah. To the, especially to the dog. And then the next story that followed yeah. that, that we didn't play it's fucked up. was how monkeypox is spreading among kids in, in schools. So what's that say about the teachers and how are these kids getting in close, close enough oh, contact man, Right. Yeah. And if you watch a little TikTok, I mean, I, well, I was watching, there was a couple clips I dropped in the production chat just because of the, the ears, like the, the, it was like, I don't know, creature ears was going on. TikTok, it's like a mirror for America, but the mirror shows other America, like they put themselves in the mirror so other people can see them. So, it's a it's a good resource. It's a I vicarious like, reflection of irrational. I think behavior. maybe China's helping us out because we didn't really have any insight into all that that silliness that's going on uh, until TikTok came along. So maybe Marshall McLuhan would be. He's like, "See, I told you this is how it goes. You get to see yourselves and your worst Ooh. element." Yeah, the medium is the Man message, mm-hmm. and the message from TikTok about its uh, users is <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I think that's a quote. You could spell it like that. Uh, it's quite so. We will probably after intermission play some of the uh, clips that I had to see on the way to this show this week. Uh, not all of them are winners, and uh, <laughs> I no can't. Comment. I mean, we I'm don't... just it's jaw dropping. Uh, I mean, no. I, I will show some examples because people are like, "What did you see, bro?" I'm like, "What, well, dude? I saw some stuff I probably can't unsee." And it's there's like that guy's black nose. Whereas not only that, is then... going on. There's a bunch of other stories like we have the Anne Hesh story. We have like this weird. Okay, I'll, I'll talk about like... that real quick because I was incredulous. I'm on Twitter. People were passing around two videos. They both show somebody on a gurney with their head covered by a sheet, which usually means they're dead. And then they sit up right as and struggle as they're trying to be put into the ambulance. And so people were trying to say this was Anne Hesh. And that she sat up right before she got in the ambulance. And I was like, nah, like that looks like a neighborhood. And I thought she was in a car crash. So then I said something to my wife and she starts looking it up. She's like, oh, actually, yeah, that this is, it's actually in an article that she tried to sit up. Like that's her. Those are, those are actual videos from the scene. And that's a highly unusual circumstance when they say like she had suffered uh, traumatic brain injuries and these sort of things and was non-responsive. Like there's a whole interesting part. And then. I said jokingly, well, she, you know, what connection did she have to Jeffrey Epstein? And then coincidentally, Anna Hayes was working on a child trafficking documentary or not documentary, but like a, a, do, a lifetime docu-series kind of thing to bring it to bring attention to child trafficking, that right. sort of thing. Yeah. So I don't know that it was directly Epstein related story content that she was working on, though it couldn't probably be far off given the Epstein case. Um, so I didn't, I was incredulous. I was like, that must be fake video. They took from somebody else's car crash and that's not really, but they, yeah, there's some, it's an interesting story. I don't know what mm-hmm. to make of it. Not making any claims like they, you know, whacked her for the insurance money or anything like that. I don't know anything. Well, about there's that. maybe if we get to it, I don't know if we'll have enough time. 
and this will be in the after intermission when we're kind of in the woo woo hours. But uh, but it was a my point was, did a interesting. It was incredulous. Thing. I looked it up. I, you know, that's how you learn. You you don't believe it, and then you look to see. Yeah, my first real? reaction oh, is when you have something happen to you, um, like a trauma happen to you, your body res- can uh, involuntarily convulse. Oh yeah, um, which is normal because of the court the she adrenaline. Well, uh, the, the car was on fire. They had to extract yeah. her out with like robotics and stuff like that. There's a whole, you know, they might have gave her a sedative to calm her so they could extract it. Who knows what happened? Right. I just know when they were presenting that as like they whacked her. I was like, I don't even think that's her in the video because the people have different coats on. There was a whole bunch of strange things. A lot of anomalies. Yeah. But then apparently like uh, there's legit, you know, there's uh, traditional media sources out there that wrote like, you know, that she did sit up on the gurney as they tried to put her in. So it wasn't just in the video. There was like text that related like, yeah, that's her in the video that verified it. They shouldn't have had the sheet over her. That's that's if someone has, uh, I believe, I believe it's someone who's deceased at the or site. Or you could be hiding from the paparazzi, but then you make all your uh, okay, friends and, that's and family enough, think you're dead. Enough. That's not cool. Let me know. Yeah. So, mixed messages. I don't know. Anyway, that happened in the past week. And, a lot of uh, stuff. There's the point is this has been a big week. Um, so, and well, there's for those that are interested. Um, this is speculative. I don't even agree with this, but there's a ritualistic component that Greg Reese pointed out from the Golden Bow that it, it actually harkened back to an old Corbett report called "The Killing of the King" from 2014. And I wanted to maybe play that clip. Well, to the show, Golden like, Bow is a perennial tradition reference, and Aldous Huxley wrote a book called "The Perennial Tradition." They're all perennialists over there in that group. And well, I wanna, you, the perennial and philosophy and the perennial tradition. Coterie. They're they're sort of there's a difference. There's a sort of like split between the philosophies. But to your point, yeah, it is sort of a reflect. In this case, it's um, Sir James Fraser, I believe, a Scottish anthropologist, wrote a series of books about early religion, animism, uh, tribal taboos. You know, essentially everything to do with the old ancient mythologies and essentially the origins of of mysticism and religion. And uh, and a lot of like the queen of the queen of the wood. Uh, uh, Princess Diana and the Northern Italian rites of killing the king is what the, he opens up his book with that one. And the uh, Gregory's couldn't help himself but find parallels with the Anne Hesh story. Well, that's a little bit loose, but for me, it was like whether that's loose, I couldn't help but remember the 2014 Corbett uh report where he interviewed um Alan Abadesa Green, Abadesa Green. Um, where they go into the golden bell showing the killing of the king ritual where obama is holding up the uh, lion king or simba and like the whole like the solar king like it's one almost word for word like what the original egyptian mysteries were and you just can't help but wonder i know it's speculative as hell trust me i i but it's weird it's just it's certainly weird and certainly it'd be fun to sort of entertain as well, that's weird. hours you know and i'm not saying there's anything to it yeah, I don't but think now there's that you, anything but to now it that either. You but there's a that, synchronicity. Little, little, but now that you say you know. that, Killing of the King, killing if of the you king. were to look at Dealey Plaza and the Egyptian iconography, architecture, and statues of that plaza, it might be a place set up for such an event to happen in a ritual sense. I'm not saying that's how it works, that's, but Dealey, yeah, Ted Dealey owned the newspaper. like that, right. right. He's the press magnate who can publish uh the jfk with the crosshairs and like threats against the president you know so there was all that's a special group of people that's a fraternal order of people you might have politicians and police and government people all in that freemasonic group that celebrates an egyptian ritual like killing of the king 
Killing the K, yeah. nothing to see here. Special Operations Space Command. I don't know. Just weird. They're into some weird symbolism. Looks more like a Just... Cobra logo to me. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, shout out to uh, Skeletor for that last night at like four in the morning. I was like, what the hell am I looking at? So, you know, they're into some weird symbols yeah. that seem yeah. to be uh, associated Never study with the patches religions. of the intelligence agencies. You know? <laughs> it's a school on occult iconography for sure. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Demons and, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. They're Not using it to scare you. So. It's just, you know. All right. So um, Thank we, yeah, good. B- before we get to the intermission, um, other clips that we needed to cover out of that uh, the hot week in therapeutics. Uh, we're good. We're it's good. We, we, had, we actually hit all the, the main highlights. So that was good. All right. I mean, obviously we could continue, but it's just getting into more granular detail about what's already been covered. All right. So I'd like to get into, uh, let's do some intermission. And we have something uh, Joshua wanted us to play. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Stephanie. Oh, yeah. All right. So let's do that pre-intermission. So let's do it like this. Uh, we're going to play this clip from Stephanie. And then I'll explain it afterwards. And before we play that clip, I want to offer to the Grand Theft World members. We have not uh, done an AMA during town hall. So I'd like to schedule with Tony where I can be at town hall for GTW members and we could do an AMA on everything, not autonomy. We could talk about all this conspiracy stuff you want, because what you're about to hear from Stephanie is an offer. If you complete the obstacle course for autonomy, I'm going to do an AMA and ask me anything to answer people's questions about season eight. So I wanted to, before we made that offer about the course, I wanted to offer to those of you already supporting the podcast, I'm going to do a a similar AMA setup for you guys on a different topic. With that, uh, here's Stephanie. She's graduated of Autonomy Season 5, and she did an excellent job voicing her thoughts in this video, so we're going to share it. Stephanie and I'm a season six autonomy graduate. I'm recording this video today for those of you who are in the autonomy obstacle course and haven't quite completed it yet because this season you're getting something a little extra that those of us who enrolled in prior seasons did not which is if you've finished the obstacle course you're going to get an invitation to a live ask me anything with Richard Grove. So take the next few days if you haven't quite completed the obstacle course yet If you've kind of hit a point, maybe 60% through where you're like, I don't know if I can afford this. That's exactly where I was last year at this time of year. I was starting to get the emails from Richard encouraging me to keep going with it. And I'm so glad I did. I went to my blueprint call. I enrolled in the course um, and I was able to find out like how I could put this to work in my life and how I can overcome those barriers to enrollment, which are going to be different for all of us. But for me, I was working from home. I was also homeschooling my son and I just really didn't see how I was going to have the time or the money to invest in myself with this course. Um, Again, I'm really happy I did that. The course has provided me with many different ways to pay for itself, but also just to enhance my life in a variety of ways. These people are awesome. The skills that you get are awesome. You can take them with you anywhere. And again, if you finish that obstacle course, you can have all these questions answered directly from Richard Grove himself. Um, I would want that invitation if I were you. So that's why I encourage you over the next few days, finish the obstacle course. And I hope to see you in the Ask Me Anything. 
Now, I do get a lot of questions throughout the course because we do like uh, six hours of question and answer per week. <clears throat> so all the students pretty much get all their questions answered, whether it's to do with the course or not. But I haven't answered questions about the course before people even got into the course. We've always uh, let the, the, the filtering system work out who gets into the course, who finishes the obstacle course, who can make it through the blueprint strategy call, and who wants to explore the option to move forward without having to do an AMA. But I thought it would be a, a nice change. We had some people ask, and uh, I wanted to make it an offer. So some people going to the autonomy uh, landing page, it's getautonomy.info forward slash ignite. That's the landing page. If you were to read that page and find something that grooves with you, that sparks your interest, you click the button on the page, it takes you to the autonomy obstacle course. That obstacle course is there both to test your endurance, your attention span, your aptitude, but it's also there to give you 100% complete transparency into the course. Now, most people who go through the obstacle course, they want into the actual autonomy course. So that's not the problem. The value is there. Some people have had cash flow restrictions because of the pandemic and ongoing situations in life that we're all kind of dealing with, rising gas prices, food prices, all these sort of things. For season eight, we're going to do our best to make sure that everyone who comes and is interested and wants to participate in leveling themselves up has a path that they can do it, even if you can't afford the full tuition for the entire course. So we have some new options uh, available, and those are all made clear through getting through the obstacle course, doing the blueprint call and uh, checking out your options from there. So thank you guys for uh, playing that clip from Stephanie. She did a great job and she herself has found out multiple ways to make the course pay for itself. And that's how we designed it. It's not a throw some money over the wall and hope and wait and pray. It's throw some money into yourself and use it every day. You're going to use these skills for creative thinking, creative problem solving, critical analysis to tell if something's fact or false, you know, fact or fiction before you make a decision so you can make a better choice in life. So with that, I'm going to set that down. And now we're going to talk about this intermission clip that we're going to play first. The documentary, documentarian, YouTube documentarian, Jake Tran has been pumping out a lot of content over the past couple of years. He's become very successful. He's in his young, he's in his early 20s. He's probably like 23, 24. Yeah, he has young. now systematized Talented. and delegated to other people on his crew. So he has other people like reading narration. Uh, this this piece we're going to play tonight is uh, a, it's on the Jake Tran brand, but it's not narrated by him. And I think some of the research in it isn't as sharp as Jake would have done himself. So He's improved, like they're expanding. They have some, have some improvements. So what we're going to do is present some very fine work and the few little snags or unrefined edges of it. We're going to help smooth those off because we don't want you going away necessarily believing things that uh, are not true. So there's commentary uh, to the effect of uh, Soros's relationship with the third Reich when he was younger and his own words that he uh, articulated on 60 minutes. So there's a piece of evidence that has George Soros's comments. Yet this documentary that we're going to show you is going to act like that's conspiracy theory and doesn't exist. I don't think they're being disingenuous or covering anything up. I think they just assumed that because everyone said these things that, uh, you know, it's not true. It's not true. It's anti-Semitic. You can't say that, that they didn't even look 
So we are going to show you the 60 minutes piece where George Soros says it was the greatest time of his life helping the Nazis hunt down his fellow Jews. Not my words. George Soros said that. I'm just letting you know there's an artifact in history that says that. That's part of what forensic historian does. Says there's this interesting thing that exists. Would you like to see it? Psh, here you go. The other part is uh, George Soros and his quantum fund that broke the Bank of England in 1991 was funded by Rothschild in 1968. Uh, oh. That article also has been deleted from the Internet. The Washington Post does not want you to see uh, the Gnomes of Zurich article where it clearly articulates that Soros got his start from the Swift, Swift Rothschild family. So makes sense. Askenazi Jew, uh, Jewry, which would be Eastern European Jewry. Yeah, it makes, yeah, I mean, I can see sort of at least, I'm not saying it's because they're Jews, it's because they have a, a similar social network. I'm not surprised that there'd be a connection there. It's all 13th tribe to me, man. I don't know. Yeah, and <laughs> tribe of Judah. Yeah, sure. I'm just, I'm just outside. Maybe I'm Dan. <laughs> no, no comment on that. I think it's a little messy. All right. So let's go ahead and roll the Jake area. Tran documentary, the most evil man in the world, whatever he called it. It's about George Soros. There is some good educational stuff in here. And I will say this. I don't hate Soros as a person. I dislike that he uses his 17 billion to remove the freedom of people who already had it well set up. Okay. He hung out in America while he crashed the British pound in 1991. He did a lot of smart things as a cunning, ruthless, yeah cartel Ruth, capitalist ruthless. this is not moral ethical integrity that he's demonstrating in these actions but he was a cunning and ruthless investor and was willing to put he was willing to commit fully to his goals when he broke the bank of england and i would argue with his open society foundations he is just as committed at destroying american constitutional republic and replacing it with a socialistic democracy Oh yeah, that's that goes along exactly with what we just referenced in the book. Uh, which book was that? The, the second volume, I think, of H.G. Wells. All right, so let's go to intermission. This is the documentary by Jake Tran about George Soros. It's 1992 and things were not looking too good for the British economy. The UK was on the verge of a recession, inflation was out of control, and for two years, the Bank of England spent billions trying to artificially prop up the value of the British pound to avoid a complete freefall. But to no avail, things were on the verge of collapse. Everyone was holding their breath, waiting for impending financial doom. Everyone except for a man named George Soros. It's the evening of September 15, 1992. George Soros turns to his associate and tells him that it's quote, time to go nuclear, end quotes. Soros then bets everything he has against the British pound. Just 24 hours later, his bet pays off. The value of the pound nosedives, and George Soros walks away with over a billion dollars in just 24 hours, profiting from the downfall of one of the world's biggest economies. It would be a day that would go down in history, the day George Soros broke the Bank of England while at the same time making more money than any hedge fund manager has ever made in a single day. And from there, his wealth and power continued to skyrocket. Today, George Soros is one of the wealthiest people alive, at a net worth of $8.6 billion. But that number is a little deceiving. George Soros is actually worth a lot more than that. But George Soros is smart. He knows that it's never too good to appear too rich and powerful, or else the peasants will come knocking on your door with pitchforks, demanding you pay your fair share. That's why Soros actually has around another $17 billion stowed away in what's called the Open Society Foundations, which is basically a charity that Soros started. That way, on paper, Soros is technically worth only around $8 to $9 billion, but he has control over the rest of that money, and he's still able to use that money to shape the world in his image. 
while saving a lot of money in taxes. This is because Soros understands the game. He knows that it's not about how much money you own, because the money you own can be taxed among other things, but it's all about how much money you control. See, control is the name of the game, and Soros has become a master at control. Today, Soros is at the center of many conspiracy theories. He's thought to be one of the key puppet masters of the world. The puppeteer behind things like the European migrant crisis, to funding protests and riots in America, to provoking the 2018 Armenian Revolution among other things. But how much of it is true? After all, funding chaos is nothing new. The CIA has been doing it for decades to topple foreign leaders for just a few million dollars each. How far-fetched could it be for a billionaire to do the same? My name is Jake Tran, and we make documentaries on money, power, war, and crime so that you can see the world for what it really is. A giant game of acquiring power. You can't get out of this game either way, so instead of being a victim, why not learn to be a better player? Your parents, teachers, friends, society will never teach you any of this, so we're going to. And this is George Soros. study medicine, law, or politics might have some cliché explanation like making the world a better place or helping people. But deep down, most doctors, politicians, and lawyers who rise to the top of their fields are in it for two things, the thrill and the money. But the finance guys? They don't have time for pipe dreams or even pretending to believe them. They're not planning on changing the world. They don't claim they're trying to save lives. They're there to get the bag, to get the money and the glory. That's it. And in the world of finance, there's only one type of firm that can give you both of those by the bucket load, a hedge fund. Hedge funds are a special beast that allow the hedge fund manager to get insanely rich in very clever ways. Maybe we'll make a video breaking this down in the future. But that was Soros's first real move into the world of high finance. He created his own hedge fund in 1970. And by 1992, Soros came across the opportunity of a lifetime that would change everything. It was the end of World War II. European countries had gone to war with each other twice in the last 30 years, and something had to change. The economic cost and chaos were just too great to go through again. But what could a bunch of random European countries do to prevent another war? The answer? Raise the stakes for everyone involved. Make it so risky, so economically stupid to go to war, that everyone in Europe would think twice, or even three times, before taking the plunge. And the best way to do that was through trade. By trading with each other more and making their economies dependent on each other, if one Western European country went down, everyone else was going down with it. That way, the next European leader to declare war would think long and hard about the economic impact it would have on his people before pulling the trigger. And it worked. In 1951, a bunch of European countries signed the Treaty of Paris and created the European Coal and Steel Community. A couple of years later, another treaty led to the establishment of the European Economic Community. Basically, over the next few decades, there were a lot of treaties, a lot of partnerships, and a whole lot of cooperation. 
But then, around the 70s, all these European countries started thinking, hey, if we're sharing our entire economy with everyone else, wouldn't it be easier to just have one currency for all of us to trade with? Instead of wasting time, money, and effort on converting German marks to French francs and Spanish liras, why couldn't they all just pick a single currency and stick with it? And that's where the ERM came in. In 1979, almost all the Western European countries joined what was called the Exchange Rate Mechanism, or ERM. The ERM assigned every country a fixed exchange rate pegged to the strongest currency at the time, the German mark. All that jargon basically means that this new ERM system would make trade easier so that Europe could slowly transition to having just one currency to rule them all. Everyone was happy to get on board. Everyone, except the UK. It took 11 years for Britain to join the ERM, and when they did, it wasn't really because they wanted to. Things hadn't been going well for the UK economy, and they hoped that by finally joining the ERM, their economy would stabilize a bit but there were serious problems. Once the UK joined the ERM, the pound was given a set value of 2.95 German marks. That means one British pound equaled almost three German marks. They were given a 6% margin of error on either side, meaning if the currency dropped or went over that 6%, they would be kicked out. The only issue was, before joining the ERM, the UK had been on the verge of a recession Inflation was out of control, and joining the ERM had kinda just been a Hail Mary to try to stop the economy from spiraling. Unfortunately, not even that could help. October 1990, the UK officially joins the ERM, and from his office in New York, George Soros realizes he's been given the opportunity of a lifetime. There's no way the UK can keep up with all the restrictions and requests the ERM is throwing at them. If Soros could bide his time, if he could keep building up his position against the British pound before the currency drops, he could make unbelievable profits. So, for the next two years, he quietly, carefully builds up his short position against the pound to $1.5 billion. The UK government did everything it could to stay in the ERM. For two years, the Bank of England spent billions of its foreign currency reserves to buy pounds and keep the value of the pound up. But by 1992, things weren't looking too good. There was no way the UK could keep up its buying spree. It was running out of foreign currency, and dropping out of the ERM was becoming inevitable. And here's the thing. As soon as the UK drops out of the ERM, all that money it spent trying to artificially increase the pound's value, it would all be for nothing. The pound's value would drop right down to where it was supposed to be all along. And the UK economy? It would lose billions. It's, quote, time to go nuclear, end quote. That's what George Soros said to his associate on September 15, 1992, as the British economy was on the verge of collapse. And here's how his short worked. Let's say George Soros had $15 of his client's money in his hedge fund. He would take that $15 and exchange it for pounds. Let's say he gets around 10 pounds. He would then go to British banks and say, Hey, I'm a famous hedge fund manager. Look, my accounts have 10 pounds in them. Could I use that as collateral to get a loan from you? I'll pay you back with interest. And these companies would look at the accounts and see Soros' average returns and think, Yeah, why not? 
So they give him another 90 pounds. Now what started out as $15 now turns into 100 pounds. He would then keep doing this, exchange dollars for pounds, then go to British banks to borrow more pounds. And for the next few months, he'd hang on to his pounds, waiting for a sign that the pound is about to crash. Then, right before it crashes, he exchanges his pounds for German marks. Let's say 100 pounds would give him 295 marks. A day later, the pound loses 10% of its value. Now, if he exchanges the 295 marks back, he would get 110 pounds. So he goes back to the banks with his 110 pounds, pays them the 90 plus a little bit of interest, and walks away with almost 10 full pounds in profit. Simple, right? Well, imagine doing that on a scale of billions of dollars. Because that's what Soros did. On the morning of September 15, 1992, George Soros had a $1.5 billion short position against the pound. That meant he had around $1.5 billion in pounds waiting to exchange them for marks. That evening, the president of Germany's central bank gave a statement saying some countries would soon, quote, come under pressure, end quote, from the ERM. That was Soros's sign. He told his associate to go for the jugular. So, as Europe slept, Soros borrowed and collected pounds from anyone he could. As quickly as the pounds flowed in, he sold them for marks. By the time trading opened on September 16, 1992, George Soros's short against the pound equaled $10 billion. As trading opened, other hedge funds and trading firms got wind of Soros's bet and started doing the exact same thing, selling pounds. As some hedge funds sold pounds, more hedge funds felt like they had to follow suit. All of the selling meant bad news for the pound, and nothing the UK did could keep it from losing value. They tried buying back pounds. They tried raising interest rates. But the hedge funds just kept selling every last pound they had. By the end of September 16th, the inevitable had become a reality. The UK had to leave the ERM. Now, with the pound back on the open market, all the Bank of England's buying to keep the currency stable came undone. The pound's value dropped nearly 15%. And George Soros? He cashed in. His $10 billion was worth well over $11.5 billion now. In just 24 hours, he had made more than a billion dollars, profiting from the downfall of one of the world's biggest economies. In 2016, George Soros was worth nearly $25 billion. He had made it in every sense of the word. He was rich, he was successful, he was a legend in his industry. So in 2017, he donates more than $18 billion of his own money to charity. Such a nice charitable guy, right? He's made all these billions over the years and now he's looking to give back. Think again. You see, in 2008, a law was passed that would put Soros on the line for $7 billion in tax by 2017. That's more than 25% of everything he had. So Soros had to find an alternative. Instead of paying $7 billion in tax to a government that could use it for whatever they wanted, why not avoid paying any tax at all? To do that, he would follow the example of hundreds of billionaires before him. 
he would donate to charity. Luckily for him, he already had the perfect charity to donate to, his own. For decades, he had been the chairman of the Open Society Foundations, a charity that does everything from offering scholarships to supporting independent cultural groups. And sure, the money he would donate to the charities wouldn't technically be his anymore, but he would still have all the control. If he wanted to start a business in some African country, he could easily use his charity to fund a local school or hospital. And in exchange, that country's government would have to open all the doors necessary. So, in 2017, right before the tax laws that would cost him $7 billion kicked in, he donated almost 80% of his wealth to charity. Coincidentally, Soros paid zero taxes from 2016 to 2018. His reason? A couple of, quote, bad investments, end quote. Just like he had always done, Soros had played the system and walked away the winner. Over the years, George Soros has become the subject of lots of different conspiracy theories. There was the one where people claimed he had helped the Nazis to murder Jews, even though he was only 13 years old at the time. Several presidents, including Donald Trump, have accused him of paying people to protest against movements or laws he doesn't like. And, of course, he's been accused of owning Antifa and Black Lives Matter. But we've looked into these claims and the only thing we can really accuse him of is being a smart and sometimes very lucky businessman. George Soros is a master at playing the financial system to get what he wants, but he's not the only one who will go to great lengths to achieve his goals. The American government is even more notorious for the things it will do to protect its interests, and there's no better example than the CIA's Black Site program. Between 2001 and 2009, the CIA kidnapped hundreds of suspected Arabic suspects to interrogate using some of the most brutal, bloodthirsty techniques known to man. It didn't matter that lots of those men and women they were questioning were actually innocent, or that what they were doing to them was completely illegal. In their minds, every last despicable thing they did to their prisoners was 100% justified. And honestly, CIA black sites and the enhanced interrogation techniques they used is probably the darkest, most sinister topic we've ever covered on this channel. Obviously, going into the horrifying details of the creative ways the CIA found to break their prisoners would set off a million red flags and get any public video instantly demonetized on YouTube. That's why, to share every last horrifying detail with you, we've had to release it as a full-length private documentary available only all right, so I guess my main issue with that clip is at the end, they try to sweep a whole bunch of stuff under the rug. So let's deal with the 60 minutes clip because that was not, not accurate what they said at the end there. They made it sound like the poor guy was accused of something he didn't have any participation in, and that's the opposite. He was of only truth. 13 years old. It, let's, let's play the clip and see what he has to say for himself. <laughs> This is a clip that they've tried to get rid of everywhere. You know, oh, yeah. it's you don't post this on Facebook or YouTube or Instagram because they'll ban you for it. But 60 Minutes once found it newsworthy. What has changed except 18 billion dollars going to buy off DAs and make woke culture a thing in America? Because that's where that's coming from. But let's go to his 60 Minutes clip and let's learn a little bit about the guy who considered, considered himself the Messiah. And we'll get into that reference as well. 
Of all the financial titans and philanthropists of the 20th century, none are more complex or mysterious than George Soros. Like Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, and the Rockefellers, he amassed billions through ruthless business decisions, only to turn around and give away most of his fortune to advance his own personal philosophy. He can move world financial markets simply by voicing an opinion, or destabilize a government by buying and selling its currency. He also pledged more aid last year to help people in Russia than the U.S. government did. But now George Soros is worried. He thinks the global economy is coming apart at the seams and that the world needs to be protected from people like George Soros. We may now think that everything is fine, but the fact is that the system is broke and it needs fixing. What you're doing is, is, is asking uh, some form of regulation to protect the world against you. Well. I am a player, and I think all players should be regulated. There have to be rules of the game. Take 81,000 to buy. Buy 48,000. Buy 69,000 YUM. Right now, his quantum group hedge fund moves $14 billion of rich investors' money around the world every day, looking for profits and answering to no one. Soros makes huge bets on whole countries and economies. Last year, when he saw cracks in the Asia boom, he began selling the currency in Thailand. Traders in Hong Kong followed suit, triggering a financial crisis that plunged much of Asia into a depression. In the last two years, you've been blamed for financial collapse of Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, Japan, and Russia. All of the, all of the above. Well, all of the above. Yeah, yeah. Are you that powerful? No, I think there's a great misunderstanding. The Prime Minister of, of Malaysia. Yes. Um, said that the region spent 40 years trying to build up its economy and along comes a moron like Soros okay. with a lot of money and it's all over. He called you a criminal. It's easier for him to blame an outside force <clears throat> than to admit that they were mismanaging uh, their economy and their currency. The uh, French finance minister uh, talked about hanging uh, speculators from lampposts. Soros says the Asian currencies would have collapsed even if he hadn't been in the market. They were overvalued. He says people tend to follow his lead because he's been so successful. I think that uh, I've been blamed for everything. I am basically there to, uh, to make money. I cannot and do not look at the social consequences of, of what I do. This man is uh, a carnivore of the first order. Jim Grant is the editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer and one of Wall Street's most respected analysts. He never tires of watching Soros, in part because of the huge bets he's willing to place on his hunches. He has um, always amazed the people he's worked with at his audacity and his willingness to back up his commitments with enormous sums of money. It causes the blood to drain from ordinary mortals' faces. Like risking $2 billion in Russia. When the Russian market began falling apart in August, Soros was the country's single largest investor. He called the U.S. Treasury and asked Uncle Sam for $7 billion to prop up the ruble. When U.S. officials failed to intervene, Soros wrote a letter to the Financial Times of London saying he thought the Russian currency should be devalued by as much as 25%. A few words from Soros were enough to cause panic selling that fueled the crash. What's it like to have a statement that you make have such serious, grievous consequences? I mean, you can, 
it, it looks to me like in a number of situations you can take a position against a currency or make a statement and the whole country falls apart. Well, it's a tremendous sense of responsibility, actually. Uh, and, it, and it's also a humbling experience because I am actually trying to uh, do the right thing and sometimes what I do uh, has an unintended negative consequence as it did in, in Russia. For both the Russian middle class and for Soros, who lost his $2 billion. Whatever his motivations, no one can accuse him of greed. He's backed away from the day-to-day -day operation of his businesses and is giving away his billions now with the same determination that he made them in places like Haiti, a country that has less money in the bank than he does. Last month, he brought the First Lady with him for a look at some of the projects his foundation is funding. This is Mr. George Soros, and uh, he's going to be helping the hospital. This year, Soros plans to give away almost $500 million around the world. In Bosnia, when the water supply to Sarajevo was cut off at the height of the siege, it was Soros who wrote a check to jury-rig a pipeline through an abandoned highway tunnel. $5 million up front can be more valuable than $50 million a year or two later. Ambassador Richard Holbrook brokered the peace in Bosnia. At one point, after the Dayton peace agreements in Bosnia in 1995, for, for a considerable period of time, George had given more money to implement the peace agreements than the U.S. government had. He just could move that fast. In Russia, he pledged $100 million to help scientists who might otherwise have sold their expertise to bidders like Iran or Iraq. In Eastern Europe, he's educated a new generation. And in Ukraine, he spent millions retraining the old Soviet military. At the center of George Soros, there's an inherent contradiction. Which is? Which is, on one hand, uh, you're, the, you're the capitalist who does not care about the social consequences of his act. And on the other hand, you are a philanthropist who cares only about social consequences. How do you resolve the two? Recognizing that, that uh, as, a, as a competitor, I've got to compete to win. As a human being, I, can, I, I am concerned about the society in which I live. Which George Soros am I talking to now? The amoral George Soros or the, the moral George Soros? Uh, it's one person. It's one person who at one time engages in amoral activities and at the rest of the time tries to be moral. To understand the complexities and contradictions in his personality, you have to go back to the very beginning, to Budapest, where George Soros was born 68 years ago to parents who were wealthy, well-educated, and Jewish. When the Nazis occupied Budapest in 1944, George Soros's father was a successful lawyer. He lived on an island in the Danube and liked to commute to work in a rowboat. But knowing there were problems ahead for the Jews, he decided to split his family up. He bought them forged papers, and he bribed a government official to take 14-year-old George Soros in and swear that he was his Christian godson. But survival carried a heavy price tag. While hundreds of thousands of Hungarian Jews were being shipped off to the death camps, George Soros accompanied his phony godfather on his appointed rounds, confiscating property from the Jews. These are pictures from 1944 of what happened to George Soros's friends and neighbors. You're a Hungarian Jew who escaped the Holocaust mm -hmm. by posing as a, a Christian. Right. And you watched 
lots of people get shipped off to the death camps. Right. I was 14 years old. And I would say that that's when my character was made. In what way? That one should think ahead, one should understand and, and anticipate events. Uh, and uh, one, one is threatened. It was a tremendous threat of evil. I mean, it was a, a very personal experience of evil. My understanding is, is that you went out with this protector of yours who swore that you were uh, his adopted godson. Yes, yes. Went out, in fact, and helped in the confiscation of property yes. from the Jews. That's right. Yes. I mean, that's, that sounds uh, like an experience that would send lots of people to the psychiatric couch for many, many years. Was it difficult? Uh, uh, not, not, not at all. Not at all. It, uh, maybe as a child, you don't you don't see the connection, uh, but it was it created no no problem at all. No feeling of guilt. No. For example, that uh, I'm Jewish, uh, and here I am watching these people go. I could just as easily be there. I should be there. None of that. Well, uh, of course, I, uh, I could be on the other side, or I could be the one from whom it, the thing is being taken away. Uh, um, but there was no sense that I shouldn't be there, because uh, that was, uh, uh, well, actually, funny way, it's just like in markets that if I weren't there, of course I wasn't doing it, but somebody else would, would, would be taking it away anyhow. In other words, the, whether I was there or not, I was only a spectator, the property was being taken away. So I had no role in taking away that property. So I had no sense of guilt. Are you religious? No. Do you believe in God? Soros told us he believes God was created by man, not the other way around, which may be why he thinks he can smooth out the world's imperfections. When we went with him to Ukraine, he was treated like a visiting head of state and was received by the president. Then he was received by the prime minister and finally the central bank. 20% in cash. They even allowed him to look at the books and asked him for advice. Lots of people want George Soros's advice, most recently, South African President Nelson Mandela. Actually, President Mandela uh, asked me how could South Africa protect itself against speculators like you? And I told him, I wrote him a memo, trying to give him the best advice I could, uh, how to uh, uh, reduce the, the, the uh, exposure of South Africa to, to speculative attack. That's the old stop me before, before I kill again approach, right? Well, You're telling this is what you can do to stop me. Whether I or somebody else uh, does whatever is happening in the markets, it really doesn't make any difference to the outcome. I don't feel guilty because I'm engaged in an amoral activity which is not meant to have anything to do with guilt. Part of the reason he is so rich is that the Soros hedge funds operate offshore in the Netherlands Antilles to avoid scrutiny by the Securities and Exchange Commission. So even while Soros tells Congress and the Treasury that hedge funds must be regulated to stop the global crisis, he's avoiding the rules. Why is it that, uh, that Americans can't invest in the quantum fund? 
It's an offshore fund. Why is that? Because the fu a fund is not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, so so uh, uh, we, we are not licensed to do business in the United States. That's right. Because? Be because we are not registered with the Securities <laughs> and Exchange Commission. Because we, we find it more convenient to operate without it. So in some ways it's to escape regulation. Yeah, that's right. But you've been sitting here talking about uh, the need for regulation. Yes, and whatever regulations are imposed, we will obey. We will. We will. We, we already conform to every conform to everything. If the beneficiaries of Soros's billions do not understand the intricacies of SEC rules and offshore hedge funds, they do understand what he's done for them. The president of Haiti is reading his new book, The Crisis of Global Capitalism, and so is President Clinton. Will all the attention spoil George Soros? George Soros, in a way, is, uh, is Donald Trump without the humility. <laughs> One of your money manager told us uh, uh, that uh, you know uh, George really does think he's a god. <laughs> I mean, if you think that you're god and you go into financial markets, they are bound to come out broke. So the fact that I'm not broke shows that I don't believe that I'm god. What a fascinating uh, interview from what was that 1998? Yeah, I think so. Was that Rob Park? Who who was the one that conducted that yeah i don't know that guy's name from 60 minutes i forget his I forget his name i don't think i ever knew it see, 60 minutes it. they would announce it has a charlie rose feel but it's obviously not charlie yeah rose. i was looking up uh all right so there's a couple of points let me show you in the book cam because there's a lot of thoughts going through all right so first off you got to see the 60 minutes clip in context and yes he was 14 but adopting an alternative identity, lying about who your dad is, going around to all the people that you're uh, in, in the same social group with and aiding and abetting, taking their stuff and him not having regrets or finding that tough. I just thought that was interesting. Not making accusations. I'm saying <clears throat> Jake Trans guys didn't mention that at all. They acted like it's a conspiracy theory that there's nothing to it. At least we showed you the uh, the footage. That's how All they right, can so keep their documentary on YouTube and funded. This is Alchemy of Finance, Reading the Mind of the Market by George Soros. This is from 1987. This is before he took over and uh, you know crashed a British pound and, and shorted it and everything. You know, a couple years later. So th this is an interesting book. Uh, it shows uh, the the origins, like his reflexivity theory, these sort of things, uh, where he made his money. It's like his his. This is like his Bible, right? He's not religious. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, let's see. Browser. Let's go to the beginning of George Soros's quantum fund. You'll notice I have taken you to a page formerly of the Washington Times. I have to go to the Wayback Machine. You know why? Washington Times doesn't stand by this piece. They won't let you see it anymore. It's censored. Why would they censor it? Well, Geneva Gnomes Global dread the gnomes of zurich were derogatory caricatures of secretive greedy stiff swiss german bankers and it goes down into this next paragraph so they're going you know, it's a little introduction paragraph let me get to it on screen so i can scroll around here here we go <clears throat> 
Uh, let's see. Uh, the greedy Ger Swiss German backer backers who ruled over the land of sec uh, secret numbered accounts for tax dodgers the world over. With the world's best financial intelligence service, they knew their stuff and seldom spoke, even in retirement. Their Geneva counterparts in French-speaking Switzerland were more sophisticated, relaxed in the company of global wheeler-dealers, and weren't afraid to speak their minds, albeit off-record. Such was George C. Carl Weiss, the brain behind Bank Privé, owned by the late Baron Edmund de Rothschild. His biggest claim to fame, George Soros and the launch of his quantum fund in 1969. Mic drop. You can go on to read about what Soros did with his money. We already heard that story. What we didn't hear is how he got started. Now, interesting fact. When I was interested uh, interviewing one of the authors of Dope Inc., because it's a conglomerative book many authors let's go here let's put it on the screen for you dope inc uh jeff steinberg i was interviewing him and he said uh, i said uh, you know what was soros's origins and he said the swiss rothschilds and i said jeff there are no swiss rothschilds man i've looked into this and he said you should go home and look again and i did and the swiss rothschilds uh, were an offshoot of the French Rothschilds. So French Rothschilds moved to France or moved to Switzerland. And uh, let's hey, take which one was the head of the French house? Well, I was I was going to take you to the oh, Swiss. It's the Swiss Rothschilds that also funded Bilderberg Group, and were on yeah, the steering yeah, yeah. committee in 1954. So there's a connection between the gnomes of Zurich and the funding of the Quantum Fund and Bilderberg. Even though that's not why I wore this T-shirt tonight, I just wore it because I was looking to get a T-shirt. All right, so. Um, Let's go back to the brain. Let's look at Soros. And what I'm looking for here in the model real quick, because we, we, we established Rothschild's uh, Bank Privé Quantum Fund. Now let me go Soros. Uh, see, he gives $18 billion to his charity. I'm looking for, there's an LA Times article from 2003 that's somewhere here in the Plex. And it shows uh, George Soros, the God who carries around some dangerous demons. I think that's the one I'm looking for here. You guys might have missed this. So I'm just going to bring it up here on screen so we can see a little bit better. This is the Los Angeles Times. They want us to buy stuff. Let's click no to that offer. Let's click close on that offer. George Soros, the God who carries around some dangerous demons. Now, if memory serves, this is the one where he called himself the Messiah. Let's see. Uh, maybe if I do a control F for Messiah, let's see. Mm -hmm. Will that work? In the, no, I have to open it in a browser. Messianic fantasies is the, uh, the term. Messianic fantasies? Yes. Let's just scroll down. Oh, it yeah. seems that Soros believes he was anointed by God. Well, didn't he just tell us he didn't believe in God? Quote, I fancied myself, I fancied myself as some kind of God, he once wrote. If truth be known, I carried some rather potent messianic fantasies with me from childhood, which I felt I had no, I had to control. Otherwise, they might get me in trouble. Megalomania. Mess wow. 
it's a sort of disease when you mm. consider yourself some kind of God, the creator of everything. But I feel comfortable about it now mm. since I began to live it out. Oh, so he went with a very sort of liberal interpretation of how to get over psychosis by just acting out your your crazy October 4th, fucked up behaviors. Yeah, that'll work. Los Angeles Times. Now you got the source. It's not hearsay. We uh, we read it into the record for you. Now let's go couple other steps here with george um so thanks real quick ld thank you it was, it was steve croft was the interviewer excellent yes steve croft yes i remember steve croft now that his memory clinton foundation Charlie. soros email hacks you know those sort of things uh that happened a couple years ago that happened around james alifantis comment and uh, there was there was uh, Soros money contributed to a nonprofit. Uh, anyway, we're not going <laughs> to go Anthony Wiener's right laptop. Oops, we don't have enough these time emails. To what difference at this point does it make? Oh, yeah, what difference does it make yeah, at this point? We we see he's uh, a friend of freedom and liberty. <laughs> and not funded by the people. Don't you love how he was sitting there and the Ukrainians are like, how do we do our central bank, George Soros, 1998? He's like, oh, this is great. They have no idea what they're doing. I can do anything I want in this. Right. And then you know, 2004, he ran the Orange Revolution in That's Ukraine. Right. And then 2014, right. he ran another Maidan revolution coup. in Ukraine. And then and let's meet the with cords. Yeah. And he's meeting with uh, Victoria Newland and Jeffrey <laughs> Pyatt. About the Ukraine situation, and you know, they're like it's all out wow. on the table for anyone who wants to look at it and not say, Well, it's anti Semitic to question Soros's motives. Like, I'm not saying he's doing it because of his religious or ethnic beliefs. He's he doesn't belongs. seem to care about his religion, he doesn't, he doesn't, like, he's, he's not religious. That's the whole thing. Like, that's the thing is like a lot of Jews, when people say to Jews, can speak, what, what are you talking about? These people are atheists. Like they hide behind the facade of Judaism, maybe because of the virtue signaling because of the Holocaust and it works out well in the networking, maybe, and then the connections. But other than that, these people are atheists. They don't care about the religion that they supposedly were born into. Give me a break. It's funny that questioning Soros brings about accusations of anti-Semitism when he was the one that helped confiscate Jewish possessions, not anybody talking about the story. Greatest time of his life. Greatest time of his life. All right. Anyway. We'll move on. I also, uh, before we go to any more stories, we talked about H.G. Uh, Wells's experiment and autobiography. This is H.G. Wells in Love postscript to an experiment and autobiography. Now, I got this book mistakenly because I thought it was his experiment and autobiography because I didn't know about it until you get the wrong book and you're like, oh, there's no Rhodes or Fabian reference references in here. But there was one Fabian reference, not substantial. But he basically says, uh, let me zoom it in here. In the autobiography, the two-volume set that we just went through, right? In the autobiography, I have told you how I tried to turn the Fabian Society into a sort of communist party, the samurai of the modern utopia. And I have hinted at the infirmities of character and purpose that wrecked that attempt. And then... Uh, the expansion of propaganda to the young, to the sons and daughters of socialists and liberals, and to the young insurgents who are to be found in every generation of university students. The Fabian meetings, which had been sober and uh, decorous disputations, 
with only a slight favoring of Hubert Bland, became suddenly very bright in animated gatherings of the young. And then oh, what he does, interesting, he they does, got to the young. Gets, what a surprise! Dude, he gets to the young and he starts banging all these chicks. Is what he does. No, oh, there you go. He's he's dating this one girl. I found myself assigned to peculiar interest in Rosamond. Let me get it on the screen. Uh, a dark eyed, dark dark eyed, sturdy daughter of Bland. So his buddy's daughter and the, the governess. governess. Rosamond talked of love and how her father's attentions to her were becoming unfatherly i conceived a great disapproval of incest and an urgent desire to put rosamond beyond its reach right so it's not just the biden family with these sort of problems so uh fact they probably party party with the fabians uh more animated and imaginative of the girl students that come crowd into the fabian society when my campaign woke it up they got woke back then kids see how it worked (laughs) out just saying all right. So other considerations for the intermission clips were what? And uh, so we'll just we'll, go over this. We'll do we don't more. Um, let me. Um, also, honorable mention of Salman Rushdie. Here's the satanic verses. This is the book that got them all in trouble. It's a novel. There's really not, you know, a whole lot in here. That's, that's like, another story. I forgot. Yeah, that's another one. But if you go to chapter nine, this Aisha ch- uh, chapter. He talks about these, uh, like a cleric. Oh, here he goes. This is the this is the interesting part. Um, so he's talking about an imam. Uh, let's see. All the young men surrounding her, uh, surrounding him, the imam, were well aware of his famous monograph on water, whose purity he drinks water all the time, whose purity the imam believes. Let me just zoom in. Get this source book out of here. There we go. Iman believes communicates itself to the drinker, its thinness and simplicity, the aesthetic pleasures of taste. The empress, his wife, he points out, drinks wine. Okay. Quote, drinks wine. Burgundies, clarets, hawks mingle their intoxicating corruptions within the body, both fair and foul. The sin is enough to condemn her for all time without hope of redemption. The picture on his bedroom wall shows the empress Aisha holding in both hands a human skull filled with a dark red fluid the empress drinks blood but the imam is a water man so anyway you can see why people of a certain religious persuasion might take such things and blood rights and cannibalism which is universal world over but i mean fucked up aisha was muhammad's young wife but we're not getting into that it's not top of the show one of the many people stay on the world right now not later well so what were the other clips we had for intermission uh so whether at this point um there's a lot of honorable mentions the intermission this week and i might even draw from this for next week or the next couple of weeks depending on what how the new cycle goes but there is what one two three four five six seven eight nine intermission uh Worthy. potential intermission clips yeah, candidates. Um, so uh, there is uh, just for people who are interested and want to follow up for clips that we can't really play right now. Senator Ron Johnson was interviewed by Dell Bigtree. Um, I guess the title of it was Pandemic Politics in America's COVID Cartel. Um, sure now that that's very... not Ron John with the surf shop. That's Ron John mm-hmm. who put the Senate inquiry December 6th of like Correct. 2021 or 2020. Yeah, 2020. That's where Thomas Renz and Malone and, and where they all got Ryan yeah. Cole and he got YouTube banned. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't say hydroxychloroquine because of that. There was a whole bunch of things that went down. Or was it? Well, this is the most recent one. No, that was the ivermectin one. But oh, then it, then it turned. But you're, you're right. There was a recent 
uh, panel he had where he allowed a Senate panel where he allowed essentially all these individuals to come talk about the the vaccine side effects and the issues with mRNA technology. And they all got banned. That's the gist. They oh, yeah. He was the, the first same thing one now. And they would clap and be like, you're right. You're Pierre right. Corey. Yeah, right. He, yeah, yeah. So he was the first. You're right. You're right. So um, if you want to see the Ron John, yeah, you got to go. So that was a good that was a good interview. Uh, The occultist transhumanism virtual nightmare exposed Jason. Okay, so this Jason Burmis is on up at Clay Clark. You got it. And we already played. It's very similar to the one certainly worth playing again. I have no issue with that because Burmis is the man and he does incredible work. But um, very similar to what we played before. I think that's a little bit longer. So you might have added more material or Clay Clark gave him more time or Clay Clark had a long opening. I don't know which one it is, so I'd have to check it out. But definitely um check it out you know it gets into obviously dennis bushnell and uh, transhumanism and uh, the nasa component not being really about uh space but really about you know the modification of the human species and transhumanism Um, we started you know hours and hours ago with julian huxley's science of life with hg wells and that's transhumanist bible right there yeah evolution plus control of life equals transhumanism he coined the phrase Julian Huxley. Did. And that's so we're, we're he's in charge of the World Eugenic Society and the United Nations Educational UNESCO type deal. And like that's the theoretical underpinnings. Then like Columbia University, what in the 1920s or 30s, like sort of takes that concept and combines it with social theory. And we call technocracy. it technocracy. Right. You got it. Yeah. But Columbia okay. University is just King's College in New York before. Yeah. Oh, before yeah. the revolution. Yeah, yeah. It's King's College. It's, it's Columbia King's- University. And Rutgers was Queen's College. I didn't know that about Rutgers. Queens College in New Jersey is Rutgers. now That's called crazy. Rutgers. Oh, and now you okay. see how the, the how it's structure all connected works. with the yeah. Anglo-American establishment. Or Columbia Anglo never stops being King's College. When Lionel Curtis goes and gives his speeches in 1923 at Columbia on how to make British Empire into Commonwealth so they can merge it with America, like he's telling, like he's telling the intelligentsia of America, this is what we're doing. From the British installation in America, King's College, Columbia Is Oxford University. then the analogy, like the analogy would be to Yale? Like all souls college would be one of the colleges. Like Yale has a col- uh, couple colleges that are very Yale is like America's Oxford. Oxford's a thousand years old, dude. America, that's what I mean. And, and Oxford's as an analogy, a thousand America's years old. Yeah. And the all souls group at Oxford that does the Rhodes Scholarships, scholarships. and implementation of his last will and testament, that's all legit history. And most Rhodes Scholars don't know about that stuff, but yeah. the ones who become CIA director like Woolsey, goddamn sure they do. You get to be president like Bill Clinton, goddamn sure they got like clued in on what the agenda is. That's right. And they're That's on board. Right. Otherwise, they wouldn't become untouchable. They wouldn't be supported by Lynn Forrester to Rothschild in the London School of Economics and The Economist. Well, let's not forget also just the capitulation by see there Hillary to see the little fly runner by Hillary Clinton. Sorry, Lynn. I hope I didn't step on your toes or whatever she said in that email where she seems to be a little bit uh the concerned. XO, XO miss you email from the WikiLeaks. <laughs> yeah, XO, XO miss you. That's what the I mean it's called uh, the, in WikiLeaks on the Hillary Clinton uh emails. The emails gotta subject, love the Wiener laptop. Miss you. And it's signed XOXO, hugs and kisses. That's a close relationship between Hillary and Lynn Forrester to Rothschild. And Lynn Forrester to Rothschild was running fundraisers for Aliphantus and James Brock. Wasn't that David Brock? David Brock. Aliphantus. There's a lot and that, of and Soros had dark. funding into Brock's uh, American American Bridge 21st Century Coalition, which gave money to Comet Ping Pong, $10,000. So we could have just, a town hall. I'm just curious about, yeah, the uh, 
spending, you know, 30 minutes to an hour with a slice of pizza. I'm just, I don't know. I've seen the emails. I'm just curious what that means. Um, Maybe it's troubling, but anyways, Uh, article. So continuing forward, um, curious, but very scared of what that might mean. Um, Safeguarding the future of the internet. This is World Economic Forum. So this is a 46 minute clip. This is sort of getting into the the need. They're calling out the need for greater regulation and a homogeneity. Homogeneity uh, when it comes to uh, control. I, that harkens back to Event 201. One of the big elements of Event 201 was making sure that there was a uniform message that was across the globe. And there's some consolidation. Kind of like a lockstep Rockefeller Foundation 2010 scenario. Kind of like that. They're just like, make that happen. So after that, we have, um, was bin Laden financed by the CIA CIA, inside the secret war of Osama bin Laden? This is 2001. This is in the memory hole, which we played, uh, I think was last week's documentary, but we played Alan Dulles. And Ooh, the right, origins, right, I think, right. of the OSS and the CIA. So this is another phenomenal, like this memory hole. We were talking about this before we went on. Fantastic work. Um, yeah, memory hole, a lot of YouTube channel. That I would, yeah, subscribe to that. Good. Just watch documentaries from 20 or 30 years ago to see what people knew back then. Yeah. So my answer, uh, did the CIA fund bin Laden? Kind of. Kind of. I mean, of, MI6 right. definitely did. CIA when, used uh, MI6 asset in their proxy wars over and over again. But can America be blamed for that? I don't think so. Cause the British, owe that they own that whole Arab proxy relationship all the way back to Sinjin Philby in the 1920s. Yeah. I was going to say anything. Kim Philby more. sold it to Alan Dulles uh, in the sixties. And then they continued to use that proxy relationship to put a thumb on the middle East without American fingerprints all over it. So we can go to uh, a little bit of that to introduce people like the historical evidence of that because Muslim brotherhood. Muslim brother, the extremist of essentially, yeah, the Mujahideen and the uh, freedom fighters for God. Yeah, Mujahideen, which then becomes the Al Qaeda, which supposedly we gave them cyclone. Yeah, that's Brzezinski, like 1977, eight, somewhere in there. And Um, Brzezinski was David Rockefeller's partner, so it's like the Rockefellers. And let's not forget, Brzezinski was one of the architects of the Trilateral Commission that opened us up too. But it really was Kissinger. And Nelson Rockefeller was vice president up till 74 when all that was going on. Right. And Kissinger is really the heart of all this because he started that. I mean, he went behind. um, Kissinger is his protege. uh, Yeah. Brzezinski is David's protege. And between those two twin towers, David and Nelson, they have the whole political spectrum on lockdown. It's exactly Kissinger's right. In fact, pro-communist, in fact, Brzezinski's anti-communist. They're run by two brothers who had towers named after themselves, dialectic. but I don't remember what happened to those towers. There's now perfect just a freedom dialectic. tower there. Yeah, it's very strange. I was just in New York yeah. and I couldn't quite find them. Um, the uh, There's also in Dope Inc., which you just referenced. I wanted. I was curious as to like what they obviously you know um, it's the subtitle. Well, yeah, there's a couple different subtitles, but about Kissinger. But they, I, I was curious what they said about Brzezinski. So there's not. They don't really have much about Brzezinski in Dope Inc. At least the version I have two versions. Um, I forget which version I referenced, but they did say he was essentially a lower. How they describe it? A a lesser power family in American politics. Low on like the sort of like. He's essentially an agent of like higher families that allow their their kin like like a uh, Rachel Maddow or uh, Mika Brzezinski, you know, you know these indiv- Fulbright scholarships or these uh, um, Rhodes scholars that are allowed to like, you know, 
go into the media, go into business. That's sort of like the type of politics. Brzezinski represents that portion, which he called the lower tier of like the higher families. I think that's how they described it. All right. So I I gave LD some direction. We're calling the audible because now that I'm thinking about it, maybe we should just find the Jeff Steinberg interview that I, I, I shot, but never released and play parts of that uh because he talks about soros real real quick yeah, before you do i just want to so and this doping stuff yeah let's i'm totally down for that i'm totally so but before we do that i just want to make people aware so if people are interested these other three clips so we played two of the intermission are definitely worth checking out uh jordan peterson had this article back off of masters of the yeah, universe really good yeah. really good he's, he's sort of attacking the new world order in his own way it's like hey um, globalists stop it <laughs> Um, the top 10 this is interesting top 10 books for the elite tell everything this is great reset jay Jay dyer Dyer. fantastic fantastic work there um and last but not least wikipedia and the war on science brett speaks with norman fenton now norman fenton we showcased he was interviewed by Dell Bigtree and he was a statistician that took the NHS data and was able to show that like the vaccine, you can literally make it a pandemic, the unvaccinated or the vaccinated with the way they're collecting their data. And he showed us how, how much bullshit all of this is. And so uh, it was a long form interview with Brett Weinstein uh, speaking with Norma Fenton. So anyone who's a nerd like myself, find that interesting, check it out. And so that goes, that's all of the intermission clips that we had <laughs> that we knew we couldn't get to, but you know, and flavor is playing those, we're gonna play whatever. whatever LD's finding right now. I'm having trouble finding that, Rich. Um, it's just it's well. Let's see. Tragedy and hope is your your page name, right? Oh, it's not on my Vimeo page. It's in like if you were in the back end of it, you could see like uh, uh, it might be an unlisted link or something like that. Okay, let me try my other browser so uh, right me, so while he's doing that it's not like I, part it's the part of the talk where webster tarpley goes into where he has anton shike and he goes no this is me interviewing jeff oh you interviewed in jeff Steinberg. i'm thinking of the when he did that what was it called more milk no nah, um palmerston zoo i'm sorry i'm getting a mix of palmerston zoo sorry yeah you're talking about the lectures versus yeah yeah all right so um the lecture series dope inc author co-author jeff steinberg because i think there was like five people that were in on that book at least there were yeah um steinberg i interviewed him because he was the rothschild expert and he knew more and had seen more and had been researching longer and so that's why there was a couple times when he had me scratching my head saying what about what swiss rothschilds and then once i figured out who that guy was oh, I was like, speaking oh, that's, of which the steering committee of bilderberg group speaking of which so james Meyer de Rothschild, 1792, 1868. Was he the first one? He was the one, the, the brother that was sent to friend, France? No, no, no. He's a, okay. Well, the of what date? Because I was thinking James Rothschild of the 20th century is the one who was uh ardent uh, Zionist who helped to establish Israel. Yeah, I'll put it on screen. The Knesset, it, there's a problem with this, the okay, verification of, of France. So, I don't well, know if this is true or not yet. So this is the problem. It's problem with verification. But here's I was just looking up to see which one, which brother it was. Is a French banking dynasty found eighteen ops uh, by James Mayer de Rothschild. Oh, I'm sorry, that was uh, James sent their th- uh, from there. Blah blah blah. Uh, Meyer Amschel Rothschild. No, no, Meyer Amschel was the father. Wanting his sons to succeed and blah blah blah. Meyer Amschel had his eldest son stay in Frankfurt while his four sons went. Yeah, but which one went where? It's in. It's actually in Tragedy and Hope. I went over this when I was hosting it. Let me bring up Tragedy and Hope. Right, Rich, I found part one and two. Which 
Which one do you want to go with when we get there? All right. Uh, <laughs> I'm, well, we'll see. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say right. this first on screen Rothschild banking family of Switzerland, 20th century. It was Maurice de Rothschild who died in 1957 that had started the Switzerland brand. So the Rothschild family, uh, Bilderberg group, 1954 to present. So Maurice de Rothschild on the steering committee toward the end of his life. Also Edmund Adolf de Rothschild of the Swiss Rothschilds uh, was participating in that. And here's Soros, the billionaire who built on chaos and uh, considers himself some kind of God also funded by that branch of the family. So let's go ahead. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's essentially what tra- tra- in tragedy, you know, says how the long is the thing. interview the- totally uh, in total, both those parts LD. Part one is a uh, hundred, uh, an hour and eight minutes. And uh, let's see. Part two dun, 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 is 53 minutes. So all right, so, all right, so I'd say we need to spot find the part where he talks about Soros, and we can do that for next week. Okay. And then let's play one of the other clips uh, as the rest of the intermission. Um, okay, as far as that, uh, either uh, Peterson, Dyer, or yeah, probably those two, one of those two. I mean, let's go must- with the Jordan Peterson message okay. to the globalists to back off. Back off. All right, let's see, because I thought it was well composed. He starts out with some good dry facts about Deloitte and Touche, biggest consulting company in the world. Then he swiftly moves on to saying what you guys are doing is overreaching and you're it's it's, it's a good warning. It's a non-confrontational of, to violence, but confrontational of we see what you're doing and we're calling you out. And uh, here's Jordan Peterson. Hello, everyone. I'm going to read to you today a piece I wrote for The Telegraph in the UK. I'm reading it because sometimes, rather than speaking spontaneously, it's necessary for me to craft my words with as much care as I can manage, especially when dealing with things that are pushing the limits of my conceptual ability, let's say. Writing is the deepest form of thinking, and sometimes I need to rely on it. And so that's why I'm reading it. Now, the next issue is how I'm going to read it. So I've written a number of these news pieces, let's say, commentaries recently, and people have objected. Some people have objected to my tone. I'm often dealing with things that I would say frighten me to take on to some degree. They're big issues and they're contentious. And so a handy source of impetus and power I mean, motive power in such situations is to harness a certain degree of outrage and anger. That also fuels my spirit, I suppose, in some sense, when I'm writing these articles. It would be easier in many ways just to sit on the couch and and read a Stephen King novel. But I have to get up the energy. And maybe I do that by relying to an untenable degree on wrath, which is a cardinal sin in some regards. Now, it's not like there's not things that are worth being irritable about. But I thought what I would do today as an experiment is to attempt to read this in the most calm and understanding manner that I can, despite its rather pointed message. And so I'm trying to get the tone right, you know, and I'm paying attention to the feedback I'm getting from friend and foe alike, let's say, 
and modifying my approach as a consequence. And so this is an attempt to modify it yet again in the hopes of attaining something better. And here we go. Deloitte is the largest professional service network in the world, headquartered in London. It is also one of the big four global accounting companies offering audit, consulting, risk advisory, tax and legal services to corporate clients. With a third of a million professionals operating on those fronts worldwide, and as the third largest privately owned company in the US, Deloitte is a behemoth with numerous and far-reaching tentacles. In short, it's an entity we should all know about, not least because such enterprises no longer limit themselves to their proper bailiwick, profit-centered business strategizing, say, but, consciously or not, have assumed the role as counselors to globalists whose policies have sparked considerable unrest around the world. If you're seeking the cause of the Dutch agriculture and fisheries protests, the Canadian trucker convoy, or before that, the rise of the so-called yellow jackets in France, the farmer rebellion in India a few years ago, the recent catastrophic collapse of Sri Lanka, or the energy crises in Europe and Australia, you can instruct yourself by the recent pronouncements from Deloitte. While not directly responsible, they offer an insight into the elite groupthink that has triggered these events, into the cabal of centralizing globalist utopians operating in the media, corporate and government fronts, wielding a nightmarish vision of environmental apocalypse. Outlandish claims. In May of this year, Deloitte released a clarion call to precipitous action, trumpeting the climate emergency that currently confronts us, called the turning point, a global summary. It is a stellar example of the kind of thinking characteristic of the European Union's bureaucratic overreach that generated Brexit. A very good decision on the part of the Brits, in my view, and one that is now threatening the very survival of that self-same EU. The report opens with two claims. First, that the storms, wildfires, droughts, downpours, and floods around the globe in the last 18 months are unique and unprecedented, a dubious claim. And implicitly, that the science is now at a point where we can say, without doubt, that experts can and must model the entire ecology and economy of the planet and that we must modify everyone's behavior moving forward by hook or by crook to avoid what would otherwise be the most expensive environmental and social catastrophe in history. The Deloitte models posit that climate impacts could affect global economic output and offer the following figures that unchecked climate change will cost us. 178 trillion over the next 50 years. That's $25,000 per person, to put it in human terms. Who dares deny such facts? 
stated so mathematically, so precisely, so scientifically. Let's update Mark Twain's famous dictum. There are lies, damned lies, statistics, and computer models. Computer model does not mean data. And even data does not mean fact or real world. Computer model means at best hypotheses posing as mathematical fact. No real scientist ever says, follow the science. Yet, this is exactly what bodies such as the EU consistently pronounce, pushing for collectivist solutions that often and inevitably do more harm than good. Solutions in sovereignty. What might we rely on instead to guide us forward in these times of accelerating trouble and possibility? Valid authority rests in the people. Truly valid structures of authority are local, not centralized for reasons of efficiency and emergency. This must not become the generation of yet another top-down Tower of Babel that will not solve our problems, just as similar attempts have failed to solve our problems in the past. Ask yourself, are these Deloitte models which are supposed to guide all the important decisions we make about the economic security and opportunity of families and the structures of our civil societies, accurate enough even to give those who employ them any edge whatsoever, say, in predicting the performance of a stock portfolio, one based on green energy, say, over the upcoming years? The answer is no. How do we know? Because if such accurate models existed, and were implemented by a company with Deloitte's resources and reach, Deloitte would soon have all the money. That is never going to happen. The global economy, let alone the environment, is simply too complex to model. It is for this reason, fundamentally, that we have and require a free market system. The free market is the best model of the environment we can generate. Let me repeat that with a codicil. Not only is the free market the best model of the environment we can generate, it is and will remain the best model that can, in principle, ever be generated with its widely distributed computations, constituting the totality of the choices of seven billion people. It simply cannot be improved upon Certainly not by presumptuous, power-mad, globalist utopians who think that hiring someone, mysteriously manipulating a few carefully chosen numbers, and then reading the summarized output means genuine contact with the reality of the future and the generation of knowledge unassailable on both the ethical and the practical front. the impact of delusional thinking. Why is this a problem? Why should you care? Well, the saviors at Deloitte admit that there will be a short-term cost to implementing their cure. 
which is, by the way, net zero emissions by 2050, an utterly preposterous and inexcusable goal, both practically and conceptually. This, by the way, is a goal identical to that adopted last week by the utterly delusional leaders of Australia, who additionally committed that resource-dependent and productive country to a 40% plus decrease by 2005 standards in greenhouse gas emission within the impossible time frame of eight years. This will devastate Australia, as the framers of such plans, with their it justifies everything emergency, know, and even somewhat admit to knowing. Here is the confession, couched in bureaucratic doublespeak from the Deloitte consultants. During the initial stages, the combined cost of the upfront investments in decarbonization coupled with the already locked-in damages of climate change, would temporarily lower economic activity compared to the current emissions-intensive path. The omniscient planners then attempt to justify this with the standard empty threats and promises. The suffering is certain, the benefits ethereal. Those most exposed to the economic damages of unchecked climate change would also have the most to gain from embracing a low emissions future. Really? Tell that to the African and Indian populations in the developing world, lifted from poverty by coal and natural gas. And think, really think about this statement. Existing industries would be reconstituted as a series of complex interconnected emissions-free energy systems, energy mobility, industry, manufacturing, food and land use, and negative emissions. That sounds difficult, don't you think? To rebuild everything at once, and better, without breaking everything. Fixing everything in a few decades in a blindly panicked rush while demonizing anyone who dares object. And what will it take to do so? Here's the most alarming part. Nothing more than, quote, a coordinated transition that will require governments along with the financial services and technology sectors to catalyze, facilitate, and accelerate progress, foster information flows across systems, and align individual incentives with collective goals. A clearer statement of totalitarian inclination could hardly be penned. Certain outcomes versus predicted outcomes. The one thing the Deloitte models guarantee is that if we do what they recommend, we will definitely be poorer than we would have been otherwise for an indefinite but hypothetically transitory period. 
yet any reduction in economic output, however temporary and necessary, will be purchased at the cost of the lives of those who are barely making it now. Period. Have you all noticed that food has become much more expensive? That shelter has become much more expensive? That energy is more expensive? That many consumer goods are simply unavailable? Can you not see that this is going to get worse if the Deloitte-style moralists have their way? How much short-term pain are you going to be required to sustain? Decades worth? All your life and the life of your children? It's very likely for your own benefit. Remember that. And all this painful privation is not only not going to save the planet, it's going to make it far worse. I worked for a UN subcommittee that helped prepare the 2012 report to the Secretary General on Sustainable Development. Whether or not it was a good idea to contribute to such a thing is a separate issue. I do believe, at least, that the report would have been much more harmful than it was without the input of the Canadian contingent. We scrubbed away several layers of globalist utopianism and Cold War-era conceptualization and cynicism. That was something. I garnered a key and crucial insight from the several years' work devoted to my contribution. I learned that the fastest and most certain pathway forward to the future we all want and need, peaceful, prosperous, beautiful, is through the economic elevation of the absolutely poor. Richer people care about the environment, which is, after all, all that is outside the primary and fundamental concern of those desperate for their next meal. Make the poor rich and the planet will improve, or at least get out of their way while they try to make themselves rich. Make the poor poorer, and this is the concrete plan, remember, and things will get worse, perhaps worse beyond imagining. Observe the chaos in Sri Lanka, if you need proof. There are clearly more important priorities than costly and ineffective emergency climate change reductions. Bjorn Lomberg's work, among others, such as Marion Tupi and Matt Ridley, has demonstrated that other pressing problems could and should take political and economic priority from the perspective of good done per dollar spent. Money could and should be spent, for example, to ensure the current health and therefore future productivity and environmental stewardship of currently poor children in developing countries, for example. How about attending to remediation of the actual world of pain and deprivation of such children, rather than saving the hypothetical world and the hypothetical world of future children in abstraction? Stirrings of revolt 
Citizens are waking up to this. Dutch farmers and fishermen are rising up. Canadian truckers are pushing back. And such protests are spreading and increasing in intensity, as they should. Why? Because Deloitte consultants and like-minded centralists are pushing things too far. It will not produce the results they are hypothetically intending. This agenda, justified by emergency, will instead make everyone poorer, particularly those who are already poor. This use of emergency force will instead make the lives of the working men upon whom we all depend for our daily bread and shelter more difficult and less rewarding. Finally, this use of emergency force will also make the environment worse, not better. Why? If you wreak your temporary economic havoc to eventually remediate the world, those whom you sacrifice so casually in the attempt will descend into chaos. In that chaos, they will then, by necessity, turn their attention to matters of immediate survival, and in a manner that will stress and harm the complex ecosystems and economies that can only be maintained with the long-term view that prosperity and nothing else makes possible. Critics of my view will say, we have to accept limits to growth. Fine, accept them. Personally, abandon your position of planet-devouring wealthy privilege. Join an ascetic order. Graze with the cattle. Or, if that's too much, and it probably is, then purchase an electric car, if you want one. But no diesel-powered emergency backup vehicle or electric power generator for you. Buy some stock in Tesla. That's probably the best bet on that front. But you don't approve of the likes of Elon Musk, do you? Stop flying. Stop driving, for that matter. Get on your bike instead in your three-piece business suit in the winter. If you dare, I'll splash you with icy and salty slush as I drive by in my evil but warm Ford Bronco SUV and help you derive the consequent delicate pleasure of your own narcissistic martyrdom. Save the planet with your own choices. But quit demanding that the rest of us blindly follow your diktats. Quit demonizing and castigating us merely because we don't just happily cede to you all the extant power. We're not evil just because we don't believe that you are omniscient. We're not evil just because we don't want you to assume omnipotence and omnipresence too. There is simply no pathway forward to the green and equitable utopia that necessitates the further impoverishment of the already poor, the compulsion of the working class, 
or the sacrifice of economic security and opportunity on the food, energy, and housing front. There is simply no pathway forward to the global utopia you hypothetically value that is dependent on force. And even if there was, what gives you the right to enforce your demands on other sovereign citizens equal in value to you? An alternative solution. A better way forward would be to prioritize the problems that beset all of us on this still green, functional, and increasingly abundant planet. With the requisite focus and attention demanded of a true political class elected by the people, capable of and willing to look at everything, trying to fix where necessary, trying to maintain as much freedom and autonomy as possible, and stop simply capitalizing narcissistically on the mere appearance of action, knowledge, and virtue. We should obtain true cooperative consent from those affected, farmers, truckers, working class people, who have turned in irritated desperation to figures such as Trump, and work with them rather than forbidding them with your power or improving them so they will be finally worthy of your time and attention. Help replace dirty energy with clean if you must, but do it on your own dime. And make sure that the results are cheap and plentiful if you want to help the poor and the planet. The warning bells are ringing. Listen to them before they turn into sirens. We will not advance without resistance through the straits of your enforced privation. We will not allow you to steal and destroy the energy that makes our lives bearable and that produces our food and shelter and housing and the sporadic delights of modern life just to address your existential terror, particularly when it will fail to do so in any case. We will not allow our children to be criticized first for having the temerity to merely exist and then deprived of the prosperous and opportunity-rich future we strived so hard to prepare for them. We remain unconvinced that your frightened and self-congratulatory moralizing and intellectual pretension, ignorance of the limits of statistics and misuse of arithmetic, we do not believe, finally, and most absolutely, that your declared emergency and the panic you sow because of it means that you should now be ceded all necessary authority. So, leave us alone, you centralizers of power, you worshippers of Gaia, you sacrificers of the wealth and property of others, you would-be planetary saviors, you Machiavellian pretenders and virtue signalers, objecting to power, all the while you gathered around you madly. Leave us alone, to prosper or not, as a result of our own choices, as a result of our own actions, in the exercise of our own requisite and irreducible responsibility. Leave us alone.
or reap the whirlwind and watch the terrible destruction of what you purport to save in consequence. Incredible, just incredible, really a sort of scathing rebuke and from a sort of philosophical, ethical, psychological uh, framing. And that's, that's, uh, it's more abstract and conceptual, but I always appreciate his, his insight and the way he sees um, the effect of believing that there are these rulers that have the powers that be, if you will, that have some sort of omniscience, some sort of higher knowledge than the rest of us, and that they are, you know, essentially in that capacity, metaphorically speaking, doing the Lord's work and making sure that they bring about the type of world that they need to bring about in order to save it. Of course, uh, one of the problems is, and he kept referencing this idea of models. So if we look here real quick, I played this. Uh, let's see if I can find it real quick. Yeah, here it is. I played this when I was hosting. Oh, my last time I hosted, I think, uh, whenever that was uh, by myself. And this was Jimmy Dore. We can't play it now. I already played it. Lockdowns actually saved, shockingly, few lives. And so what's interesting is this is when he's um, interviewing. Uh, I think his name is Stephen Henke. Uh, yeah, Steve Henke. And this is from he's a professor at Johns Hopkins University. And what's interesting about Mr. Henke is that he went in this uh, sort of he launched into and attacked King's College. Now, we just talked about King's College. Right. And he said, what's interesting about King's College, and this is the same people that came out and attacked him and said, now the study isn't legit. There are all these problems with it, is that they're the ones that have been doing the modeling for every pandemic for the past 30 years or potential pandemic, epidemics, SARS, MERS, these sorts of things. And they've been dramatically, by many orders of magnitude, wrong over and over and over again, most notably recently with COVID-19 again. And so he points out, I wonder if there is an incentive to go against someone, a social scientist like himself, that are supposed to do these types of uh, um, uh, uh, estimations. Well, it's a, it's a, a particular type of study and it's three in the morning, I'm spacing on it. It's um, uh, meta-analyses, I'm sorry, meta-analyses, these meta-analyses studies. And he showed, you know, that's not only that. So there's an issue with modeling. And I like the way Peterson said it. Well, models, models are to, a hypothesis to, and not- You have to take evidence from reality to make the model and they don't do that. Correct. They, in fact, they fit, they, it's prescriptive. They fit the evidence into their model. And he said something to the effect of hypotheses uh, promoted as mathematical fact, and that's I was like, that's brilliant because that's what they are. Their hypotheses promote as mathematical fact. Now, one more thing before I hand it over to you, Rich. There's this now too. Uh, there is no climate emergency. Now, this is another. This is from the it comes. I got this from Infowars and went to the Daily Skeptic. So this, let's just read here the political fiction that so. Let me just read this political fiction that humans cause most or all climate change and the claim that the science behind the notion is settled has been dealt a savage blow by the publication of World Climate Declaration, declaration signed by over 1100 scientists and professionals. Um, uh, the scale of the opposition to modern day. So let me just read this. Now I'll let you go. There, there is no climate emergency, said the authors who are drawn from across the world and led by the Norwegian physics Nobel Prize laureate, Professor Ivar Gaver uh, Gaver. Uh, climate science is said to have degenerated into a discussion based on beliefs, not on so sound self-critical science. And lastly here, the scale of the opposition to modern day settled climate science is remarkable. 
given how difficult it is in academia to raise grants for any climate research that departs from the political orthodoxy. A full list of the signatories is available here. Uh, this, that's what leads you over here. Um, another lead author of the declaration, Professor Richard Lindzen, has called the current climate narrative, quote unquote, absurd, but acknowledged the trillions of dollars and the relentless propaganda from grant-dependent academics and agenda-driven journalists currently says it is not. So it goes into, oops, sorry. This is the declaration. It gets into some of the, the issues with the science, the issue, the carbon dioxide. Greg Weiss had a really good report too this week about the importance of grass-fed beef and how it actually recycles and uh, carbon dioxide. You know, there's yeah, essentially- it takes a lot of propaganda like gas, to yeah. make you think that it's cows farting and right. not industry polluting. A lot of propaganda. Right? But let's go to the propaganda because Jordan Peterson named it. He said- there are some that are going to convince you that there's limits to growth. He's mm. talking about the Club of Rome, the inspiration for the World Economic Forum. And they had a preconceived agenda set out by H.G. Wells in his coterie, his, his group of friends of a philo philosophical persuasion of a modern utopia with the new Machiavellis and the open conspiracy and the new world order and the whole thing that he laid out, a world super state, world education, all these things, a world brain. H.G. Wells had hypothesized a world brain, which is very much what the Internet is. So there were people who shaped the ideas and then working groups during the 20th century, like the Club of Rome, came out with books like Limits to Growth, The First Global Revolution, 30 Year Update to Limits to Growth. Like they're pursuing these agendas in the agenda. They make humanity the enemy artificially, by the way, to fit their preconceived agenda of utopia. Uh, of an eco green agenda 21 2030 uh, variety. And that's based on cybernetics models. There's Jay Forrester. We could open that book and find his models in there where he had this uh, closed system feedback loops of pollution and industry and population and you know resources. It was ridiculous. It, it really is an absolute absurdity. Now, that's the conceptual foundation. Let's pay it. Uh, let's move forward a couple of decades to 91 Rio. To Sam Harris? No. no or I was going to say, well, yeah, we're going to do that in a second. 91 Rio, where essentially they really instantiated in the law and sort of a global initiative for agenda 21 and they decided after that, so, that that biden should be president and they <laughs> they made it happen you got clinton so, you got bush same thing they do with the Obama models they make it just make the data fit oh this hunter biden thing doesn't fit in don't include it in the model for the for the election you're gonna have you're a right. different outcome you're right straight up okay so now we're yeah, past intermission here. Let's hit this uh, Sam Harris topic because I want to get those Lex Fridman pieces on the record. But first, let's hear the coverage. I don't know much about Sam Harris. I knew he was on Joe Rogan. I knew a lot of people followed him. I couldn't figure out why. I still don't know why. I get launched into him a long diatribe. And I, I don't know. I they were He's... lost. And he seemed like he was sure he wasn't lost. He 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 has uh, uncorrupted himself of the pesky free will. That allows some of us to ask questions or to think or not to think. The gener the genesis Utilize of consciousness. The yep. The consciousness is not with the Sam Harris. So let's go and see what he said on the trigonometry podcast. Okay. And so those guys turned into journalists. They turned into journalists all of a sudden. That one dude when he's like, "Whoa, what?" And Sam's like, "Whoa." whoa, whoa. He's so. Who, that's when he got to contradict coverage. himself. He's like, well, that's when it's not really a conspiracy, but you just said it was a conspiracy. But it's not really a conspiracy. It's like, oh, dude, you're totally dude. caught now. It's like, let's just move left wing or right wing to that. And let's just remove that qualification and see, do you still agree with what you just said? And he's like, well, that's not really a conspiracy. It's like, oh, 
We should uh, which, have a meme that has his quote very much like I've seen like getting tweeted around only at the end. It's like, uh, you know, it wouldn't have made a difference if Hunter Biden had had children's bodies in the basement, just like Benjamin Franklin did. Right. Like just like meme it up a that's little a bit, just meme. a notch, just one notch, a, just like because Ben Franklin did that's have a multidimensional meme in both houses, America and Britain. It's not like, you know, yeah, I've seen like a, the. Wasn't it in France too? I thought because I thought Possibly. in France they tried to debunk He's that by saying that it was lodges, near bro. a graveyard. I don't know. He created America's first currency. That guy was deep, 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 deep in it. Hellfire Club, whole bunch of interesting stuff. Oh, I know. Heck of an autobiography. Speaking of autobiographies, uh, I'm sure H.G. Wells read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. You should too. Grand Observance uh, Lodge plus Ben Franklin. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, yeah. Grand. Sorry. So, so you want to play this uh commentary or the sorry the suppression of the hunter biden laptop story from the trigonometry podcast is that right i want to play the coverage of that clip because so we, we, we have two uh, flavors we have two flavors we have um we got and i have it, it in the i have out. it in the uh technology economics so it's it's right it's the second one down i'll be here I'll, I'll, it's uh one of those two so rich what ones you like to play we either have um, jimmy's gonna be funnier Jimmy's funnier. Ben's we could critique more, but Jimmy's funnier. So it's up. I don't care. I'm ambivalent. Either both it, are great. It's 3 a.m. I want to laugh. Okay. Jimmy, it is then. So that'll be the first one then. I think. Yeah. And it's not Schadenfreude if it's uh Schadenfreude is okay if it's not your main point. So I'll make my main point after we have the Schadenfreude. So Sam Harris, you know, he's the uh super smarty pants guy who says dumb shit all the time. Dumber than I'll ever say. And this is one of them. So what he's doing is he's saying the quiet part out loud. So what he's talking about is um, he's all for censorship and he's all for nefarious illegal shit as long as it helps his side politically. Because he he thinks Trump is worse than Joe Biden and worse than George Bush and Barack Obama. Uh, he's wrong about that. And so here we go. Watch Hunter this. Biden. At that point, Hunter Biden literally could have ha had the corpses of children in his basement, I would not have cared, right? It's like, it's, there's nothing. First of all, it's Hunter Biden, right? It's not. It so he doesn't, so we basically, he'll shield, I don't care, I, I will shield a child killer if it helps my political point of view. Okay, that's, that's his jumping off point. Okay, here we go. And, and he says it like it's smart. That's the beauty of this guy. Like he says the dumbest things possible and he says them <laughs> as if they're smart. Well, he'll tell she's going to keep doing it for another minute. Watch. Like it's not Joe Biden, but even if Joe, like even the, whatever scope of Joe Biden's corruption is like if you, if we could just go down that rabbit hole endlessly and whatever the scope of Joe Biden's corruption is, it is much bigger than Donald Trump's. Yes. That's the fact. But he's going to turn reality upside down and inside out because he's a partisan. He's and he's going to sound just as dumb as the overly religious people. He's lampooned his entire career. He's going to sound dumber than them. He's sounding dumber than them right now because I, a pothead dumb guy, can pick him apart and doing it with glee, by the way. Here we go. And why? Because he's an imperialist liar. That's why I don't like him. And un okay, let's back it up a little. So he's going to he's going to talk about Trump versus Biden, Trump versus Biden corruption. Ready? Whatever scope of Joe Biden's corruption is like if you if we could just go down that rabbit hole endlessly and and 
understand that he's getting kickbacks from Hunter Biden's deals in Ukraine or wherever else, right, or China. It is infinitesimal compared to the corruption we know Trump is involved in. No, he's just making. So did you hear what he just said? He said, I don't care if Joe Biden and his son are doing nefarious illegal deals and getting kickbacks from China and Ukraine. Those are two countries we're trying to start a nuclear war with right now. And he doesn't care about that. What does he care about? Trump's university. You know the difference between those two scandals? Trump university didn't involve the power of the government. Nobody voted for Trump's university. You see the difference? Trump's university didn't have the power of the government to do anything to you or to release propaganda or to start a war. Joe Biden and his kid, they have all that power. So that's why he's a thousand percent wrong. And his jumping off point that somehow Trump University is a bigger scandal than Joe Biden and Hunter Biden taking kickbacks from Ukraine and China. Not to mention that, but uh, the great Sam Harris was also once quoted saying Osama bin Laden is far less reprehensible personally to me than Donald Trump. So that's this. So this is a this is what you call Trump derangement syndrome. And that's a guy who's this is Sam Harris proving he's just as dumb as Louis Gohmert. <laughs> he's just as dumb. And you want to and again, you want to see he's so dumb. The guy who's who are hosting this podcast, who I'm sure respected him and were thrilled to have him on. They they can't let it go past. They challenge him. By the way, I've been on this show. It's a great show. It's called Triggered Pod. And I think they're libertarians. So we don't agree on everything, but we agree on some some things. And uh, at least they're honest. I like these guys because they're at least honest. We disagreed, I think, on COVID, but we agreed on other things. But watch this. It's like it's like it's like a firefly to the sun. Right. I mean, like there's just it doesn't even it doesn't even stack up against Trump University. Right. Trump University as a story is worse than anything that could be in, in Hunter Biden's laptop. That's just patently false. That's just a guy wishing that to be true. You're wishing that that's called a guy who never talks to anybody outside his bubble. I don't even know if he talks to Joe Brogan anymore because they parted on COVID. But here we go. In my view, right now, that's not that doesn't answer the people who say it's still completely unfair to not have looked at the laptop in a timely way and to have shut down the, you know, the New York Post's Twitter account like that. That's a, just a conspiracy. That's a left wing conspiracy to deny the presidency to Donald Trump. Absolutely it was. Absolutely. He's saying the quiet part out loud, ladies and gentlemen. So now all those people on January 6th, they had a point is what he's saying, because there was a huge left wing conspiracy to deny Donald Trump the presidency. He's admitting it. By the way, it was already admitted in Time magazine. Uh, front page story. But here I'll here he is admitting it. That's what he's doing right now, right? Jackson, I'm not missing this, am I? He's admitting that there was a left-wing conspiracy to deny Donald Trump the presidency. And if we, if we had to lie to do it, we'll do it. And if we had to censor accurate information, we do it. We don't care because Donald Trump is a big problem. That's what he's saying, right? Mm -hmm. 100%. He's saying that and he says like, yeah, I condone that and I support that. And yeah, that's a subversion of democracy. But this is exactly what you know we want. And you know, it's interesting because you had those 51 national security officials that came out and said that the Hunter Biden laptop story was fake Russian news. 
we all know that wasn't a mistake. And that just conf- this what he's saying now, you know, when you have elite liberal uh, ideologues like this that are coming out and saying that this was a conspiracy against Donald Trump. It just confirms everything we knew. It was not a mistake. This was a, you know, this was a conspiracy, a covert effort to try and, you know, withhold the presidency from Trump. And so let's now those now the hosts of the show push back. Right. But I think it was warranted. Right. And I'm and again, it's a coin toss as to whether or not Sam, I'm sorry, that particular piece. I'm, I'm really yeah. sorry. I, I was the one that said we should move yeah, yeah. on. But you've just okay. said something I really struggle with, that, which is the, kid, the, support. Kid, the, kid, the kids in the basement. You no no <laughs> fuck yeah. the kids in the basement. I mean, yeah. so it's funny that they say fuck the kids in the basement because that's basically been the United States. You know, fuck the kids is about democracy. That's basically been our foreign policy <laughs> for the last forty years, and that's Sam's policy on Palestine because he doesn't care how many Palestinian kids get killed by Israel. Fuck the kids. This is important. It's about my. It's about my side winning. Also, also pretty much Franklin uh, Bill, uh, Bill Clinton's relationship with Epstein and his associates, right? Yeah, fuck the kids. Yeah. yeah. In democracy, you're saying you are content with a left-wing conspiracy to prevent somebody being democratically re-elected as president. Well, no, I'm, I'm content. Well, so it's, but the thing is, it's just not left-wing, right? So Liz Cheney is not left-wing. Right. Liz Cheney is doing everything in her power to prevent somebody no, being Democrat. So he tries to weasel out of it semantically just now. Did you see that? Well, it's not a left wing conspiracy. So he's he knows the question this guy's asking. Sam now realizes he's stepped in it and there's no getting out of it. So he tried to play a word game there like a pussy and the guy caught him. He goes, OK, you're OK with the conspiracy. So he got him. And what? And yes, the answer is yes. Watch. Wing, right? So Liz Cheney is not left wing, right? Liz Cheney is doing everything in her power to prevent somebody no, being democratic. It, it's not like a, no, but there's nothing conspiracy. It's not. It, it was a conspiracy out in the open. It does, but it doesn't matter if it was. A, it doesn't matter what parts conspiracy, what parts out in the open. I mean, I think it's like. If people get together and talk and talk about what should we do with, about this phenomenon, you know, if, if it's like if there, if there was an asteroid hurtling toward Earth and and we got in a room together with all of our friends and had a conversation about what we could do to deflect its course. Right. Quick. Redefine conspiracy. conspiracy. You know, like some. Of- uh, yes, actually, it is a conspiracy is when two or more people conspire to do anything. That's called the conspiracy. So a guy who now is pretending not to know the definition of words, anything, because he got called out by these two guys for being a right-wing authoritarian fascist who's cool with censorship as long as it is the kind that helps him. And, of course, the problem with that is that when the other side is in power, then they're going to use that same kind of shit on you. And that's why we can't have this. You have to have a consistent standard and you have to have ethics and ideals. And if you don't stand by your ethics and values when it's hard to do it, like during Trump, then they're not values. They're hobbies. If you don't stand by your values when it's difficult, they're not values. They're hobbies, as John Stewart said. And so what I said to that bullshit was, hey, I'm for censorship if it helps my side politically. I mean, I just can't see a downside to thinking like this because I don't read history and I'm super smarter than you. Now, that did very well. I got 11,000. Now, I normally don't trend like that because there's there's some kind of suppression on my tweets, but somebody, they let this go through. 
And what happened? Boom. Sammy blocked me over that. Huh. Showing him to be just as thin-skinned as every person he's ever made fun of. Trump. So the people who hate Trump the most are the most like Trump in their shadow, if you know anything about Jungian psychology. And they project this part of themselves that they hate fiercely onto someone else. This, In this case, it's Trump. That's why you see the guys like Jenk uh, uh, Uger. You see the guys like Keith Olbermann or guys like this. They hate him. The people who hate him the most are the ones who are most like Trump in their shadow. And that's Sam Harris. And that's what this is. He didn't block me because I'm an annoying troll. He blocked me because I'm going to say shit that he doesn't want to hear that's true. And he thinks doing this will stop it, and it won't. Um, James Hanna, former NFL great, says, I was his biggest fan for a sev several years after college. I don't know what has changed him, me, the whole world, all of them. But whatever it is, I'm ashamed at how much I used to look up to him. Me too. Me too. Down here it says it all changed when he went after Brent Weinstein for speaking on the risks of mandating a novel COVID vaccine. If Brent can't ask, who can? Not very scientific, Sam. That's right. I didn't see where he went after Brent. I didn't. I didn't uh, know about that. But that's if he did, that shows you the lightweightedness of Sam Harris, and he is a lightweight when it comes to anything outside of talking about atheism. He gets his ass handed to him. No matter where it is, no matter what they talk about. I saw him try to debate Robert Shearer and Chris Hedges about the Middle East. He got his ass. He looked like an idiot. Go ahead. Go ahead. He's just arranged. I mean, like, you, <laughs> regardless of what you think of Donald Trump or not, I personally don't like him. And I thought he was a weak leader or whatever. But, you know, he sees Donald Trump and the democratic will of the people of this country that elected him as the equivalent of a meteor headed towards earth to kill us all that's what he said in that's there said. and that's how he views the democratic process therefore we need to have the deep state come in and you know subvert democracy oh you mean there's Go a ahead, supranational pause yeah, pause uh, yes i like this one there's it says, a big problem it's great that transcends like being ethical and having standards and values and appeal to systems that are consistent like free or appeal to rights based on natural like the rights of individuals like free speech and the right to bear arms and own property and these sorts of like very basic ideas no, i got it i got it they're scared they think it's like deep impact or armageddon <laughs> and so therefore they need deep state was it Bruce and, Willis and on the way to deep uh, state? They took a quick stop at Deep Throat, and they saw Anthony Weiner for a couple minutes. Anyway, <laughs> callback jokes from five years Hello? ago. Anthony Weiner. Oh my goodness, that's so old. Uh, that's wasn't so it? Oh no, Anthony. Wasn't that joke almost as old as his victims? All right, so uh, the laptop that Clinton got I in trouble because the emails were on the laptop. Sorry, I think Sam Harris. He might have had that Trump derangement syndrome. He's the first leftist to get called out for it. I mean. He really exposed himself there. And when we play this clip from Lex Fridman, where he says the opposite, like he says that he doesn't hate and these type of things. And then he just did all that right there in that clip that you just saw. So I wanted you to see the news and then we could see his views on free will or the absence thereof. So I'm just going to give you a brief before. Before, can we can I just give a quick discussion? Because like the, he had an impact on my childhood and my adolescence. Sam deep Harris impact. He had a deep impact with you. <laughs> 
not with me, but right. abstractly, I guess, oh, yeah. with my conceptual understanding of the world. Deep Impact uh, <laughs> is a movie where a meteor is going to. Oh, I know. It's Earth. Morgan Friedman. I'm and letting everyone the... in the audience okay. know. They, they had to have these meetings. They lie to the public. And it's like, what are we going to do to save the planet? Don't That's, they number? They do some database Trump, system where they get like some people. The planet, of, yeah. And they're the yeah. doomsday people. But anyway, is, isn't there some database system where like they they basically allow certain individuals to go to their like pre-planned? Yeah, a lot of those. Don't watch the movie Greenland. That's that's another one. Well, another what, one. Was the, what was what was twenty twelve? Twenty twelve, where they shipped the people off to the place where they had the arcs so they could survive the flood. That was a big movie back in the day, twenty twelve. Oh, that one too. That's based on the. Um, uh, Oh my God! It's based on the model that was Maya sort of calendar. classified by the CIA. No, it's actually based <laughs> That's on. That's why the, it was uh, in 2012, though. Oh, I know, I know, I know. They based they were playing they, on they that took, crowd. They they took the 2012, and then they took also the a theory called crustal displacement theory. Mm. The, the the Earth sort of shifts, the crust of the Earth shifts and sort of falls on its. Which is and that causes than the monkeypox people do. They got a crustal removing. Anyway, so Sam on. Harris, Sam, real quick. Wait a second. Um, Sam Harris was. A major influence on my friends and I when we were younger. We're all sort of precocious young adolescents. I was part of a smart a crew that was, you know, supposedly gifted smart kids. And so we had this viewpoint that once we reject a religion, obviously crony capitalism was wrong. So communism and uh, atheism were the only viewpoint we had. Like it had to be. Like there's no we have to find a better way to have a better system that's more fair and equitable to everyone. So that's unfortunately the pathway we went down. And he was a major influence there, not in support of the communism, but the atheism side, because he wrote a book, an infamous book called Letter to a Christian Nation. I went to a parochial school um, and, uh, you know, I had to wear the uniforms and we attended mass and we had religion classes and all the all the kit and caboodle, all the nine yards that go along with that. And he had a major influence on my friends and I in regards to critiquing absurdly in a very superficial way, the uh, asp- uh, the, the problems of religion. And, and the, what he's doing is critiquing the literal interpretations of religious dogma, which is, okay, kind of very, I can agree with Dubai that. takes flat earth. Exactly. Literal interpretations. If I, if I can the metaphoric or contextual prove the Bible wrong, then atheism must be right. It's a Dawkins-esque type yeah, of yeah. Uh, technique. I can mm-hmm. agree with a lot of what Richard Dawkins says about inaccuracies or uh, things that don't make a lot of sense. There's several different God figures throughout the various Bible, sure. whether it's mm-hmm. New Testament, Old Testament. There's a whole oh, bunch yeah. of things that are like interesting. And there's a lot of slavery and incest and murder and the a whole Old bunch Tester, of other crazy Boyer shit. and incest and war God. You know, he's he's an angry, vindictive, right. frustrated God. In the so Old it's not Testament. that I can't understand sudden, their yeah. side. Oh, no, but, I get that. The literal but, interpretation is absurd. But Sam's point is like humans don't have free will. So oh yeah so he wants I see the it next as to think is... or not to think sam has chosen not to think and he has the right to do that and you get everything that comes with believing there's no god or not thinking it's yeah he essentially you. he ended up in a sort of zen buddhist mindset like which is a very sort of material secular secularist um believe it or not uh, interpretation of buddhism um and so he has this he gets he he tries to position himself as though he's a champion of certain elements of these spiritual traditions when understood in a scientific dogma sure. where it's stripped of any of the spiritual elements that are well, supposed to be associated with it. The gist he, is if you if he believes people are automatons and they don't have free will, which he has no stated and we're gonna it. play the clip, then they therefore er, so people don't have free will is his claim. Ergo, I know they're not responsible. For their choices right therefore hunter biden his his dealings it's it's all okay 
It was already predetermined. So there's no, you don't have any real choice. You don't have any agency. The fact that um, so we even punish people is absurd because okay. it's why, why punish people based on retribution for actions? It should be to, I guess, reform because they were going to do it anyways. And there's nothing you could have done to prevent it. But then why reform them? Because you can't, you can only reform some. It's a very Calvinist style doctrine or Spinozan, Spinoza, which was a secular atheist as well. But he I was, was also a hard determinist. If I didn't do it, somebody else would. <laughs> sorry that was three hours ago all right stay on sam harris here stay, yeah, no, stay focused all right so Sammy um, boy oh there's real quick like this is why peterson ran circles around them when they did their debates together sam takes a very what's called psychological hedonistic perspective and ethics which means people choose uh uh go for pleasure over pain it's a very puerile so they and do have choice specific. see there's so well, many he claims that but then inconsistencies in even what he says about him himself, well see this is the problem he hear. gets when clever people smart people push him into a corner he then becomes what's called a soft determinist and the only thing that's uh well as william james uh, uh pointed out the only difference between a hard determinist and a soft determinist is that soft determinists are hard in the or soft in the head at least the hard determinists maintain a certain metal and uh you know uh unwavering sort of uh, willingness to compromise what they believe well, ironically enough, William James was an indeterminist. So I guess, you know, they're all wrong. <laughs> indeterminists, uh, pure determinists, soft determ- hard determinists, soft determinists, and they're all determinism. Soft determinism was actually invented by the Stoics, unfortunately. And so the Stoics believed that it was inevitable because all are a part of God. They called uh, the world sold pantheism. So we're all parts of God and that so God has Stoics a natural law. weren't atheists. But they do lend they do him in, that piece of philosophy that he yes, disconnected from the whole. That he took into a more extreme. He actually, because they were soft determinists, believing that, well, if your wife gets run over by like a horse, you know, don't have attachment to that. So their belief was like the horse didn't have a conscious intention to take away your your wife and your family, but a human being well, does it was have going a to happen anyway. Recognition of that. And he doesn't as- ascribe that to human beings. He says they're just like a horse or a bear or a shark. Yeah. And I beg to differ. Yeah, because essentially what the Stoics would argue is that even if you were to prevent the horse from running over your wife in some capacity, in some way, your wife is going to end some tragic, horrible death. And so in that capacity, you shouldn't have an emotion associated with that. You should be Stoic. You should be detached from the inevitability of the vicissitudes and cause and effect and of, from of Sam's experiencing life. Correct me if I'm wrong. We're about to hear it. So I have listened to this and I'm saying from his perspective. Uh, your wife getting run over by a horse and carriage or getting raped and murdered by Jack the Ripper. Same thing. Same thing. Jack the Ripper is not responsible because Jack the Ripper doesn't have free choice. And Sam ascribes himself. So he's able to liberate himself of that. He's going to talk about it because I I queued it up. So we're going to listen to the first 10 minutes of him and Lex Fridman to get his people don't have free will philosophy. And then we're going to fast forward to 38 minutes. I think there's a good 10 minute chunk in there that wholly contradicts what he just said about Donald Trump and Trump University and orange man bad, all that good stuff. And I didn't vote for Trump. I'm not a Trump voter. I'm not a Trump supporter. I can, I'm, and I'm in the stands and I'm like the, you guys are rigging the game down there and the referees bought off, but we can see it. And I want to let you know, we can see it right now. They can see it in the future. People have much more clarity. We're in a fog of war right now, real time. So let's go ahead and look at the Lex Fridman interview with Friedman interview, Friedman, Friedman, Friedman. Lexus, yeah. If I Lexus wanted that part too. robot, he doesn't mind. 
F-R-I-D. The robot no. conversation he has with Sam Harris about free will, that was funny in there too, but we, we don't. Oh, that was that good. If you, if you ever paid attention series. to the uh, comments, there was a comment, I think, on that. It was either that or another one where he talked about free will, where the mm-hmm. first comment had thousands and thousands of people. Just because it was essentially, I think it was a troll where the guy's like, my child was raped and murdered in school. But I didn't know what to do because I felt I needed retribution. This person did a heart. But now I understand it was inevitable to happen. And now I can finally let go. And on you should have seen the response of the people like this is fucked on this. So what people are trying to figure out, is this a troll? Is this to point out the absurdity of his philosophy? Because it, the, the, the response it garnered was intense and interesting. So anyways, just want to leave it with that. All right, tip. LD, do you have that uh, clip from Lex Friedman? Yes, I do. All right. And it's circulating also on YouTube. So it's not like we had to go find some obscure thing. It's uh, it's it's freely available. It, yeah, it's freely available. Turns out you were right. I'm going to ask you about free will. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, you've recently released an episode of, of your podcast, Making Sense, for those with a shorter attention span, uh, basically summarizing your mm-hmm. position on free will. I think it was under an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, was, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was brief and clear. Uh, so allow me to summarize the summary, TLDR, and uh, maybe you tell me where I'm wrong. So free will is an illusion and even the experience of free will is an illusion. Like we don't even experience it. Where am am I, am I good in my summary? Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a line that's a little hard to scan for people. I I say that it's, it's not merely that free will is an illusion. The illusion of free will is an illusion, Right. right? Like there is no illusion of free will. And that is a, unlike many other illusions, uh, that's a, a more fundamental claim. It's like, it's not that it's wrong, it's, it's not even wrong. I mean, that's, I guess, the, that was, uh, I think, Wolfgang Pauli, who derided one of his uh, colleagues or enemies with that uh, um, aspersion about his theory in quantum mechanics. Um, it's so there are things that you there there are genuine illusions there are things that you do experience and then you can kind of punch through that experience or you can't you can't actually experience you can't you can't experience them any other way it's just um it's just, we just know it's not a veridical experience you just take like a visual illusion there are visual illusions that you know a lot of these come to me on twitter these days there's these amazing visual illusions mm-hmm. where like you know that every figure in this gif seems to be moving but nothing in fact is moving you can just like put a ruler on your screen and nothing's moving um some of those illusions you can't see any other way i mean they're just they're hacking aspects of the visual system that are just eminently hackable and you you know you you have to use a ruler to to convince yourself that the thing isn't actually moving now there are other visual illusions where you're taken in by it at first but if you pay more attention, you can actually see that it's not there, right? Or it's not how it first seemed. Like the uh, like the Necker cube is a good example of that. Like the Necker cube is just that schematic of a cube, of a transparent cube, which pops out one way or the other. The one, one face can pop out and the other face can pop out. But you can actually just see it as flat with no pop out, which is a more veridical way of, of looking at it. So... There are subject, there are kind of inward correlates to this. And I would say that the, um, 
the sense of self, a sense of self and free will are closely related. I, mean, I often describe them as as two sides of the same coin, but they're not quite the same in the their their spuriousness. I mean, so so the sense of self is something that people I think do experience, right? It's not a very clear experience, but <laughs> it's really not. I, I wouldn't call the illusion of self an illusion, but the illusion Tradition. of free will is an illusion in that as you pay more attention to your experience you begin to see that it, it's totally compatible with an absence of free will. You don't, I mean, coming to back to the place we started, you don't know what you're going to think next. You don't know what you're going to intend next. You don't know what's going to just occur to you that you must do next. You don't know, you don't know how much you're going to feel the behavioral imperative to act on that thought. If you suddenly feel, oh, I don't need to do that. That's, I can do that tomorrow. You don't know where that comes from. You didn't know that was going to arise. You didn't know that was going to be compelling. All of this is compatible with some evil genius in the next room just typing in code into your experience. It's like this, okay, let's give him the, uh, oh my God, I just forgot it was going to be our anniversary in one week thought, right? Give him the cascade of fear. Uh, give, him, yeah. give him this brilliant idea for the thing he can buy that's going to take him no time at all and this, yeah. this you know, overpowering sense of relief. All of our experience is, is compatible with, with the, the script already being written, right? It's, and I'm not saying the script is written. I'm not saying that fatalism is, pretend you a know, lot. is um, the right way to look at this. But we just don't have even our most deliberate voluntary action where we go back and forth between two options, you know, thinking about the reason for A and then, then reconsidering and going, to, thinking harder about B and just going eeny, meeny, miny, mo until the end of the hour, however laborious you can make it, there is a utter mystery at your back finally promoting the thought or intention or, or ration, rationale that is most compelling and therefore deliberate, uh, um, behaviorally um, effective uh, and just, I mean, this, and this can drive some people a little crazy. So I, you know, I usually not talking about anything. Can we pause? What I say quick? about free will, with the caveat that if if think, I don't like. I'm not going to go into it. We have plenty to say afterwards. But he's not really saying anything. At one point, I'm so he's making this equivalence between optical illusion and free will. Then he's saying there's a difference between self and free will, even though they're into. In, uh, inextricably linked. There's also qualitative differences between the two. I, like he's not really saying anything yet. Cause I'm trying to see like how, what is it the, what is the perceptual capacity that's making uh, my sense of uh, agency um, uh, essentially an illusion. That's like, that's what I want to know. Like how is it an optical illusion, but he hasn't gotten into that. And that's what I'm getting confused about. Then he jumps to the self and will nonsense. It's very Schopenhauer style. You uh, have to wait for that evil guy in his head to write all the programming so he can say. Yeah, it. and that's another thing. Yeah, what's that self without free will? So you can have a you can have just essentially a passive experience of just a, 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 a cascade of of sensation and perception, but then you can't take action on it because it's just you you have no free will or the response to the actions you take are non determined. But that, then it's predicated on there being another that is has the will. To write the code to control you and that creates an infinite regress because who then has the if that other doesn't have a free will 
who has the free will controlling the programmer that supposedly has a pseudo illusion of free will that's controlling Sam. And then you get into a hopeless contradiction of infinite regresses from it. This is, this is why his it's such an untenable is he's position. A puppet. He, he doesn't know his puppeteer. And he talks a lot and he sounds until he has that soft spoken voice. God, he reminds me of a certain uh, train thirst. Um, so anyways, yeah, continue forward. Thinking about your mind this way makes you feel terrible. Well, then stop, you know, get, get off the <laughs> ride, you know, sw- switch the channel. You don't have to go down this path. But for me and for, for many other people, it's incredibly freeing to to recognize this about the mind because ah, so it's a way you feel not one, the actual re- reality one, you realize that you're i mean it's a, cutting through the illusion of the, of the self is immensely freeing for a lot of reasons that that we can talk about separately but losing the sense of free will does two things very vividly for me one is it totally undercuts the basis for the psychological basis for hatred Right? Because when you when you think about the experience of of hating other people, what that is anchored to is a feeling that they really are the true authors of their actions. I mean, that someone is doing something. He's jealous of Trump. That you find so despicable, right? Let's say they're you know targeting you unfairly, right? They're but let, he can let go aligning you on Twitter or they're, they're, you, you know, know the god. They're, they're, this is the Greek fates all over again. This is unbelievable such an untenable position when you take these very extreme you get in, uh, positions you get into reductio ad absurdums which aren't always fallacies but in other words that, that's latin for reducing it to the absurd so essentially when you try to you know deductively analyze like okay if we don't have free will what does that mean about human agency choice volition or, or action in the world uh law um retribution punishment these sorts of things that it all totally changes. explains hunter biden perspective Yes, it does. Yes, it does. But it it does and doesn't, though, because now he's saying he can let go of hatred. But clearly he was he uh, expressed a tremendous amount, seemingly, of this tension, at least um, on the Trigonometry podcast. So I'm curious if he doesn't have free will. I guess he's predetermined to have an emotional response to Trump, though, even though the free will is giving him the choice to let go of his hate. Do we see how many contradictions are stacking up against this perspective? Literally just obnoxious and absurd. Let's keep watching. <laughs> it's a gem, that's for sure. They're suing you or they're, they're doing something. They they broke your car window. They did something awful. And now you have a grievance against them. And you're relating to them very differently emotionally in, in your own mind than you would if a force of nature had done this, right? Or if, it's, if it had just been you know a virus or if it had been a wild animal uh, or a malfunctioning machine, right? Like to those things, you don't attribute any kind of freedom of will. And while you you may suffer the consequences of get, catching a virus or being attacked by a wild animal or having a you know your car break down or whatever, it may frustrate you. You don't slip into this mode of hating the agent in a way that completely commandeers your your mind Pause. and deranges your life. I mean, you just don't. I mean, there are people who. You We're don't not have even to do that part yet, Tony. And you're already noticing. Wait a minute. Why does he say that stuff about Trump if he has these positions? Oh man, dude, this is so frustrating. I don't even have my headphones on. Hopefully, my mic isn't hot. I'm not hot micing. Um, uh, this is based on what what he just said there. Something about the the issue of the agency. Oh, oh. So if you have these uh, essentially these experiences, these these third party actors, these this phenomena in the world that you know impact your ability to um 
they know, didn't have make free, free will, choice. So you the, can't be mad. The machine but, didn't have free will when it ran over or crushed your kid or whatever, right? But, the, but we, when Trump has free will, he does get mad because Trump is a self-actualized human being, and he doesn't like that. It, but e- so. even even if we take the argument that there are impersonal forces in nature, tornadoes, floods, whatever, we still have the choice about how we react to the possible, like what happens in the moment of of how we deal with those tragic situations, right? If we have, if we have, for example, evidence in the for uh, based on modeling, based on you know, uh, 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 what's the word, a meteorology, based on you know, just evidence that like, hey, if I'm going to stay in Florida and there's a you know this category five or category four, category five hurricane ready about to slam to the coast, maybe I should leave. So that choice isn't there, but I guess that's predetermined in, in Sam Harris's worldview because he's trying to make it seem like these these impersonal events. You don't have the ability to make it like a, it just happens to you, and you just sort of like a, a, a passive object is receiving like a, bomba- a bombardment of Emotions. a sensation. This is a human perspective. This is basically saying you don't have conceptual consciousness. You only have two things: sensation and perception, and even perception is not sure. We might just be sensing our world and that's it. And anything we say, any language we use to describe it is nothing but an illusion of of our sense of self. Because I guess self is illusory if free will is illusory since they're inextricably linked to another weird contradiction of his. Go on. This is ridiculous. Emotions are how we feel about what we think. And we have a choice to think or not to think. To not well, think if- is to assume or to just go with hedonism. And that seems to be what he's prescribing. Go ahead and let, let's keep playing it because I want to get his definition down so we can go to the other part. If actually real quick, I'm sorry, real, real quick. You just said something um, that I just want to piggyback just really, really quickly. Um, this is uh, the uh, Ayn Rand lexicon um, objectivism made easy. I just read it quick. This is free will. This is to your point, Rich. That which you call your soul or spirit is your consciousness. And that which you call free will is your mind's freedom to think or not. The only will you have, your only freedom, the choice that controls all the choices you make and determines your life and your character. To think is an act of choice. Exactly to what you're saying. Go ahead. Spend decades hating other people for what they did, and it's it's just pure poison. So right? it's a useful shortcut to compassion and empathy. Yeah, yeah. But the question is... Say that this called what, what was it the horse of consciousness? Let's call it the uh, the consciousness generator black box that mm-hmm. we don't understand. And is it possible that the script that we're walking along, that we're playing, that's already written, is actually being written in real time? Mm-hmm. It's almost like you're driving down a road, and in real time that road is being laid down. Yeah. And this black box of consciousness that we don't understand is the place where the script is being generated. So it's not, it is being generated, it didn't always exist. So there's something we don't understand that's fundamental about the nature of reality that generates both consciousness, let's call it maybe the self. I don't know if you want to distinguish between those. Yeah, I definitely would, yeah. You, you, yeah, you would, yeah. because there's a bunch of illusions we're referring to. There's the illusion of free will, there's the illusion of self, and there's the illusion of consciousness. You're saying, I think you said there's no, 
you're not as willing to say there's an illusion of consciousness. You're a little I, bit in more. In fact, I would say it's impossible. Impossible. Yeah, yeah. You're a little bit more willing to say that there's a, an illusion of self, mm -hmm. and you're definitely saying there's an illusion of free will. Yes. How do you separate I'm definitely consciousness, saying there's an, an illusion will, and self? God, I'm sorry. This. this... Well, he's going to try, so let him explain it from his perspective. That a certain kind of self is an illusion. Not every we we mean many different things by this notion of self. So maybe I should just differentiate these things. So consciousness can't be an illusion because any illusion proves its reality as much as any other veridical perception. I mean, if you're hallucinating now, that's just as much of a demonstration of consciousness as really seeing what's quote actually there. If you're if you're dreaming and you don't know it. You, that is consciousness, right? If you're, you can be confused about literally everything. You can't be confused about the the underlying claim. You know, whether you make it linguistically or not, but just the 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 cognitive uh, assertion that something seems to be happening. It's the seeming that is is the cash value of consciousness. Can I take right. a tiny tangent? Okay. So what if I am creating consciousness in my mind to convince you that I'm human? So it's a useful social tool, Pause not it. a fundamental. I create, so I am, I create consciousness in my mind. So I am, therefore I think. What? Anyways, go for it again, Lex, and see how you finish this one out. Mental There's property of experience like of being a living thing what if it's just like a social tool to to almost like a useful computational trick to place myself into reality as we together communicate about this reality well, and another way to ask that because you said it much earlier you talked negatively about robots as you often do so mm -hmm. let me because um you'll probably die first when they take over yeah yeah um no, I, no, I, I'm looking forward to certain kinds of robots. I mean, I, I'm not. If we can get this right, this would be amazing. Right. But, but you yeah, don't like yeah. the robots that fake closet. consciousness. That He's looking for the certain kind of robot used in the movie. Uh, what was the Spielberg movie that after Kubrick died? Oh, dude, AI or robot something? boys? Yeah, AI. Oh. There you go with the teddy bears. He's looking the for teddy a certain bears. Kind of robot. Where there was a director switch in the middle of it, right? Didn't it start out? Like He's looking for a special kind of robot where it doesn't matter if you have free will or not. Yeah. That stays eternally young, which is strange. Robot so. means slave. Anyway, they'll yeah, probably kill much. Sam Harris first. You're right. Good job. That's what you you well, you don't like the idea of fake it till you make it. Well, no, I, it's not that I don't like it. It's that I'm worried that we will lose sight of the the problem, and the problem has massive ethical consequences. I mean, if we, if we if we create robots that really can suffer without free will. Yeah, yeah. This I'm glad you paused it because this is I just now I had to put my headphones on. I have a terrible headache, but I have to keep on. So here, um, here's another issue here, right? Is that uh, <clears throat> I mean, Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand's an atheist. She fled communist atheist Soviet Union. So she's what kind of atheist is she? she you know, she, uh, Sam Harris is an atheist. Sam Harris is a positivist. I actually covered this in um. Oh, she's an objectivist. She uses existing reality instead yeah. of made up sitting in his head. 
Right. Yeah. So positivists start with essentially a prescriptive model of reality based on statistics and mathematics. So phenomena is in a constant state of flux to a, to a positivist. You don't really know the world as it exists out there. It's impossible to know. And you can't even make metaphysical assertions about that world. You can do just do statistical problems, essentially statistical modeling based on measurements that you've taken in the moment, knowing that and run models based on how long that phenomena will stay that way. He's he's the type, Sam Harris, that with uh, debating Jordan Peterson said, there's a certain percentage chance that Jesus uh, might return. That's a positivist assertion, meaning like he's an atheist, but he then made the claim that there's always a percentage chance for anything to just manifest uh, ir- uh, res- um uh, regardless of whether or not it contradicts natural law and 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 in physics and all these sorts of parameters um, that we observe, obviously, is living in a universe that has uh, a cause and effect, which is ironically what he uses then to create a sort of pre-hard determinism. So, without free will, can you have ethics, or are you no. just an automaton? Right. Okay. So his he's he's talking nonsense words. So the, the, what, what I want to what, what I want to say here, real quick though, is like this yeah. is the problem with Harris. See, this is the bait and switch he does all the time. This is why people, especially younger people, get precocious young people who think they understand the world who haven't grown up yet. Just as Peterson pointed out, you're 18, you don't know anything, and that's absolutely true. But these are the types that get word. sucked in, like I was early on, because yes, he has very legitimate critiques of like his. He asked some of the best questions I've ever heard, in fact, on his podcast to technologists and futurists and theorists um, that are really big into AI and automation. He pushes back hard. He is really concerned about what could manifest as essentially either the robots taking over or the abuse of robotics and creating slave situations akin to what the World Economic Forum seems to want to promote through their uh, uh, forms of inclusive capitalism, stakeholder capitalism and whatnot. So it's ironic that he at the same time, he provides like a very good critique that most people can rally behind, but he's using like choice and agency and ethics, which you ethics is a uh, it's prerequisite for ethics to exist as volition, your ability to make a choice. And so he uses this. It, it's it's such a weird because he he contradicts himself so much in so many different knowledge areas. But then people, it's like if you like the idea of just this idea of um, you don't have to have responsibility, the antithesis of the Peterson point, then you go with his, his hard determinism. If you like his critiques against his support for critique of AI and transhumanism, then you support that. If you like his viewpoint on on politics, he sort of like he kind of isolates his knowledge to certain areas and he contradicts himself, assuming agency and volition on all these other areas, except for the most important aspect, which is his sort of metaphysics and, and, and his epistemology in regards to determinism. His philosophy so far sounds like that of Jeffrey Epstein. Let's go ahead and continue to play. <laughs> Yeah. That would be a bad thing, right? And if, if we really are committing a murder wait, 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 when we recycle them, wait, that would be a bad this thing. This is how I know you're not Russian. Why is it a bad thing that we create robots that can suffer? Isn't what? suffering a fundamental thing from which like beauty springs? Like without suffering, do you really think we would have beautiful oh, yeah. things in this world? So we jump to the third like, it, well, that, that's a That's a tangent on a tangent. I, okay. We'll, right. we'll go there. I, yeah, I would love to go, go there, but like, let's not go there. Just like yet. 35 right. minutes. But you so know, I do think it would be, if anything, the clue. Yeah. Because they talk about, yeah. Yeah, it just robots. gets into robots, ethics, you know, suffering. It's it's the idea that Michael Crichton talked about in um, uh, Westworld, like the the seventy the 60s novel, and then turned into the 70s show, 1970s, and then it was remade by HBO recently. And the remake in the first season, 
it gets into this idea of needing an anchor. So like the robots, in order to have a sense of consciousness, they have to have a story or a narrative, usually anchored around a trauma or a suffering that gives them a sense of self or identity. So it's sort of, it flies in the face, Sam Harris flies in the face of that sort of recognition of the need for a narrative or story or suffering as a way to understand your the, yourself, the nature of the world and the afflictions associated with it. Anyways, go ahead. With Einstein's theory that you can have wormholes, you can travel from one point to another faster than the speed of light. And that would, I think, completely change our conception of what it means to travel mm -hmm. in the physical space. And that like completely transform our, our ability. You talk about causality, but here let's just focus on what it means to travel through physical space. Don't you think it's possible that there will be inventions or leaps in understanding about reality that will allow us to see free will as actually like uh, us humans somehow may be linked to this idea of consciousness are actually able to be authors of our actions. It, it is a, it's a non-starter for me conceptually. It's a little bit like saying, could there be some breakthrough that will cause us to realize that circles are really square or that circles are not really round, right? No, a circle is what we mean by a perfectly round form, right? Like it's 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 not it's no, not it on the table to be revised. And uh, so I would say the same thing about consciousness. So it's, it's just like is saying, it? is there some breakthrough that would get us to realize that consciousness is really an illusion? I'm saying no because what the experience of an illusion is as much a demonstration of what I'm calling consciousness Pause. as anything else, right? Like that—that that is. I have to address this. So he used to Terrence. So Terrence, um, Sam Harris used to. And yes, son of this man's circular logic is beyond and suffering. There is an experiment in the '80s that I think he used to reference. Um, I don't know if he references that much because he just said that there really isn't a way to prove that. But it was called the Libet experiment, and it was repeated again in the '90s. And this was by hard determinists. They would take this and showcase that look, science has proven that you have no free will. And so, what the experiment was able to show is that there's a measurable measurable reaction by the nervous system before you have a conscious thought of that reaction. The problem is it's only under very specific conditions. And so the researchers in both teams never came up with the conclusion that you don't have free will. What instead they came up with is, a, I call it the Sunday day driving effect. When you're out riding on country roads, you can sort of, you get into a sort of rote, sort of basic, uh, like it's, it's like a muscle memory where you're doing the action before thinking about it, like slightly turning to the left or turning to the right while you're thinking about or ruminating or conceptualizing or thinking about other things, right? So it doesn't prove that free will doesn't exist. It's that we have this like archaic machinery inside our biology that is operating below consciousness, at least for menial basic tasks that are basically muscle memory. You know, and so sometimes subject to pattern interrupt. And that's that, right. That's, that's right. Dale and, Dennett, uh, here's I, one of the four horses. I had a pattern interrupt yesterday. So okay. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I was paying for dinner and Lucas was asking me something and I was trying to like finish signing the receipt and put the credit card back in my wallet. And I said, interrupting me in one of these patterns is what makes me like forget my credit card at the restaurant. So like, uh, I got to, I got to focus. Can you hold on a second? Well, I hmm. end up leaving the credit card at the restaurant because <laughs> I turned into a teaching moment for both of us. 
that's a great example. Yeah, it's sort of like that's the muscle memory, sort of the the uh, the. It's not autonomic necessarily, the but it's the reaction. Yes, like, so, you got, and so you're not having a conscious reflection of that, but there is a measurable com- measurable component of a, a nervous system response. If and I that's ask all you the time, is. and you go to look at your watch, and then I say, "Can you hold this water bottle?" Because that's a Darren Brown video. That's why I first learned about pattern mm. interrupts. Where oh you've yeah, done yeah. This I watch that all the yeah. time, and it's a way that people can hack you. So you need intellectual self defense against that to be able to recognize. That's how NLP going. works a little bit. That's uh, you essentially well, look kind of in like a. NLP sort of, was developed by DARPA, and one of the chief guys helping them. I heard. I have to look this up, but I heard it was uh, Tony Robbins was one of the assistants on that project. Oh, that's interesting. There's also the issue of the Delphi technique, which obviously has been used by uh, intelligence agencies and the FBI. And all right, so back to uh, Sam Harris, Sammy, Sammy boy. Sorry, talking in circles. He's yeah. circling the Antarctic crust right now. With free will, (laughs) it's a similar problem. It's like, um, again, it it comes down to a picture of causality, and there's just there's no there's no other picture on offer. And what's more, I know I know what it's like on the experiential side to lose the thing to which it is clearly anchored, right? Like the feel like. It doesn't feel, and this is, and this is the question that almost nobody asks. People who are debating me on on the on the topic of free will, I, I'm you know at fifteen minute intervals, I'm making a claim that I don't feel this thing, and they are n- never become interested in. Well, what's that like? Like, okay, so you're you're, you're actually saying you don't you, you, this this thing isn't you know isn't true for you empirically. It's not just because most most people who who don't believe in free will philosophically also believe that we're condemned to experience it. Like they, they you just, you, you can't live without this feeling. So, so you're actually saying you're able to experience the absence of the illusion of free will. Yes. Yes. For, are we talking about whenever, like, whenever a few minutes at a time or, um, is this to require a lot of work and meditation? Or are you literally able to load that into your mind and like play right, that movie? right now, right now, just in this conversation? So it's not it's not absolutely continuous, but it's whenever I pay attention. It's like it's the same, and I would say the same thing for the the illusoriness of of the self in the sense. And again, we uh, we haven't talked about this. So can you still have the self? And not have the free will no, in your mind no, at the this, same time. This, Do they go at the same time? This is the same. Yeah, it's the same thing that. So they, they're always holding hands when yeah, they walk out yeah, the yeah. door. I mean, they really are two sides of the same coin. Okay, but it's it's just it it comes down to what it's like to try to get to the end of this sentence, or what it's like to to finally decide that it's been long enough and now I need another sip of water. Right? If I'm paying attention now, if I, if I'm not paying attention, I'm probably ca- I'm captured by some other thought. And that feels a certain way, right? And so that's not—it's not—it's not vivid. But if I try to make vivid this experience of just okay, I'm finally going to experience free will. I'm going to notice my free will, right? Like if it's got to be here. Everyone's talking about it. Where is it? I'm going to pay attention to. It. I'm going to look for it, and I'm going to—I'm going to create a circumstance that is—is is where it is, has to be most robust, right? I'm not rushed to make this decision. I'm not. It's not a reflex. I'm not under pressure. I'm going to take as long as I want. I'm going to decide 
it's not trivial. Like, so it's not just like reaching with my left hand or reaching with my right hand. People don't like those examples for some reason. Let's make a big decision. Like, where should, you know, what should my next podcast be on, right? Who do I invite on the next podcast? What is it like to make that decision? When I pay attention, there is no evidence of free will anywhere in sight. It's like, it, it, it doesn't feel like, it, it feels profoundly mysterious to be, to be going false. back between two people. He's appealing to his subjective feelings. Like that's, that's, so in epistemology, you essentially have sort of the empiricist objectivist viewpoint. You have subjectivism, and then you have mysticism, which is a, an appeal to an extra century uh, ability, essentially. That's mysticism. Subjectivism was you're essentially the, the ultimate sort of epistemological reductio out of certain of that would be like solipsism, that the contents of the two hemispheres, your, your mind, essentially the, the quiverings of the nervous system are all that exists. And you can't, you're sort of trapped into the perceptions of your mind only. And so he's, he's, he constantly appeals to the subjective, how he feels, how he feels, how he feels, but he's not appealing to any sort of objective standard or metric that I tried to associate here by saying, well, at least he used to in the past appeal to the libet experiment and then the follow-up in the nineties. But those, because those researchers, including even Dale Dennett, who's part of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, part of the Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Dale Dennett, I've always got the fourth, even came out and said like this, there's paradoxes with then modeling future events based on the idea that we're not consciously aware of like our, our our past self there's all these like issues that come up hence why the libet experimenters like deduce that this is not telling you that you have purely deterministic um outcomes look genetics i'm more than willing to admit like our behavioral disposition our our, our cultural backgrounds or religious backgrounds they all do play a, a sort of limiting role in the types of choices that we can have in our life but that doesn't mean we don't have choice at all and that's the problem with Harris. He, I like, don't I'm even real- have a problem with the nuances of free will. It's the fact that when you say people don't have free will, they are no longer responsible for their own actions. Right. And it runs cover for people like Hunter Biden right. and Jeffrey Epstein and right. Ghislaine Maxwell and Prince Andrew and Jimmy Savile and yeah. Joe Biden and the rest of them in the Clinton crew yeah, and the FBI cover-up crew. Do you remember? Uh, I it, showed it, this gives, the- it, it runs cover for them and it normalizes. Because Hunter's able to say such things. Sam's able to say such things. No adjudication. The, the press acts like it doesn't exist, right? Yeah. Do they have free will at the press to say it exists or not exist? Like to make it, there, there's something going on there. So for him to make that argument that he doesn't have free will, okay, I believe him. He can, you can he's always yourself appealing into to thinking his feelings. you don't have free will. You know, do you remember the new age bullshit by Mark Passio? Because that was one of the points Mark Passio made is like, you know, you can if you're going to come up with this idea that you're just creating the your the reality in your mind or that you have no free will, go tell the children that are being raped by some sort of crazy pedophile. You know, like it's just there's so many contradictions to the standpoint that like you don't experience an objective reality and have at least some semblance of a the basic the choice. Basic. Cover up or the kids that took the White House uh, call boys took tour of White House yeah. with the credit card receipts from 1989 Washington Times cover. Or are you talking to Jeff Gannon in the George W. Bush White House? Yeah, there's that. Or are you let's talking not forget about the, high, the college we went to against as Obama? Well. There's a whole bunch. There's a whole slew. Mm. Clinton. Yeah, I know. It seems like a qualification to sit in the Oval Office is you got to have a lot of sexual uh, cases against you, Trump included. Yeah. 
Yeah. No shortage. Hey, Trump actually is probably the cleanest insofar as that he seemed to at he least... doesn't drink and do drugs. He's just full of himself. He's but not full as full himself. as Sam Harris. Trump's Sam a half Harris glass, is... glass half full type of guy compared to Sam. Sam Harris is overflowing with his Trump derangement syndrome. It's it's unreal, so, man. It's I unreal. Okay, so a, a couple One, more. He does yeah. talk a little bit more about how you're not supposed to hold hatred or anger and all these other things that he just did uh, in that uh, trigonometry segment. Yeah. So I wanted to get that full circle it's, and then we can get out of this clip interview. I have one last thing after we come back that I'll end on on the free will issue and then we'll end cool. on that. Is it going to be person A or person B? I've got all my reasons for A and all my reasons why not and all my reasons for B and that there's some math going on there that, I, that I'm not, not even privy to where certain concerns are trumping others. And at a certain point, I just decide and... Yes, you can say I'm the node in the network that has made that decision. Absolutely. I, I'm not saying it's being piped to me from elsewhere, but the feeling of what it's like to make that decision is totally without a sense, a real sense of agency because, because something f simply em emerges. It's literally, it's, it's literally as tenuous as what's the next sound I'm going to hear, right? Or what's, that's not what's the next thought uh, that's going to yeah. appear? And it just, something just appears, you know? And, and if something appears to cancel that something, like if I say, I'm going to invite her, and then I'm about to send the email, and I think, oh, no, 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 I can't do, I can't do that. It's a, it's a, there was that thing in the, uh, that New Yorker article I read that I got to talk to this guy, mm -hmm. right? That pivot at the last second, you can make it as as muscular as you want, it always just comes out of the darkness. It's always mysterious. So right, when you try to pin it down, you really can't ever find that free will. If you, the, 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 if you construct an experiment for yourself and you're trying to really find that moment when you're actually making that controlled pause it, author. Pause it, pause it, pause it, Jesus Christ. It's uh, the fallacy of misplaced. It's like the reverse form of the Albert North Whitehead fallacy of misplaced concreteness. They're trying to, in other words, make like free will. They also are trying to turn cause of cause and effect into a something, into a physical, tangible object instead of an abstraction. And ironically, the only conclusion you can draw from that is indeterminacy, not pure determinism. This is what Hume came up with. Hume said, you cannot see, feel, touch, smell, taste, cause and effect. You assume it. You make the assumption based on the past that if I throw a ball through a window, it's going to smash the window, but there's really no connecting glue between me throwing. That's Hume's argument. And this is how he tried to argue that there was no cause and effect. And that came up with an indeterminate universe. So the problem is if you can't, you can't find it and hold it like it's some slipper. It's like consciousness. I can't really discover consciousness. You know, like Kogi go to ergo assume we're going to throw in, I think therefore I am sort of thing or, you know, of uh, Descartes. You can't, but I can't fool. I can't find it. Where is it? I can't hold it. So therefore, you're right. I, if it, you know, I can't see or hold it. Therefore, it must not exist in some capacity or have some nature to it as part of human experience. And that's what a mess. What a, like this is why people don't like philosophy. <laughs> well, philosophy <laughs> is, is supposed to be our our tool to find truth. That's right. And we should that's all right. be armed with it. But there are many pseudo philosophies that don't yes. help you find truth at all, and they give you uh evil men typing into keyboards your script or whatever the fuck he said in the first 10 minutes that right. whole like what the fuck are you imagining dude 
Yeah. Like, is that it's not even necessary? At least Lex is like, look, there's a black box and there's something going on in there. He some tries algorithm. to develop a thought experiment. Yeah, yeah, we don't know what's going on, but there's other things where we do have choice and agency and responsibility and self-reliance and these sort of things. You know, if you don't have free will, I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't want to do that. You know, it's you, uh, there's you even... would feel like you're on a roller coaster ride that you're not controlling and you probably end up on Prozac pretty quick. Yeah, it becomes the whole the famous line in the matrix, right? I don't want to believe that I don't have control over my own life when he talks about red pill or blue pill and Morpheus is showing him. Um, but the idea though with Morpheus is like, you don't have control because you're a slave because you're a put there. Right. And Most now I'm going to give you your cause... consciousness. I'm going to give you the choice and you still have to think that. So it still is upholding the idea of free will. Now the second movie you, gets messy. People with acquiesce their, their control because they assume. And they sure. believe things that are not true. Here's the bigger issue. Cause and effect is uh, the concept that is needed for there to be a deterministic universe. Um, but the problem with this is that is before that, or after existence exists. And I exactly it. it's it's a it's a byproduct of existing in a universe that has entities that have specific natures that we can identify and communicate by abstracting, finding like universals Sam Harris, and, and making he says dumb things like that. Yes, right. exactly. So he, in other words, what he's doing is he's taking a cause and effect that exists as a byproduct of existing in a universe with laws, physical laws and natural laws, so forth and so on. And he deifies that as though it's something that exists outside of the universe as a prerequisite condition of there being a universe in the first place. But then you get into a hopeless circularity of why would that be a precondition? We only know about that condition by experiencing universe um, um, after the effect. Now, do you so. think it was hyperbole that he gives greater weight to Trump University than to dead kids in the basement of Hunter Biden? That I he think he believed that. And this is actually this if I, the last critique I have of him. Actually, and I'll share this from some of the comments. This is hilarious. I took a comment. Robert Stimmel. This says it all. Robert Simmel said eight, eight hours ago, Sam Harris treats politics like religion. He has faith, believing without seeing that his side is right and the other side is evil and blasphemous. Here's a man that spent his entire life arguing against religion, against ideology, and yet look at what he's become, the very thing he swore to destroy. You've become the very thing. So don't hate things. Don't try to destroy things. Try to build and create and uplift and educate. Right. Yeah, you don't want to get caught into the Jungian projection of the shadow. Yeah. As uh, what's his name? Or Doris said. Fear leads to anger. I can't do it. It's too late. It's 4 a.m. <laughs> yeah. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to the dark side. Yeah, That's you what you got to know. So educate yeah. yourself. Ask some questions. Use your agency to think or not to think. And if you think, I mean, just by asking the question to think or not to think with a question mark at the end, that question mark. Get your brain moving. You've asked a question. You are now in the process well, that's of identifying the a next step. Yeah, self will. Um, these things aren't separated. Like that's that's one of they keep separate. This is a huge issue after German idealism from Kant. So if you onwards. don't have free will, where do you think he stands on freedom? There's no such thing as freedom if there's no free will. There's no free anything. So slavery's is okay with him then. Yeah, right? everything's a closed system of of, of essentially cause and effects that of. of Particles bumping into each other that have certain effects that reach certain, thre certain thresholds of complexity that maintain their form for a certain amount of time to the thermodynamics and entropy enacted and there's a change in environment and you come become another form. You have no no choice in any of that if you become a form complex enough to use language like we are. It's just random. It's almost like a Epicurean sort of like random chaos sort of perspective, like a threshold to a, a universe somehow that's intelligible and has 
has rules that he seems to at least somewhat suggest. I don't know. This is so he gets. So it was like Sam Harris's Big Bang because the Big Bang is like where he said the quiet part out loud. And that's how the universe kind of started. So maybe there is a God. People are confused. There's, irony. There's definitely Can... irony. Irony is a sign of consciousness and conscious uh, humor. Right. I mean, people who are in the science, but neglect the religious aspect of that. Right. There's different tools. One's religion and philosophy and the other is like steps and methodology. But if you can look into anything on this planet and inspect it and hope to like learn something from that process. Right. Science right now is looking for the God equation. You got a bunch of atheists who are looking for the God equation. I know. Right. So if you can look into things and find answers, that means there's reason and consciousness built into the fabric of this whole experience. So I don't think they got it right in the description a couple thousand years ago or even 50 years ago. I think it's yet to be discovered. I don't think we're going to discover it by assuming that one side or the other side is right and the other people are evil. I think that's an archaic uh, way of thinking that has to go the way of the dodo or something like that. It has to go extinct, that way of thinking. It does not propagate into the future unless there's going to be total tyranny and despotism. And at that point, uh, yeah, there will be an absence of free will, at least the ability to express it. All right. So we covered that topic. Who do we have to thank for this episode, aside from our stellar members of the Grand Theft World community? Hello. Yeah. Here I am, Stoic producer. And uh, we had many, many fine tips from the Rockfin Tippers. Thanks, of course, to the uh, members of the Grand Theft World community. You are producers. And big thanks to the Rockfin Tippers. There, there's some really good comments, so I'm going to go through them because please uh, do. Yeah, Sunny R tipped us ten dollars. Said all the hard work and effort put into the show every week is very much appreciated. Nautilus tipped ten dollars. Um, all right, all right. Who knows if this money is going to be worth anything by the time I get around to spending it? Anyhow, uh, thanks to Nick the Sound Guy, Paul Mozina, Jenny, T Can. Matt Green tipped $5. I love when Richard starts dropping F-bombs. Right. <laughs> I Shane, try not to do that. So that's that's why I, my mouth outruns my ability to censor myself, I guess. Well, Dylan likes to keep count and keep track of when the earliest F-bombs are happening on shows. Drink when I use the F-word. <laughs> there you go. There's your game. Oh, man. Swearing Shane, makes me happy. <laughs> Shane Theriault. Uh, thank you. Thomas Hutchinson, $10. Great reporting, commentary, and analysis, guys. As always, thanks for the great journalism. Thank Dallas, you. Dallas Avad said, uh, $5. This is the best news comedy history book club on the interwebs. And uh, in Let's quote him on that. Let's let's use that for, uh, for marketing now. Yeah. We take our marketing from the feedback in the chat. <laughs> Nicholas Hayes, uh, five dollars. RGTM and LD on GTW. My fave way, favorite way to wake up on a Monday morning. Much love from the UK. And small computer system interface dash one tipped five dollars and said thank you. And then there were a couple of other uh, good comments. So very safe. US Biolabs commented, "This is why GT- GTW is worth the big bucks." And that one guy said, "This is absolutely." The most awesomest, most bestest podcast ever. The depth of information is unmatched. Just the facts. 
This is what journalists wish they could be. So thank you. Well said. Well said. All right. And well, if you've made it this far in this episode, uh, Autonomy Season 8 is kicking off the end of September. If you're interested, it takes a couple weeks to go through the process to get in. You're going to have to uh, go through the obstacle course and talk to a human being who's been through the uh, uh, autonomy course and graduated. So um, with that, uh, I know a lot of people have been concerned that they'd like to get in the course, but they don't have the funds, these sort of things. Uh, we have made accommodations to kind of help people along the way. Uh, if you need something for free, we've got a free package. If you need something, it's a couple hundred bucks. We're going to recommend Benny Hill's, uh, Benny Will's Parhesia course to get you. Look, I said Benny Hill. <laughs> Woohoo, that's funny. Cue the music. <laughs> we should use that. Uh, Parhesia, get you started, right? Once you break through some communication layers, maybe your income is going to open up. But for people who want the autonomy training course, um, it's a 12 week course, it's rigorous. It, it's about producing excellence and giving you the raw tools, methods, principles, strategies, and tactics to excel everybody around you. And we're going to offer a six-week version of the course. So we're going to offer a package that you don't have to go through the whole course. You don't have to do all the heavy lifting. You can go through the most useful part of the course, which is the first couple of weeks. And we have a, a downscaled package that would let you work and play with the other people who are going to go through the 12-week course. You're just not going to stay as long uh, through this season, and you'd have plenty of other prerequisites and courses to. Uh, and if they want to finish it, they can. Yeah. They can also uh, choose. We the, would credit you, and you yep. will give you a special upgrade package. Make sure everyone gets what they need. Perfect. So it's important right now that these skills get out there, and uh, we understand what the market's doing to people's, you know, uh, pocketbooks, pocketbooks, bank accounts. And it's getting scarce. Uh, food prices, fuel prices. The only way out is for all of us to up our skills, help more people, and make more money. Because if we don't learn to do that with each other, I, you know, I don't want to keep giving money to people who hate us in these corporations that try to uh, defreedomize this whole place. So learning who each other are and what we have to offer is an important skill in the freedom community. We need to be able to do it bigger, faster, better. Um, and the way we're going to do that is we're going to start with autonomy season eight. We added a whole bunch of features and functionality and benefits and value like accountability and mastermind and all these other things that are going to help people put what they learned into action to make the course pay for itself. The website is getautonomy.info, getautonomy.info forward slash ignite, complete the obstacle course, do the AMA, find out what your options are. And the options have changed from past seasons. So if you've tried before, maybe try, try again. And uh, with that, thank you guys all for tuning in and not dropping out. Tony, LD, thanks for uh, I'd riding like to say real quick, one, yeah, go ahead. one last quick thing here. Um, town Hall, obviously, is not this week. We had it last week. Fantastic Town Hall. Uh, we talked about, I think, the entirety was about the ethical consideration of transhumanism, the motivations and ethics behind transhumanism. The next town hall, which won't be this Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, I'll save the uh, the clips I was mentioning earlier about um, uh, the reference to um, the Golden Bow and Sir James Fraser and the ritualism and the sort of, we can have some fun conversations around that. It's weird. It's a little bit out there. It's speculative, certainly, but we can certainly have a little fun with that uh, and see what you know, we can understand from that. And also, we'll, uh, there's a video I want to feature by Paul Joseph Watson about modern art 
that I think will be an interesting discussion because we kind of ended on the issue of art last week. And I think so the next town hall will also maybe pick up with that and have a discussion around the importance of beauty in our world and how much they're and how hoisting the CIA and try to crush it with modern art. Yeah, with ugliness and, and activism in art rather than, you know, uh, the the preservation, uplifting of beauty. So they, we can talk about definitions. We can talk about, you know, gradations of art, you know, quality, you know, but still, I, I think it was an interesting. He had some interesting critiques. I thought that were reasonable. And he cites a number of philosophers, modern philosophers about the theory of art that I thought was worthwhile. So we'll we'll save those for the next town hall, which Did is we not save this anything week, funny for the end the tonight? following week. Yeah, we have a we couple do. clips. We have a couple clips. And uh but could we could we play a quick uh video from, from the Dome project? I know. Yeah, it's, LD's been up in late. Washington working with Ernie Hancock and some freedom loving people making uh Buckminster Fuller-esque geodesic domes that are uh, made uh, from uniform pieces of metal, and then they are covered with aircrete, which is a sprayed form of concrete. Gives yeah. you a lot of space under roof, not a whole lot of money. It's less than $5,000 to build, like, a, was it the 30-foot dome, Ernie said? Um. Okay. We'll see. Anyway, uh, our... <laughs> once I move, I'm getting one. And so we'll have more up close. But LD's been on the spot actually fabricating and constructing the domes up in Washington. And, and filming. Uh, yeah, yeah, and filming. So that he's got something to show at the end of uh, our show. So let's check it out. Oh, well, here we go. Okay, this is a really good example. These were the first, over a decade ago, I started making geodesic domes with half-inch conduit and 16-foot. Because a 16-foot... 5H dome, I can stand next to the wall and it not hit my head. So you get a full 200 square feet. And this is, we've used it for aquaponics, you know, I called it the aqua dome. And we've had a lot of uh, little projects with this, but we haven't shot it with concrete yet. So this is hog fence and it's really robust. And we were able to stretch it down over the frame and then we put this spider lath over it. It's just uh, you know for stucco and stuff and we've covered this and day after tomorrow we're going to shoot it with concrete. We got the equipment out here and somebody that's done it before is helping us out. But this is like a donor dome. You know it'll be nice but it's uh, for us to practice on and we'll leave it up here and it's going to be used quite a bit. But this is what we're doing just to get a feel for it to do the bigger dome. The 22 foot nice full-size door 24 by 36 couple of windows this over here is the workshop it's a 30-foot dome and eventually all of this practice is going for us to be able to cover that now it's just covered with plastic to be out of the wind and rain for doing the work but what we really want to do is to make dwellings for the liberty community All right, so that's awesome. Um, okay. Yeah, um, if I could just. But that was early in the week, and he's got other clips. Yeah, I was I was making videos every day, and they're well. I basically have a short film now. You know, more editing to do. But if you're interested in hearing more, uh, go to freedomsphoenix.com. Click on the radio TV tab. I did a uh, three shows with Ernie on the bus, and that that was a lot of fun. We talked to um, his friend Greg Tivnan in Missouri, and we talked to James Corbett. And if you're interested in this kind of work, if you think um, you might want to do that, uh, and you know how to get a hold of me, reach out. Uh, if you know how to contact Ernie, 
we're looking for people to help the the uh, owners of the land there have another spot of land down the road and they are looking to build eight to ten of these structures so yeah um if, do you have video the one with the door and that you guys are putting the concrete on so people I, have a better idea of like i do um yeah give me a that's second. what i'm curious about how far like well because like people for the foundation like, how deep are you going for like the rivets on the all right so, so like that's how sturdy gonna, is that that's going to be you so foundation whether you attach it to the ground and the uh-huh. poles go four feet deep to avoid right. the frost line in the north there's a whole yeah, bunch yeah, of that yeah, stuff, yeah, right? yeah, exactly but just that's from this question. perspective yeah. People sometimes want a root cellar or a storm shelter That's, or any of these of other things. And you're like, oh, that would cost a lot of money. Now you have the opportunity to put a whole bunch of square footage under roof with windows, doors. It can be lockable, totally like habitable. Hmm. Um, and it's pretty impervious to the elements. It's not going to get picked up and thrown by the wind if you do it right, because the, the air is just going to go right up and over it. Right. Um constant temperature inside because it's concrete and you know as far as preserving food or vegetables or storage or emergency shelter these sort of things uh economical structure uh very low cost per square foot right if ernie's getting 200 square foot in that dome that's probably like a three thousand dollar dome what's your cost per square foot it's not a whole lot and that's like a permanent structure now, if you just want to build the, uh, the the frame and cover it with some tarps like he did, yeah, you can have greenhouse in there, aquaponics, all sorts of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Once you go concrete, it's a it's a whole different deal. My yeah, idea, exactly, LD, right? was if they could take pictures of the the environment around the dome and then print that on vinyl and then <laughs> make domes invisible to basically the visual eye and, and the, and the yeah. sky. Yeah, you can bend light around it some way. There's a whole bunch of things of you could do to camouflage those structures. I'm just saying they're pretty cool, and I'm getting one soon. Yeah, well, I just want them to work out the technique out in Washington before. There, yeah, yeah here he's got it. Let's We're see these be, pictures. I would, I would, I am, yeah, I am critical of the ability to be a greenhouse. The hoop house concept is cheaper and does the same thing for a lot less. Um, and there's a lot more space. Depends you can on utilize. What, your, what your green is. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, depends. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll leave there you it. go. Well, I hear I hear these things can be useful for uh, fungus growing as well. Yeah, that would that's true. That would paper, be a perfect. Um, a paper, oh my god! Yeah, paper walls basically. Yeah, dude. That's I didn't even think about that, but it would be a perfect microclimate for growing fungi. Dun, dun, dun. Saving the future. They always start mushrooms. Then the safari so, so Oh wait, I didn't say that. Oops. Liberty <laughs> cat. Wait, what? Oops. Um, I mean cordyceps and lion's mane. Yeah. Here, if you want to look at these, at this other one, let me play this one real quick. What we're doing with this dome, it's a 22 foot dome, which is pretty big. It's uh, easily a, a small house, and uh, we're trying something different. We want to be able to incorporate a porch, have uh, standard size 24, 36 windows a full-size door on a foundation and we'll be done uh prepping this then by tomorrow and it takes three guys probably if you started from scratch three four five days you know it depends and as we get better it'll get a lot easier and cheaper so we can occupy the land with attainable housing all right that's um, awesome what was what 
What was okay. the inspiration for that? Um, well, Ernie's been building these things for many years. Okay. Um, oh, okay. For okay. he's do, been doing work. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, having a workshop or a greenhouse that type of thing. You know, they they sold off their property in 2020. They did the Love Bus tour. They got rid of a bunch of stuff. Yeah, they during COVID, the they went on tour. Yeah. Ah, he yeah. would. That's that's totally his personality. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, well, he needs to build Donna a house, and he wants to have this cool spaceship-looking house. So, nice. <laughs> Donna, Donna is his wife, and she is awesome. They were uh, really sweet. Um, getting to know them, doing, getting to do some work from the bus, and here I'm pulling up the vision of. The, do you have uh, an end product of one of these by chance? If you go look at it, just out of curiosity. End product? Well, here I'm trying to find the the futuristic uh, spaceship looking structure that he wants to build in Arizona. Yeah, oh, there's yeah. the vision, and then there's the current project. Yeah, yeah. 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 But they do have concrete on it. Here, so this nice. guy. Um, I don't know if you can see. Oh, that. that's badass. And there's a he has an animation. He, there's a guy in San Diego that's uh, done this, and the same thing with I can't remember. Rich may, might remember the name of the. The spaceship he has with the kind of digital pirate. Um, anyway, Jesus, spaceship Earth, spaceship <laughs> Earth. No, it's like a hover. It's I'm like joking. A, I'm joking. No, it's the, the precariat. The precariat. There you go. And it's there not on the. I didn't. I grabbed the newspaper, but the answer wasn't on here. But I remembered when I grabbed the newspaper. It's the precariat. The precariat. That's how memory works. Freedom. Anyway, Phoenix. somewhere on on his website, freedomsphoenix.com, you can find a video of that. I think for this kind of thing, he's talking about using an airbag technique. So these big airbags that you blow up and then you um, pour the concrete on it. Yeah, and rebar and concrete airbag. take out the airbag. But the idea is we ah. get good at building building these things, and then we can uh, build a bunch of Scale them together up. and link them up with hallways and make a pretty cool structure. Could also bury them. Bury yeah, them. Too, yeah, natural a little more concrete on the outside. That bury that thing. Now you got natural structures. Bunkers. Very stable using uh, basic geometries of nature and stability yeah. and yeah. form. Ever try to crack an egg, push them down on it? So, if, yeah. Fair enough. If you want to know more, go to freedomsphoenix.com, uh, find his Telegram channel, and we've actually started another Telegram channel. But we're going to make a, a special editions page. Um, the Love Bus Tour was a special editions page. We'll be posting all that stuff there. And, uh, yeah, that's a good way to get in contact if you're interested in, in, uh, working on a project like this and you can, I've been posting to Twitter and I just got another timeout for that same tweet. So, um, sorry about that, dude. Yeah, no, it, stay off Twitter. Of, that's part of the game, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, so the, the comedy, now that we covered some domes, and we'll get another update next week, and we'll check out the other footage that you are editing yeah. now. I'll, I'll be back uh, up there next week and staying for a, uh, till the end of next month. So more to come. Cool. So uh, what funny type things can we play at the end of this episode to give people optimism um, and hope for this next week? God, I think we need to be reminded why you need to buy a shotgun. I and think then, we need to laugh it off. There you go. Then the... Uh, how to keep the FBI out of your house. Well, let's watch that one first. I kind of think see the other I kind of want to see mentioned. the unknown calls of death. I'm kind of curious to see how Sears like 
there is truth the funniness at the same but at the same because the fbi one i don't know but they're at either or it doesn't matter i can watch that by myself yeah it's a suit this year well yeah these the would be two two short ones and that one's yeah, nine two minutes short ones. and we're yeah, yeah. i mean it's right, let's do the two yeah. short ones thank you all for tuning in and not dropping out here's a couple funny clips to play us out peace peace guys have a good night everyone thanks everyone Hey, pest control expert JP Sears here. It's that time of year when unwanted pests try to get into your home and they can cause devastating damage. We're talking the worst of the worst. Pests like cockroaches, termites, and the FBI. FBI, open up, motherfucker! But there's something you can do about it. I'm here to give you expert tips that'll leave you and your home better protected from these invasive pests. Now, what we've been seeing is the FBI specifically doesn't respond well to normal pest control measures. Long gone are the days where you can simply spray the common points of entry around your home and expect to keep these critters away. These new pests find a way through that to kick down your front door and enter your home and destroy everything in sight including your life. So what you'll want to do is put up stronger pest control, FBI-specific measures around the perimeter of your home. Things like, I support Hillary signs. All-inclusive yard signs seem to work well. Oh, cool. Nothing to see here, guys. It's clear. And within your home, you can place certain repelling agents that have a 100% effectiveness rate at keeping the FBI from entering your home, such as Hunter Biden's laptop. It's in here. Epstein's client list and Hillary Clinton's email server. These vile pests are also known to be repelled by certain sounds like January 6th was worse than 9-11 Russiagate. That's interesting. Tell me more. I support school boards. Parents are dangerous. We need more censorship. Biden 2024. Yeah, Epstein's black book is inside this house. What laptop? Now, while you're busy repelling the FBI, you'll also want to remove certain things that are very attractive to these pests. Because if you don't remove these things, it's just a matter of time before they'll be clawing their way through your front door with a warrant signed by an Epstein accomplice. So you'll want to remove things like American flags. You know that if you spread honey all over the floor, you're going to get ants in your house. Well, it's the same thing with the American flag and the FBI. You don't want to let them know that you have food for them to feed off of. Trump merchandise. This seems to activate a hunger mechanism in their brain that has them seeking and destroying, which will leave your home in shambles. With the midterm elections coming up, the current wave of pest invasion is expected to rise. But with these pest control strategies, you won't have to be a victim to the relentless onslaught. Stay free. I want to thank the sponsor of today's video. I have two shotguns, but my home, they're locked in a safe. There's a metal gun case. We live in an area that's wooded, somewhat secluded. And I've said, Jill, if there's ever a problem, just walk out on the balcony and fire two blasts outside the house. Buy shotgun, buy shotgun. You don't need machine gun. You don't need 30 rounds. Buy a shotgun. Buy a double barrel shotgun. No, you don't need a flamethrower. And you don't need a tank. And you, you don't, don't need an AR-15 to scare those thugs away. No, and I don't need a grenade launcher. I don't need an F-15. There's just one thing I need to do. And they'll stay away from me. Fire to blast. Outside the house, buy a shotgun, buy a 
shotgun. Still buy a shotgun, baby. You don't need a machine gun. You don't need 30 rounds. Buy a shotgun. Buy a shotgun. shotgun. Fire two blasts outside the house. Buy a shotgun. Buy a shotgun. You don't need a machine gun. You don't need 30 rounds. Buy a shotgun. Shotgun. Conspiracy is a story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at GrandTheftWorld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.